This is Audible. These lectures are part of the Great Courses series. They are produced by the Teaching Company. The Great Courses covered a broad array of university-level disciplines. The lectures in each course are either 30 or 45 minutes long. By listening for less than an hour a day, you can finish even the longest course in just weeks. Browse our catalog or website, and imagine how much you could learn if you spent just 30 minutes a day for the next year in the best college classrooms in the world. The lectures are university professors carefully selected by the teaching company and its customers for intellectual distinction and teaching excellence. These lectures are titled "The Great Debate: Advocates and Opponents of the American Constitution." The lecturer is Professor Thomas L. Pangle. Professor Pangle holds the Joe R. Long Chair in Democratic Studies in the Department of Government at the University of Texas at Austin. Professor Pangle received his B.A. from Cornell University and his Ph.D. in Political Science from the University of Chicago. Before joining the faculty at the University of Texas, Professor Pangle taught at Yale University, Dartmouth University, the University of Chicago, and the École des Hautes-Études en Sciences Sociales in Paris. He is the author of numerous works on political thought, including *The Spirit of Modern Republicanism*, *The Moral Vision of the American Founders*, and *The Philosophy of Locke*. The Ennobling of Democracy, *The Challenge of the Postmodern Age*, and Leo Strauss: An Introduction to His Thought and Intellectual Legacy. He also serves on the editorial boards of Political Research Quarterly and Polis, the journal of the Society for Greek Political Thought. He is the recipient of various awards and accolades, including four fellowships from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Robert Foster Cherry Great Teacher of the World Prize from Baylor University. He has given several lectures, including the Exxon Lectures in Humane Approaches to the Social Sciences, and the Werner Heisenberg Memorial Lecture at the Carl Friedrich von Siemens Foundation in Munich. Professor Pangle prepared the course guidebook that comes with these lectures. The course guidebook includes a detailed outline of each lecture, a timeline, a glossary, biographical notes, and a bibliography. To get the most out of this course, you may find it useful to follow along with the outlines or review them before or after each lecture. Lecture One. Significance and historical context. My goal in this course is to illuminate the deepest original foundations of our American constitutional republicanism, and to do so by bringing back to life the great controversy out of which our Constitution was born, so that we ourselves. Can begin to reenact in some degree the debates, and thus the choices, and more importantly the arguments for the choices that were made by the founding generation. We won't be looking mainly at arguments over details of the Constitution, but rather at what I call the great debate between two fundamentally conflicting visions of what a healthy republic and healthy republican civic life should be. Our focus is going to be on this most profound level of the disagreement and debate, 
between those who favored and those who opposed the new Constitution. And we're going to learn that while, of course, those who favored the Constitution won out and therefore have made the greatest contribution to our political history and culture, it's nevertheless true that those who opposed the Constitution and lost also have contributed to an ongoing dialogue and fertile self-criticism that has helped to define and enrich the American political tradition. In other words, by studying the great original debate over the Constitution, we're going to become much more aware of a profound and fruitful set of tensions that lies at the heart of the American political experience. And this spotlights the deepest reason why it is so important that we ourselves reenact this old controversy. We Americans live within a cultural horizon in which our constitutional system is largely taken for granted as good and reasonable. And this is a healthy thing for our political life because this means that we have a deep and broad consensus on basic principles. And such consensus provides the stability and the trusty agreement among the citizens that's necessary for a republic to function well. But for this political good, we pay a serious price in terms of our genuine intellectual freedom. Because this consensus means that we're not usually challenged by deep criticism of our constitutional order as a whole. And we're not thus impelled to rethink for and by ourselves the arguments for the basic principles and goals of our system. And that puts us in danger of becoming the passive or unquestioning and hence somewhat unthinking creatures of our system. We're not sufficiently aware of the deep questions or serious doubts that thoughtful people can raise about the basic principles underlying our constitutional system. And we're not sufficiently aware that such deep questions and serious doubts were raised among the founders and that the meaning of our Constitution, with its far-reaching implications, was originally thought through and articulated and elaborated in response to such serious challenges. We tend not to realize how much our constitutional thinking was forged in and through controversy, and thus, in an important sense, draws its intellectual strength from controversy, and even invites or stimulates controversy in the light of the original great debate out of which the fundamental meaning of the Constitution was forged. By reenacting the debate at the founding, we can begin to acquire an awareness of all this and thus liberate our minds. We can recover a perspective from which we can see the system coming into being in and through the eyes of thoughtful proponents and opponents who did not, because they could not, take the system and its basic principles and goals for granted. By listening to the original critics of the Constitution and by seeing how the defenders are responding to those critics, we'll have better access to the age-old, deeply puzzling problems in the very nature of republicanism with which our founders were wrestling and trying to solve. We can see precisely what dangers 
this new constitution was meant to combat and what it was designed to achieve. But also, and equally important, we can see what our constitutional system was not designed to achieve, what alternative concerns and goals of political life were abandoned or subordinated, what costs were consciously paid, what limitations were accepted in opting for this, at the time, new system. But all this means that we have to make the effort to try to understand the debate as it was understood at the time by the most articulate advocates on each side. And to help achieve this, I am going to quote profusely from the original documents, from the original writings and speeches, so that we can hear the very words of the contestants and learn to formulate the issues as they formulated them listening to and judging between them from the inside, as it were. Now, let me start by sketching the immediate historical situation that these writings, which we're going to study, emerged out of and primarily addressed. The first American Constitution was created during the Revolutionary War, entitled The Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union, this established what the document calls, in Article 3, a confederacy, or league of friendship, among the 13 states, each of which explicitly retained what the document calls its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, in the wording of Article 2. In other words, under this first constitution, the United States was, or were, and in those days everyone used the plural, which is significant, the United States were exactly what the name United States really connotes, if you step back and think about it. It wasn't one consolidated country, but instead a permanent alliance or union of 13 distinct but kindred independent states. Something more like what we see in today's European Union. And accordingly, under this first constitution, Many or most of the important activities of government were carried out by the individual member states ruling over their own populations. The central or federal government was both simple and very limited in its scope and powers. It consisted of only one major institution, a single Congress. There was no judiciary whatsoever, no separate executive. At this Congress, each state had a delegation that could have as many people in it as they wished, but that cast only a single equal vote. And most important matters required a supermajority of nine of these state votes. This Congress dealt mainly with four kinds of business. First and foremost, collective foreign policy and defense. But with practically no Union Army, the military consisted almost entirely of the state militias, which could be requisitioned by the central government for limited time periods. Secondly, the Congress also arbitrated disputes between states. And thirdly, it facilitated interstate as well as foreign commerce. And then finally, the Congress was empowered to legislate for the territories. Now, especially during the three years after the war ended, 
And we must never forget that it was this constitution that led the country to victory in the revolution. So it had behind it a momentous achievement. But in the three years after the revolution, this confederate system came to appear to more and more Americans as increasingly inadequate. In matters of defense, the confederation seemed too weak. In foreign affairs, irresolute and lacking in a unified voice. In domestic affairs, especially regarding finance and the economy, the confederation seemed fragmented and irresponsible as regards payment of the government debts left over from the revolution. And most worrisome of all was what was beginning to appear within the states, namely a fierce outbreak of rabidly partisan politics, which exhibited an ominous combination of opposite but mutually reinforcing bad proclivities. On the one hand, the radical democratic tendencies of the revolution had bred a widespread popular distrust of government. And this distrust was being whipped up by demagogic populist leaders who branded the elected legislatures as elitist and oligarchic, a charge that took hold especially among those who felt that they were not sharing in the economic boom that occurred at the end of the Revolutionary War. And that meant especially small farmers who were heavily burdened by debt. As a result, there were strong movements to limit the power of elected state legislatures, especially by requiring the elected representatives to follow strict instructions set out by the majority of the voters during the time of the election. But still worse, there were also incidents of mob rebellion against the laws. Most frightening of all, in the fall and winter of 1786, there was Shays's Rebellion in western Massachusetts, which was an insurrection by small farmers angered by what they regarded as crushing debt and taxes that had to be forcibly put down by the state militia. On the other hand, in states where the populist forces did obtain control of the legislature, laws were passed that threatened property rights and sound financial management, sometimes by outright confiscation and more often by impeding debt collection or instigating inflation by printing masses of paper money. The degree of the problems was debated at the time, and has continued to be debated by historians studying the period, but many thoughtful people spoke of a growing crisis. And under the leadership that included James Madison and Alexander Hamilton especially, the Federal Congress finally called a special convention to meet in Philadelphia in May of 1787, to which all the states were invited to send delegations, and which was authorized to propose changes or amendments in the Articles of Confederation. Now, this convention met through the entire summer of 1787 in secrecy. And naturally, while the secrecy of the proceedings allowed for a franker and freer debate and exchange of views, it also aroused a good deal of suspicion amongst the populace outside who awaited the outcome. And when the product was finally disclosed on September 17th, 1787, there was amongst much of the populace a kind of collective gasp because 
the rumors were confirmed. The convention had not abided by its legally assigned task, which was, to repeat, to propose amendments to the existing Constitution. Instead, the convention had gone far beyond its delegated mission and had come forth with an entirely new, different, unprecedented Constitution. Little wonder that opposition exploded almost immediately. What the convention did, in effect, was to appeal over the head of the existing Constitution and national government or federal government to the people themselves and over the heads of the state governments to the people in the states as the ultimate fountain of all constitutional authority. The proposed Constitution was not sent back or referred back to the existing Congress or federal government. It was not offered to them for their ratification or even for their discussion. And it was not sent to the state governments for their ratification or their discussion. Instead, the convention decided that their product should be ratified by special conventions in each state, made up of delegates elected for that purpose directly by the people which meant at the time a majority of the adult male voters with eligibility requirements that varied from state to state. And in addition, the convention decided that ratification by any nine of the 13 state conventions would be sufficient for the new constitution to come into effect for those ratifying states. But as a practical matter, everyone knew that if this new union was to have much chance of success, the ratifying states had to include the four biggest states, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Massachusetts, and New York. In the last three of which, Virginia, Massachusetts, and New York, there was very strong opposition, especially in New York. And the leaders of the opposition included some of the men who had themselves been delegates to the Constitutional Convention. Because this proposed new Constitution was the compromise product of long and strenuous and sometimes dangerously bitter debate within that secret hall. And the debates took place under some pretty trying circumstances, which have been best described by one major historian, Forrest MacDonald, in the following words. An average of close to 40 men, most of them obese, crowded into a modest-sized and not well-ventilated room for five to seven hours a day during an intensely hot and muggy summer. So it's not surprising that a sizable proportion of the delegates wound up refusing to sign the final document. Sixteen of the 55 who attended the Philadelphia Convention did not sign the document. And among these non-signers were some major figures who immediately began publishing their strong objections. The delegation from Virginia, the state which was the most populous, wealthy, and powerful at the time, was badly split. Three of the Virginians, including George Washington and James Madison, signed on as supporters, but in vehement opposition, saying, in fact, that he would rather cut off his right hand than use it to sign this constitution was George Mason. Perhaps the second most respected Virginian of the time after George Washington. 
Mason had authored the Virginia Declaration of Rights of 1776, which was the first American Bill of Rights, preceding and influencing Jefferson's Declaration of Independence, and also deeply influencing the Declarations of Rights in other states. Joining Mason in opposition was Edmund Randolph, the governor of Virginia. The delegation from New York, the second most populous and powerful state, was even more opposed. Alexander Hamilton was the only one of the three New York delegates who supported the Constitution. His two colleagues, Supreme Court Justice Robert Yates and Speaker of the Assembly John Lansing, walked out of the convention early on in disgust at what was being concocted. And Robert Yates is thought to be the author of one of the most insightful and well-argued sets of essays attacking the proposed Constitution, the essays that were signed by the pen name Brutus. Other distinguished delegates at the convention who came out in opposition included notably Luther Martin, who was the Attorney General of Maryland and recognized as perhaps America's greatest expert on law and legal theory, and John Francis Mercer of Maryland, a distinguished lawyer, a hero of the Revolution, who's probably the author of another of the best sets of oppositional writings, which appeared under the pen name, A Farmer. And these non-signing delegates were joined by other weighty and eloquent writers and speakers in opposition, many or most of whom wrote anonymously, under pen names, as was the custom at that time. And because of this custom of noble anonymity in published political writings, scholars to this day are uncertain to varying degrees as to who wrote, as to what was the authorship of many or most of the Anti-Federalist writings. These Anti-Federalists, as the opponents of the Constitution were called, were, of course, a diverse slot with a wide variety of objections and supporting arguments. And they ranged in the degree of their opposition to the proposed Constitution. Some were for rejecting the whole scheme and starting all over again. Perhaps most preeminent among these was Governor George Clinton of New York, supported by his allies, Lansing and Yates, who had been the delegates who walked out of the convention. And they were joined by Mercy Otis Warren, perhaps the most gifted woman thinker, poet, playwright, and historian of America at that time. Then there were other more moderate critics who called for substantial amendments to this proposed Constitution, but prior to adoption at a second convention. This was the position taken most eloquently by Patrick Henry, who delivered a series of mighty orations against the proposed Constitution in the Virginia ratifying convention. A similar position was taken in Virginia by Richard Henry Lee, who'd been a leader of the revolution and who in 1786 was president of the Continental Congress and thus the leading official of the existing United States. And Lee is, we think, perhaps the author of one of the most influential and widely read of the Anti-Federalist writings, which were written under the title the letters from a federal farmer. A third and softer opposition position 
called for substantial amendments, but not requiring them prior to ratification. Amendments to be made by the first Congress. This was the position taken in Massachusetts by those heroes of the revolution, John Hancock, who was in 1787 the governor of Massachusetts, and Samuel Adams, who was in 1787 president of the Massachusetts State Senate. In the Massachusetts ratifying convention, Hancock and Adams began by leaning strongly against ratification. But eventually, as the debates wore on, they, these two, became leaders in striking a compromise, which allowed a victory for ratification in the Massachusetts Convention by a very close vote, 187 to 168. But with the recommendation that major amendments be made by the first new Congress under the new constitutional system. And this compromise form of ratifying, saying yes to ratification, but saying, and there should be major changes and amendments made by the first Congress, was followed by several other states. It became a kind of paradigm of a way to get compromise ratification. Meanwhile, on the other side, the proponents of the Constitution, who called themselves the Federalists, were also a varied lot. And they too ranged in both the degree of their enthusiasm and the reasons for their support of the proposed Constitution. But there's a massive twofold difference between the two sides in regard to their degree of unity. First and most obviously, the Federalists were more unified because they were all defending the same basic document, the proposed Constitution. While the Anti-Federalists had no single unifying alternative proposal to unite them. Secondly, the opponents, the Anti-Federalists, never produced any single publication that ranks in depth and breadth with the great Federalist papers that were written mainly by Hamilton and Madison, which over time have come justifiably to obscure the numerous other writings and speeches that were published in 1787 in favor of the proposed Constitution. Now, those supporting the proposed Constitution, the Federalists, took rhetorical advantage of the facts that their anti-Federalist opponents were more scattered in their arguments and didn't have a single alternative plan to unite around. The Federalists exploited this to portray their opponents as more incoherent, more contradictory, more lacking in any constructive vision than they in fact were. And this is especially true of James Madison's treatment of his opponents in Federalist paper number 38. And for the first century and a half of our country's history, scholars tended to be overly influenced by this rhetorical strategy of the victors, and hence underestimated or ignored the strength of the anti-federalist arguments. Although everyone had to concede that the anti-federalists did make a great contribution in forcing upon the federalists the amendments that form the Bill of Rights. Because as we shall see, the idea of a National Bill of Rights was strongly resisted by the Federalists, led by Hamilton and Madison at first. Uh, they eventually agreed to the idea of a Bill of Rights only when they saw that they had to 
if they were going to win ratification and to avoid alienating from the new constitution that large minority who had opposed it in the great debate. And it's a serious question that historians debate whether if there had been a national referendum, the Constitution would have passed. It's not at all clear that a majority of the Americans would have voted for it. But apart from this grudging admission that the Anti-Federalists were chiefly responsible for the addition of a Bill of Rights, leading 19th and early 20th century historians of the founding period, such as John Fiske, George Bancroft, Andrew McLaughlin, gave insufficient attention to the richness of the alternative Republican theory and vision that finds expression in the deepest reservations articulated in the best of the Anti-Federalist writings. Then, later, scholarship in the early and mid-20th century was blighted by the predominance of an outlook on history that was championed by Charles Beard, who tended to reductively interpret the theorizing of both the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists as mere ideology masking and promoting the clash of selfish class economic interests. Historians of the past half century have been remedying this earlier neglect of the theoretical seriousness of Anti-Federalist as well as Federalist thinking. And hence, scholars have recently come more and more to appreciate better the weightiness and depth of the debate on both sides. And a major goal of these lectures of mine is to profit from and to give expression to this more recent heightened appreciation of the principled power of the argumentation on both sides in the great debate. Now let's focus a little more narrowly in on New York State and its contest out of which Hamilton's and Madison's great Federalist papers emerged. In New York, the opponents of the Constitution seized the early initiative. Governor Clinton, joined by his allies, Yates and Lansing and Mercy Warren, published, starting right away in September of 1787, some very powerful newspaper essays and pamphlets attacking the proposed Constitution. And it was in response to this anti-federalist onslaught that Alexander Hamilton, decided he had to organize and lead the writing and publication of the Federalist Papers in newspapers. So there's a deep sense in which it was the New York Anti-Federalists who provoked and made necessary and thus possible the greatest commentary on the Constitution's underlying meaning. Hamilton himself wrote about two-thirds of these famous Federalist Papers. But he enlisted the help of James Madison, who was visiting New York at the time and who wrote some of the most important papers. And also John Jay, who was later to become the first Chief Justice of the United States, who unfortunately, however, was wounded and ended up writing only five of the 85 papers. Hamilton was also the leading pro-ratification spokesman at the New York Ratifying Convention, which met the next summer where there was an eventual Federalist victory by a very close vote of 30 to 27 on the very late date of July 26, 1788. But this ratification, like that in Massachusetts, included a call for no less than 33 amendments to the Constitution to be enacted by the First Congress. 
In Virginia, which ratified in June, the vote was not quite so close, 89 to 79. But it also included a call for 20 amendments in addition to a declaration of rights. And in New York, it was only the arrival of the news of the Virginia ratification, which took a month by horseback to get to New York, which turned the tide. It persuaded a handful of anti-federalist delegates, led by Melanchthon Smith, to switch sides from opposition to grudging acceptance and endorsement of ratification on the grounds that, well, if Virginia is going to be in this thing, it would just be too dangerous for New York to stay out. So, seen in their immediate context, the Federalist Papers are a very high-level political advocative journalism, a newspaper discussion, as Hamilton calls them in Paper 11. Hamilton and Madison don't claim to be writing a treatise or a work of true political philosophy. Instead, they're arguing like good lawyers, for a specific constitution in a specific time and place against specific opponents. And the opponents are these anti-federalists who have published already and continue to publish their writings. And this makes, of course, the Federalist Papers colored by a partisan debating spirit that's not always fair to the opponents. And yet, on the other hand, Hamilton and Madison are keenly aware that any argument for a specific kind of government, if it is to be cogent and convincing, must give some well-reasoned response to the most serious objections of the adversaries, especially objections of a fundamental, principled kind. And in this case, the opponents have raised grave doubts as to whether the proposed Constitution conforms to the basic, traditional American principles of freedom and republicanism. The Anti-Federalists charged from the beginning that this proposed Constitution represented a dangerously innovating departure from great traditional Republican principles, the principles that have been handed down for generations that Americans have heretofore made the foundation of their civic life. The principles that carried us through the Revolution, they said, are being abandoned in this and by this document. The Anti-Federalists thus tend to speak as conservatives, decrying the reckless radicalism of the Federalists and their new Constitution. And the Federalists respond by, in some measure, proudly accepting the mantle of innovators. In the next lecture, I want to enter into the serious issues of the great debate by starting from this contrast and unpacking what is implied in this apparent conservatism of the Anti-Federalists and the apparent radicalism of the Federalists. Lecture 2. Classical Republicanism. As we saw at the end of the last lecture, a massive first impression we get is that the anti-federalists or opponents of the proposed constitution speak as conservatives whereas the federalists or defenders of the proposed constitution speak as innovators this is true most immediately and obviously in that the anti-federalists argue that there's no need for a completely new constitution 
to replace the existing Constitution, though they readily acknowledge that the Articles of Confederation do need some substantial revision, the Anti-Federalists call for some enhancement of the powers of the central government under the Articles. But, they insist, the basic idea of the existing Constitution, its underlying truly federal principles, are essentially fine, embodying a properly limited idea of the central government's powers, maintaining a true balance of power between the central and the state governments and among the state governments. And this limitation and balancing of powers, they charge, was lost sight of in the proposed Constitution. As the Anti-Federalist Speaker Gilbert Livingston said in the debates in the New York ratifying convention, True it is, sir, there are some powers wanted to make this glorious compact complete, but, sir, let us be cautious that we do not err more on the other hand by giving power too profusely when perhaps it will be too late to recall it. And the Pennsylvania writer, who calls himself a federal Republican, commenting on the clause in the proposed Constitution which gives to Congress the power to, as our document says, levy and raise taxes to provide for the common defense and general welfare, says, Our situation taught us the necessity of enlarging the powers of Congress for certain national purposes where the deficiency was experienced. Had these and these only been added, experience itself would have been an advocate for the measure. But in the proposed Constitution, there is an extent of power in Congress of which I fear neither theory nor practice will evince the propriety or advantage. The Federalists, in contrast, stand for abandoning the existing Constitution and its basic federal principles in order to substitute something dramatically different and unprecedented. In the words of Hamilton in Federalist Paper 23, there is an absolute necessity for an entire change in the first principles of the system. Against this kind of thinking, the Anti-Federalists tend to argue that the chief source of the present troubles is not mainly the bad design of the existing Constitution, but rather a decline in civic and moral spirit among the American people in the years since the Revolution. Thus, Samuel Adams, or a follower of his perhaps, writing under the pen name Candidus, says, We're too apt to charge misfortunes to the want of energy in our government, misfortunes which we have brought upon ourselves by dissipation and extravagance. And the Anti-Federalists see the proposed Constitution as doing little to remedy this more important moral decline among the people, and likely to make things worse. And this Anti-Federalist stress on the importance of civic virtue in the populace signals the more profound level of the conservative stance of the Anti-Federalists. They charge that the proposed Constitution is too great a departure from age-old classical principles of Republican government. And in reply to this charge, 
the Federalists show themselves to be proud radicals in that they proudly acknowledge that their proposed republic is of a dramatically new kind without precedent in human history. What's more, Madison and his allies dare to argue that precisely the innovativeness of the proposed constitutional republic is a good argument for it, because this signals the fact that this new type of republic will not have the vices that have always before haunted Republican governments in all previous times and places. As Madison puts it in paper 37 when he's beginning to give an overview of the whole new proposal, the novelty of the undertaking immediately strikes us. It has been shown in the course of these papers that the other confederacies which could be consulted as precedents have been vitiated by erroneous principles and can therefore furnish no other light than that of beacons which give warning of the course to be shunned without pointing out that which ought to be pursued. And it's this aspect of the proposed Constitution, its departure from major traditional agreed-on principles of republicanism, that I want to focus on first and foremost. Because this will bring into focus what are the deepest issues in the great debate, issues concerning the very nature of sound republicanism, republican liberty, and self-government. A good starting point is what we see leaping out at us from the start of Hamilton's ninth Federalist paper. For there we find an unabashed and sweeping condemnation of the great examples and principles of classical republicanism, that heroically virtuous form of self-government that had characterized the Greco-Roman world in its best and most famous moments. It is impossible, Hamilton writes, to read the history of the petty republics of Greece and Italy without feeling sensations of horror and disgust at the distractions with which they were continually agitated and at the rapid succession of revolutions by which they were kept in a state of perpetual vibration between the extremes of tyranny and anarchy. If momentary rays of glory break forth from the gloom, while they dazzle us with a transient and fleeting brilliance, they at the same time admonish us to lament that the vices of government should pervert the direction and tarnish the luster of those bright talents and exalted endowments for which the favored soils that produced them have been so justly celebrated. If it had been found impracticable, Hamilton goes on, to have devised models of a more perfect structure than those ancient Greek and Roman republics, the enlightened friends to liberty would have been obliged to abandon the cause of that species of government as indefensible. Now, this severe attack on the classical Republican tradition is continued by Madison in the next tenth paper and carried still further by both Madison and Hamilton in papers 16 through 20, as well as elsewhere. And to grasp the bold character of this attack on the classical tradition, we have to recognize the awesome significance for everyone at the time of the founding 
of classical republicanism. Among Americans, as well as Europeans in the 18th century, the most authoritative model of republicanism in previous history was the Greco-Roman experience of self-government, whose legacy had often been evoked during the revolution as a source of inspiration and guidance. Thus, for example, in the depths of the terrible winter at Valley Forge, George Washington had rallied morale by having Addison's great tragedy of the Roman hero Cato presented to the starving, freezing troops. And throughout his life, Washington spoke of deep inspiration by the Roman Republican models of heroic leadership. Washington was by no means exceptional in this. And almost everyone in the 18th century, especially in America, agreed that there had been a flowering of Republican self-government and civic virtue in classical antiquity. A flowering which loomed as a kind of heroic standard for all succeeding ages. And the continuing weight of this classical Republican heritage is seen throughout the Federalist Papers by virtue of the fact that the authors sign every paper Publius, invoking over and over and over 85 times the name of one of the two leading founders of the Roman Republic, Publius Valerius Publicola, a hero celebrated in one of Plutarch's famous biographies. And this kind of noble anonymity, submerging oneself as an author behind a pen name taken from some classical Republican figure, was very common practice among both Federalists and Anti-Federalists. And as we proceed, we'll be quoting repeatedly papers and essays signed by pen names such as Brutus, Cato, Candidus, Sentinel, Cincinnatus, Cornelius, and so forth. Yet even while Hamilton and Madison embrace this common practice and thus signal that they do share to some extent in the common respect for the classical Republican tradition, they soon unveil, as we have now seen from paper number nine, their radical break with that tradition, and thus provoke some of the Anti-Federalists' deepest worries about the proposed new constitutional system. And to understand all that is at stake in this Federalist break with classical Republicanism, and the deep worries this break arouses in the Anti-Federalists, we have to familiarize ourselves with what was the rich and complex meaning for Americans in the 18th century of this classical Republican tradition. The original understanding of classical Republicanism was available to the Americans through the great classics of ancient political theory, written by philosophers such as Aristotle and Cicero, and through the great classics of ancient history, such as the works of Thucydides and Plutarch and Livy. But, as Hamilton reminds us in this same Ninth Federalist paper, from which I read a moment ago, the classical Republican tradition had been given its most compelling recent formulation by the great French political philosopher Montesquieu in his masterpiece, The Spirit of the Laws, published in 1748 and immediately translated into English. The Spirit of the Laws quickly became the most important work of political philosophy of the time and was the work of political philosophy that was the most frequently cited as an authority among Americans at the time of the founding.
Now, Montesquieu, in his masterpiece, didn't simply restate the classical Republican tradition. In important ways, he reinterprets that tradition. He gives to the classical Republican experience a new analysis. And if we're to grasp the complexity of what the classical model meant for Americans at the founding, we first need to understand precisely how Montesquieu's reinterpretation profoundly changes the meaning of the classical Republican models. Now, what exactly then is the key difference between Montesquieu's reinterpretation, reanalysis, and the original analysis provided by the classical philosophers themselves of their world? In its original form, in the political theory elaborated in the writings of the great Greco-Roman political philosophers and historians, Republican government had been understood more in aristocratic than in democratic terms. Republics, at their best, were understood to be shaped by and for an elite, but not an elite defined by or aimed at money or wealth. Instead, an elite genuinely dedicated to wise and sometimes heroic civic virtue, generously preoccupied with a politics of caring for the welfare of the whole community, a welfare defined more in spiritual than in material terms. And thus an elite which conceived of its highest task as that of leading the community in cultivating a refined life of the mind, centered on public, communal, religious worship and celebration and reflection in great public religious festivals such as produced the magnificent Greek and Latin tragedies and comedies. This aristocracy's economic basis was not commercial or business or banking, but instead inherited farmland and farming, property of a kind that affords leisure without tempting to acquisitiveness or materialistic love of money. The life of virtue led by civic leaders was understood not only or even mainly as a life of service to the community, to the people. The supreme goal of politics was understood to be neither the promotion of the interests of the rich with their property and wealth, nor the promotion of the ordinary person's desire for security and liberty and prosperity. Instead, the exercise of the public and private virtues was conceived as itself the highest end or purpose of the community. The life of virtue, civic and intellectual, was held to be itself the peak of human flourishing and the purpose of the best Republican community. Yet as a practical matter, the classical theorists recognized that in almost all actual situations, this high and noble aspiration had to be compromised, both in order to win the necessary support of the more materialistically minded commercial and business rich people, and in order to gain the consent and support of the numerically powerful poor and middle classes. In practice, it was understood, the concern for virtue or human excellence has to be diluted by concerns for wealth, freedom, and equality. So the best practical sort of republic was conceived in this classical theory 
as what was called a mixed regime, meaning a republic that mixes or combines aristocracy with some democracy. By taking considerable power out of the hands of the moral elite, and placing that power in the hands of the majority of the populace. In the best version of this compromise mixed regime, the few of distinguished virtue had to share power with the many ordinary people and govern with their consent. But it was hoped without becoming the servants of the people. In the mixed regime, the great challenge to the moral elite was to resist or to try to elevate the ordinary people's tendency to debase virtue into something regarded not as the end, but rather as a means, a mere means, to popular prosperity and liberty and security. Now, in a Christianized version, this original classical conception had been the dominant political outlook of the New England Puritans, who were a cornerstone of the American Republican tradition. In a more secular version, the classic mixed regime is articulated by Thomas Jefferson in a famous letter to John Adams written near the end of their lives, where he speaks as follows. I agree with you, he writes to Adams, that there is a natural aristocracy among men. The grounds of this are virtue and talents. There is also an artificial aristocracy founded on wealth and birth without either virtue or talents. The natural aristocracy I consider as the most precious gift of nature for the instruction, the trusts, and government of society. May we not even say, he writes to Adams, that that form of government is the best which provides the most effectually for a pure selection of these natural aristoi into the offices of government. The artificial aristocracy is a mischievous ingredient in government, and provision should be made to prevent its ascendancy. I think the best remedy is to leave to the citizens the free election and separation of the aristoi from the pseudo-aristoi, of the wheat from the chaff. In general, they will elect the real good and wise. Now, Montesquieu, in contrast to all this, had argued that the true virtues of the classical republics were more popular, egalitarian, mediocre, as he put it. Montesquieu contended against Aristotle and Cicero and Thucydides and Plutarch that the classical republic at its best was democratic rather than aristocratic. At its best, Montesquieu insisted, the classical republic put supreme power in the hands of the assembly of all the citizens, meeting frequently to pass by majority vote the fundamental laws and to serve as mass popular juries in court trials and thus to control the judiciary, and also to elect and later to pass judgment on administrative officers who were understood to be the people's public servants. Such a democracy, Montesquieu pointed out, must be small enough so that the people can assemble. And more importantly, small enough so that those who stand for election to office are familiar to and resemble and remain under the close scrutiny of 
the rest of the populace. Even more important than smallness of size, Montesquieu stressed, a true democracy requires in all its ordinary citizens an intense public spirit. Each and every citizen must be willing to devote considerable time and energy and expense to public service, to long meetings, to elaborate discussions, to important committee work, and so on. And Montesquieu calls such virtue in the people the very principle, as he puts it, or the spring of democracy. And Montesquieu explains that this democratic virtue requires among the citizens a deep spirit of kinship or fraternity. And such genuine fraternity requires a homogeneity in the way of life of the inhabitants. Only persons, he argues, who share the same education, the same family mores, the same economic status, the same religion, can look upon one another with an authentic sense of brotherhood and sympathy and empathy. So virtue, he argues, is the love of equality, meaning the love of like for like, the love of and for a society that prevents sharp class distinctions or pronounced diversity. And a chief business of such a democratic community, he argues, is legislating this morality, this moral ethos, meaning requiring through all sorts of social pressures, including coercion and constant moral education of adults as well as children, requiring all citizens to conform to the ethos of egalitarian communal civic virtue. And this requires a single established religion uniting the society spiritually. Now, the classical Republican ideal, especially in its new Montesquieuian democratic version, was held in high honor, especially by the anti-federalists, who appealed to key elements of this Montesquieuian version of the classical ideal as a standard by which to judge and condemn the proposed constitution and its very unclassical underlying vision of Republican life. But I must hasten to add, the classical Republican ideal, even in its newer, more democratic Montesquieuian version, was not simply or unreservedly embraced by almost anyone in America in 1787, including the anti-federalists. And it's this deep ambivalence about the classical Republican ideal that makes the anti-federalist outlook so complicated. Sometimes, to be sure, leading anti-federalists do speak in very classical-sounding terms. As when the anti-federalist writer who calls himself Brutus says in his seventh essay, we ought, he says, to furnish the world with an example of a great people who in their civil institutions hold chiefly in view the attainment of virtue and happiness among ourselves. But it's more characteristic of the anti-federalists, including Brutus himself, to speak of the chief goal of government as being the securing of rights and liberties in an individualistic and even what we today might call libertarian sense, meaning rights and liberties for individuals to pursue their own private happiness as each wishes, especially 
through the acquisition of more and more private property through commerce as well as farming, free from governmental or communal supervision and interference. In other words, the anti-federalists share with the federalists a vision of America's future that would be unlike the classical ideal in that they envisage the future country as being much larger in scale than any classical republic, much more commercial and economically growth-oriented, and much more individualistic, liberal or even libertarian. And yet, the anti-federalists continue to think, at the risk of some deep inconsistency, that precisely in order to protect this more individualistic liberty, major aspects of the classical ideal need to be preserved and fostered. Aspects that would be abandoned or lost in the constitutional order proposed by the Federalists, they fear. What most deeply distinguishes the anti-Federalist outlook from the classical Republican ideal, in both its original and its new Montesquieuian form, is that the anti-Federalists tend to see politics as less a positive good, less an attractive field for moral fulfillment, and more a necessary evil required to protect the personal liberty of individuals who exercise their liberty largely in more private pursuits, especially the pursuit of economic gain. What's more, the anti-federalists are unclassical in the degree to which they are apt to see government and participation in politics as intrinsically dubious and even corrupting because they see humans as by nature very prone to use whatever power they have to seek more and more power. Power likely to be used to exercise exploitative control over others. As the writer who calls himself John DeWitt puts it, the more we examine the conduct of those men who have been entrusted with the administration of governments, the more assured we shall be that mankind have perhaps in every instance abused the authority vested in them or attempted the abuse. Brutus issues a similar judgment based, he says, on the lessons of the Old Testament. But precisely on the basis of this unclassical degree of distrust of leaders or elites in politics and government, the anti-federalists think that the classical ideas of the need for civic virtue in the populace amongst ordinary citizens and the need for direct popular participation in government and the need for government to be kept close to and dependent on the people under their direct local popular control are all essential to prevent what will otherwise be a steady drift toward oligarchic or aristocratic oppression by whatever elite hold the government offices. As the writer who calls himself Sentinel puts it in his first letter, a Republican or free government can only exist where the body of the people are virtuous and where property is pretty equally divided. In such a government, the people are the sovereign and their sense or opinion is the criterion of every public measure. For when this ceases to be the case, the nature of the government is changed and an aristocracy, monarchy, or despotism will rise on its ruin. The anti-federalists are concerned, then, for the classical republican ideals of citizen virtue 
and popular participation in and control over government, not in the way the classics themselves were. These virtues are not seen chiefly as good for their own sakes or as ends, but instead mainly as means to, as necessary protections and supports for more individualistic rights and freedoms, freedoms of a largely non-political, commercial, and private kind. So it's on this basis of a very qualified appeal to classical republicanism that the anti-federalists oppose the new constitution. They're worried above all because they see the proposed constitution as threatening individual rights and freedoms by excessively centralizing governmental power, making it too unified and unchecked, and by removing government too far from the direct local control of the people as citizens, making the Constitution likely to foster an elite, aristocratic government that would more and more intrude with domineering effect in people's lives, with the people becoming more and more like servile servants, rather than active, independent power-sharers. What's needed instead, in the anti-federalist view, is maintaining a true confederacy of smaller, localized, more classical and participatory democracies. Thus, George Mason expostulates the very idea of converting what was formerly a confederation to a consolidated government is totally subversive of every principle which has hitherto governed us. It is ascertained by history, he says, that there never was a government over a very extensive country without destroying the liberties of the people. History also, supported by the opinions of the best writers, shows us that popular governments can only exist in small territories. Is there a single example, he challenges the Federalists, on the face of the earth to support a contrary opinion? Was there ever an instance of a general national government extending over so extensive a country, abounding in such a variety of climates, etc., where the people retained their liberty? Now, in the next lecture, I want to elaborate more fully the rather complex Republican vision for America that the Anti-Federalists advocate, showing more concretely exactly how the Anti-Federalists draw upon and adapt and integrate key elements of the classical ideal. And then I'll turn to begin laying out the Federalist's answer and response. Lecture 3. The Anti-Federalist Republican Vision. In the last lecture, we saw how the Anti-Federalists make a qualified but still strong appeal to the classical Republican heritage. Qualified because the Anti-Federalists are by no means simply re classical Republicans. They share with the Federalists and with Americans generally a Republican vision that is much less communal, much more individualistic and commercial than the classical ideal. Their highest priority, shared with the Federalists, is the protection of individual rights and liberties. But the Anti-Federalists contend that precisely in order to protect those individualistic rights and liberties, substantial ingredients of the old classical ideal in its Montesquieuian democratic reformulation remain essential. 
As the Pennsylvania writer, who calls himself a federal Republican, puts it, Whatever the refinement of modern politics may inculcate, it still is certain that some degree of virtue must exist or freedom cannot live. The anti-federalist position is vividly illustrated by what they say as regards religion. Anti-federalists as well as federalists are committed to individual religious freedom and hence religious diversity. Yet, at the same time, the anti-federalists, like most Americans of the time, assume that the religious diversity would and should be a Christian and even a mainly Protestant diversity. And what's more, they are convinced that Protestant Christian piety and religious education in the populace are essential foundations for civic virtue and citizenship education. Without widespread belief in a God who stands behind law-abiding justice, sanctioning morality with rewards and punishments in a life to come, too many people are tempted, they think, to neglect their demanding civic duties for the sake of pursuing their selfish material interests. In the Constitutional Convention itself, Benjamin Franklin, in a major speech on June 28th, had pleaded unsuccessfully for the Convention to return to the prayerful piety that had helped inspire the Revolution. I have lived, Franklin declared, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, Franklin says. And I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded. And we ourselves shall become a reproach and byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance despair of establishing governments by human wisdom and leave it to chance, war, and conquest. Now the anti-federalists share Franklin's deep worry. And they warn that the proposed constitutional order will excessively diminish governmental support for this crucial role of Christian piety and religiously based virtue in civic life and education. And the anti-federalists point with dismay to the proposed constitution's stony silence on God and God's supreme authority, which is in striking contrast to the existing constitution the Articles of Confederation, which close with an acknowledgement of the ultimate political rule of God. And some of the Anti-Federalists are troubled by the proposed Constitution's outlawing of any religious test for holding office in Article 6, Section 3 of the Constitution. Thus, an Anti-Federalist who significantly signs himself with the biblical pen name Samuel protests that the President and Congress may consist, he says, of men of no principle, for no religion is required as any qualification to fill any and every seat. Moreover, one major reason why the Anti-Federalists argue that more power should be left to the states and localities is 
that they see state governments are better suited to provide government support through tax dollars for local Protestant sects. The sort of limited establishment of religion rooted in local community sentiment that already existed at that time in many of the states and that continued to exist well into the 19th century. These state establishments of religion were understood to go along with what the Maryland anti-federalist John Mercer terms local laws of morality. Laws that, as he puts it, would prohibit the abuse of wealth and institute a council of censors to punish offenders. On the model, he says, of the small Swiss federal republics, above all Calvinist Geneva. But the concern for government's support for religion and religiously based moral education is only one part of the reasons why the anti-federalists argue that the needed ingredients of the classical ideal will be better maintained by keeping the balance of power weighted more toward state and local government. Even more important, they argue, is the fact that at the state and local level, government is smaller in scale, hence less overbearing and domineering. By the same token, and still more important, government at the state and local level tends to involve the people more, to demand more from the people, thus keeping control in the people's hands, preventing and guarding against elite aristocratic tendencies. This popular participation in and thus control over the government is most widely activated through what Richard Henry Lee calls the people's just and rightful control in the judicial branch, that is, through their service on civil and criminal juries. And the Anti-Federalists warn that this proposed Constitution is going to contribute to a grave weakening of the people's democratic control over the judicial branch of the government by instituting a drastic diminution of the power of popular juries in America, which will mutilate, they say, what is perhaps the most important institution for participatory democracy. Now, to understand what the Anti-Federalists are getting at in this warning, we must bear in mind an important historical fact about what the power of juries was in America at that time. Juries at the time of the founding had not only the right and power to determine matters of fact in the case before them, but also the right and power to interpret the meaning of the law. And this was a right and power rooted in classical republicanism, but not only there, but also in English tradition, celebrated by Montesquieu, who interpreted the British Constitution as placing the judicial branch in the hands of the people through the supreme power of the popular juries. And it was above all this power in the juries to participate in interpreting the law and even to overrule judges' interpretations of the law that made juries key democratic checks on aristocratic judicial activism. And anti-federalists, like the federal farmer, correctly predicted and foresaw that under the proposed Constitution, juries will lose the right to interpret the meaning of the law. Juries will be limited, they said, and they were right, to judging only the facts of the case before them. And as regards the more important power to interpret the law, the Anti-Federalists correctly warn this basic, traditionally democratic power will be entirely handed over to the unelected judges, who will thus 
become a kind of aristocracy dominating the judicial branch. As John Mercer puts it, the jury, he says, is the democratic branch of the judiciary power and as such is even more necessary than representatives in the legislature. Why, Mercer asks, shall we risk this important check to judiciary usurpation provided by the wisdom of antiquity? It's by the attacks on private property through the judiciary that despotism becomes as irresistible as terrible, he writes. And in addition, making things even worse in their view, the anti-federalists see that these aristocratic federal courts are given under this Constitution the right to overturn local democratic jury verdicts, meaning to say that jury verdicts will no longer be final. The anti-federalists point out that by Article 3, Section 2, Clause 2 of the proposed Constitution, the Supreme Court is given, quote, appellate jurisdiction both as to law and fact. Now, it's of course not only the judicial branch of government that the anti-federalists see as best kept under local popular control. Equally important, they argue, is keeping the legislative branch under such control as much as possible. The anti-federalists argue that at the state level, elected representatives are more truly representative and responsive to the people's will, and for three major reasons, they argue. First, the state legislators meet at a place, the state capital, that is closer to the people and thus better observed by the people. Second, the state legislators tend to live more among the people and as a result are better known to the people in their personal lives and their character. And third, the state legislators tend to resemble or mirror better the people's own character. They tend less to be an elite that lives a lifestyle unlike that of the people. And here the anti-federalists in effect articulate a specific theory of what genuinely democratic representation ought to mean. Melanchthon Smith, the leading anti-federalist speaker and debate opponent of Hamilton in the New York Convention, puts it this way. The idea that naturally suggests itself to our minds when we speak of representatives is that they resemble those they represent. They should be a true picture of the people and sympathize in all their distresses. Or in the words of Samuel Chase, who had been a leader of the revolution in Maryland, a representative should be the image of those he represents. He should know their sentiments and their wants and their desires. He should possess their feelings. He should be governed by their interests, with which his own should be inseparably connected. And, the anti-federalists add, it's only such representatives, whom the people truly know as kindred spirits, that the people will readily obey and follow with trust. As Brutus says, the confidence which the people have in their rulers in a free republic arises from their knowing them. No one expressed the critical bite of the anti-federalist theory of representation better than an unknown Massachusetts writer who signed himself Cornelius. He put it this way, the members of our state legislature, he pointed out, are annually elected. They are subject to instructions. They are chosen within small circles. 
They are sent but a small distance from their respective homes. They frequently see and are seen by the men whose servants they are. They return and mix with their neighbors of the lowest rank, see their poverty, and feel their wants. On the contrary, the members of the proposed Congress are to be chosen for a term of years. They're to be subject to no instructions. They're to be chosen within large circles. They'll be unknown to a considerable part of their constituents, and their constituents will be not less unknown to them. They will be far removed and long detained from the view of their constituents. Their general conduct will be unknown. Their chief connections will be with men of the first rank in the United States, who've been bred in affluence at least, if not in the excess of luxury. Let anyone judge, he says, whether they will long retain the same ideas as their constituents. And finally, the Anti-Federalists also argue that if the power is kept more at the state and local level, then there's more likelihood of the elected representatives coming from the agrarian middle-class farmers, yeomen, as they put it, or small farmers who own their own land, who cannot easily afford to stand for office if they have to travel far away from their farms to serve for long periods in some distant national capital, but who are more likely to be able to serve if the seat of government is closer by and the meetings shorter or frequently interrupted. And having representatives who are yeomen tends to keep leaders, as well as the populace, less luxurious, more moderate in their love of money and in their wealth, making the leadership less tempted to luxurious greed and ambition, and making the populace less likely to divide into hostile classes separated by vast disparities of wealth and economic interest, thus preserving more of that classical homogeneity and similarity of lifestyle that's needed for fraternal and communal spirit. Where, as the writer who signs himself, Cato says in his third letter, acquaintance, habits, and fortunes nourish affection and attachment. Or as Brutus says in his first essay, in a republic, the manners, sentiments, and interests of the people should be similar. If this be not the case, there'll be a constant clashing of opinions, and the representatives of one part will be continually striving against those of another. Echoing a major thesis of Aristotle's politics, Melanchthon Smith, in debating Alexander Hamilton in the New York Ratifying Convention, said, Those in middling circumstances have less temptation. They're inclined by habit and the company with whom they associate to set bounds to their passions and appetites. If this is not sufficient, the want of means to gratify them will be a restraint. They're obliged to employ their time in their respective callings. Hence, the substantial yeomanry of the country are more temperate, of better morals, and less ambition than the great. The latter do not feel for the poor and middling class. A representative body, composed principally of respectable yeomanry, is the best possible security to liberty. The interest of both the rich and the poor are involved in that of the middling class. No burden can be laid on the poor but what will sensibly affect the middling class. And any law rendering property insecure would be injurious to the rich. When therefore this yeoman class in society pursue their own interest, they promote that of the public, for it is involved in it. 
But in addition to promoting moderate wealth and similarity and fellow feeling, the leadership of yeoman farmers at the state and local level will bring yet another great civic good, the Anti-Federalists argue. It will tend to instill throughout society the healthy influence of people who are more economically self-sufficient and thus more independent in spirit. No one expressed this thought more eloquently than Thomas Jefferson, who characterized himself in a famous letter as neither Federalist nor Anti-Federalist, who, in other words, saw himself as straddling the great debate and seeing wisdom in both sides. Jefferson's most important and somewhat classical-sounding pronouncement on the moral superiority of putting power in local government dominated by the small farmers is found in the one book he ever published, Notes on the State of Virginia, which was published in the same year as the Federalist and during the constitutional debates. There Jefferson says, in a famous passage, those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God, if ever he had a chosen people, whose breasts he has made his peculiar deposit for substantial and genuine virtue. It is the focus in which he keeps alive that sacred fire, which otherwise might escape from the face of the earth. Corruption of morals in the mass of cultivators is a phenomenon of which no age nor nation has furnished an example. It is the mark set on those who, not looking up to heaven, to their own soil and industry, as does the husbandman, which is a term Jefferson uses for the farmer, for their subsistence, depend for it on the casualties and caprice of customers. Dependence begets subservience and venality, suffocates the germ of virtue, and prepares fit tools for the designs of ambition. This, the natural progress and consequence of the arts, has sometimes perhaps been retarded by accidental circumstances, but, generally speaking, the proportion which the aggregate of the other classes of citizens bears in any state to that of its husbandmen is the proportion of its unsound to its healthy parts and is a good enough barometer whereby to measure its degree of corruption. While we have land to labor, then, let us never wish to see our citizens occupied at a workbench. Let our workshops remain in Europe. It is better to carry provisions and materials to workmen there than bring them to the provisions and materials and with them their manners and principles. The loss by the transportation of commodities across the Atlantic will be made up in happiness and permanence of government. The mobs of great cities add just so much to the support of pure government as sores do to the strength of the human body. It is the manners and spirit of a people which preserve a republic in vigor. A degeneracy in these is a canker which soon eats to the heart of its laws and constitution. Now, at this point, with the Anti-Federalist critique laid out, it's time for us to turn to consider the arguments and grounds upon which the Federalist Papers take their stand in response. And to begin with, what we see as we open the Federalist and read on through the first few papers is that their rhetorical strategy is not one of defense, 
but rather of offense, of counterattack on a new flank. They launch their counterattack by an initial shift of focus, change of subject. The Federalist Papers begin not by taking up and responding to the challenge laid down by the Anti-Federalists as to how Republican liberty is to be maintained in domestic civil life. Instead, Publius switches the subject to national security, switches the spotlight to the necessities of national defense and foreign policy, and argues that these are the necessities that most obviously require a much more consolidated and powerful central government. And if we look at the actual text of the Constitution itself, and we see that of the 18 enumerated powers given to the national legislature in Article 1, Section 8, fully half of those pertain to defense and foreign affairs. The argument on this basis of national security starts with John Jay pointing out in the third paper that in order not to give other nations plausibly just causes for conflict with America, the country as a whole and all its citizens must faithfully observe international law and custom, and especially all sworn treaty obligations. And such fidelity is much more likely, he argues, with a unified central government that can authoritatively and reliably control all foreign relations and exercise its authority directly on individual citizens as well as on state and local governments. Doing so not only, he argues, through a powerful legislature and executive, but also through a national judiciary whose interpretations of law in relation to foreigners are final and binding on everyone. In the absence of such a strong centralized government, Jay argues, the different states and even individuals in each state are all too likely, as is happening right now, Jay says, to be tempted by their immediate and local interests to vary widely and provocatively in the way they interpret and abide by international obligations and are all too likely to drag the whole rest of the nation into wars over what are essentially local quarrels inflamed by local passions in regard to Indian tribes as well as bordering European empires. Besides, Jay argues, a strong central government will tend to draw to it leaders who are more prudent and far-sighted as regards foreign affairs, leaders who will, by the great responsibilities of their national offices, tend to have a broader and less parochial regard for the overall interests of the whole country. And in addition, will be able to negotiate with foreign powers from a position of greater strength and hence advantage. What's more, Jay goes on to argue in the fourth paper, a strong central government will deter foreign powers from being tempted to take advantage of the weakness, disunity, and fractiousness of a looser confederacy. And there will be plenty of occasions for such temptations, Jay warns. And later, Hamilton warns about this danger of fractiousness even more emphatically, especially in papers 11 and 24. America's seafaring commerce already, Hamilton says, excites great rivalry from European commercial powers who would like, Hamilton says in his words, to clip the wings on which we might soar to a dangerous greatness. And European manufacturing powers will want access to, and if possible, 
dominance over the growing consumer market within America, Hamilton warns. And the Spanish and British empires surround America and dominate the West Indies. Now, Jay and Hamilton argue, if we are going to effectively deter these great European commercial empires from exercising domination through intimidation over us, then we must put power in this central government to raise and maintain unified naval and land forces of whatever size may be judged necessary. And this military power in the central government must include the ability to organize and regulate and employ the state militias, and as Jay puts it, in a manner consolidate them into one corps, referring to Article 1, Section 8, Clause 16 of the Constitution, which indicates just that. But this power must also include, Jay argues, the authority to maintain a standing professional national army as well as a navy in peacetime. Now, as Hamilton makes much clearer in the subsequent papers 12 and later especially papers 30 through 36, the central government cannot have these powers without having also what he calls the unlimited power of taxation, which is necessary to raise the revenues upon which a powerful military defense can be built. And we notice that the very first of the enumerated powers given to the national legislature under Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution is the taxation power. The Constitution views the taxation power as the primary power of government. In this opening argument, Jay and Hamilton have in effect elaborated the standard set by the exigencies of foreign affairs and national security, by which, they contend, one must judge the adequacy of the powers of any government for America. And by this standard, Hamilton proceeds in the papers starting with number 15, to judge as grossly inadequate the existing Articles of Confederation. And more importantly, and more generally, he and then Madison go on to argue that on this basis, on the basis of the needs of national security, there is a decisive inadequacy in any and all Confederate systems throughout all past history, all past history. All Confederacies, such as are envisioned as ideal by the Anti-Federalists, they argue, have been disasters from the point of view of national security and foreign and defense policy. In the next lecture, we'll follow the elaboration of this critique of confederation on the basis primarily of the needs of national security. And then we'll look to see how the anti-federalists respond or what is their conception of the needs of foreign policy and defense. Lecture 4, The Argument Over National Security. At the end of the last lecture, we began to see the initial strategy and substance of the Federalist reply to the Anti-Federalist attack. Whereas the Anti-Federalists attack focusing on the dangers that the proposed constitutional system poses to Republican freedom in domestic civic life. The Federalist response begins not with a defense responding to this attack, but instead by launching a counterattack on a different front. The Federalist Papers 
start off by shifting the spotlight chiefly to the necessities of national security. And this choice of emphasis on the exigencies of foreign more than on those of domestic policy continues through the first half of the Federalist Papers, the part of the papers that's devoted to the general overall thematic argument for the new Constitution. Now, to be sure, even though they stress foreign and defense policy, Hamilton and Madison do not neglect domestic or internal policy. Publius treats as very important the regulation and facilitation of interstate commerce and the maintenance of domestic peace and security. But even these major domestic concerns are treated as continuous with, if not subordinate to, the concerns of foreign policy. And this is made especially clear in the two authoritative brief statements of the main purposes of the proposed Constitutional Union. One is given by Hamilton at the start of paper 23, and the other is given by Madison near the beginning of paper 41. And if one examines each of those passages, one sees that they list the purposes of the new Constitution in such a way as to make it clear that the chief purposes revolve around national security and foreign affairs. And it's on this ground of foreign and defense policy, primarily, that the Federalist Papers proceed to elaborate in Papers 15 and following a critique of the total inadequacy, in their view, of the existing constitutional system under the Articles of Confederation. And then Publius moves on the basis of that critique of the existing Constitution to a more general critique of federalism or confederacies altogether, chiefly on grounds of national security. Publius sums up the worst features of the contemporary state of things under the Articles of Confederation in the 15th Federalist Paper. It's a summary which he elaborates in previous as well as subsequent papers, and especially in papers numbers 22 and 24. And to appreciate fully all that Publius is referring to, we need to flesh out his allusions to what is actually going on in foreign affairs at this time, in 1787. First and foremost, the United States are in violation of their obligations to England under the peace treaty that ended the Revolutionary War especially obligations to return or to pay for property taken from Loyalists during the war. During the Revolution, thousands of Loyalists lost their property in confiscations of all kinds. And it was a solemn promise in the treaty that ended the Revolution that that property would be restored or paid for by the Americans. And the existing Congress is simply unable to compel the states and the individuals in the states to abide by or fulfill those solemn obligations. And this is giving the British an excuse, and more than an excuse, a justification for not upholding their end of the treaty. The British have refused to abandon their forts in United States territory, forts which stretch a thousand miles from Lake Champlain to Lake Superior. The British are also refusing to disband thousands of Tories who are in armed camps on the northern borders. And worst of all, 
the British are supporting large, hostile Indian tribes like the Iroquois. And they're doing all this with the perfect justification excuse of saying, look, we aren't going to disband the armed camps of Tories until you give the Tories back what you promised to give them. Meanwhile, in the South and West, despite treaties with Spain, that European power continues in violation of those treaties to forbid American access to the entire Mississippi River. And still worse, to maintain forts and Indian allies that in effect control much of the territory of Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, Kentucky. The United States, Publius points out, can raise no adequate armed forces to defend any of these borders, north, south, or west. The entire national armed forces consists of 700 men, many of them without boots or ammunition. Even though Congress has voted to raise and equip a large army, but Congress cannot get the states to give any of the money to do so. And for defense on the seas and the coasts, Hamilton points out, there's no national navy whatsoever. America doesn't have a single ship, which leaves shipping completely unprotected. Our shipping is at present, Hamilton points out, prey to Barbary pirates. And with a great naval war looming in Europe between France and England, this leaves American shipping vulnerable to all sorts of hostile pressures from both sides in this inevitably coming war. In addition to all this, Publius stresses, the United States is totally unable to pay its debts incurred during the Revolution. Both foreign and domestic creditors and bondholders are just not being paid. And hence the nation has no credit. And hence can't borrow a dime for all kinds of needed funds and projects. And the result of all this taken together, Publius points out, is that no foreign country will even consider entering into negotiations with this new United States to make all sorts of needed additional treaties for the sake of commerce and security. Our credit is at nil, Hamilton says, and our credibility is also at nil. And Hamilton and Madison then proceed to argue that these gross failings are not the result of some incidental or secondary mistakes in the design of the system that can be somehow remedied by amendments that will make a better confederacy or better conf confederation. No, they contend, this recent American experience is only a vivid present illustration of the grave general weaknesses with all confederations. The fundamental weakness of confederation as Hamilton puts it at the start of paper 16, is equally attested by the events which have befallen all other governments of the Confederate kind. And Hamilton and Madison support this by a careful analysis in papers 16 through 20 of the entire recorded history of confederacies, stretching from ancient Greece to the contemporary Netherlands. And they try to show that at the core of all the failures of confederacies throughout history is what Hamilton calls their great and radical vice, which is the predominance of this principle, that the federal or central government cannot legislate for or exercise command over 
or raise taxes from the individual citizens directly, but can only act on and command and seek revenue from the member state governments, which latter alone have the right to act on and rule directly the individual citizens. That's the principle of a confederation. And that principle is destructive, Hamilton says. Hamilton argues that the predominance of this pernicious principle inevitably leads to one of two disastrous outcomes. What Hamilton calls either the natural death of the Confederacy, or as he puts it, the violent death of the Confederacy. And that's what's going to happen to us and is already happening, he says. Now, by the natural death, he means, the Confederacy sooner or later dissolves. And that results because the central government cannot enforce its laws and commands and judicial decisions. And so, as Hamilton puts it, these laws become mere recommendations to the state governments, dependent for their effect on the voluntary acquiescence of each state, one by one, with the result that they're more and more ignored. And this naturally happens, Hamilton says, on account of two things. First, what he calls the proud and selfish love of power that tends to inspirit each independent state government. And also, on account of the reluctance each state has, even if it has good intentions, to be the first to make the sacrifices of its own narrow interests for the good of the whole. Now, the other alternative outcome, Hamilton says, is what he calls the violent death of confederacies. And that occurs where the central government finally decides it has got to resort to armed force to compel the states and creates some kind of confederal police force or standing army that is independent of the states with which to control or intimidate the member state governments into compliance. And the consequence of that is civil war. Endless civil strife between the state militias and the central military, leading eventually to somebody's despotism. Either a despotism exercised by the central government with some kind of dominating elite military power, or a despotism of a central government that has actually become the tool of one or more of the biggest and most powerful states who have won out in the fratricidal struggle, or as the tool of some great outside power which has been invited to intervene by some of the weaker losing states in the fratricidal struggle. If you look at the history of confederacies, Publius argues, you will find no other alternatives than these that we've just laid out. And confederacies have been able to postpone one of these fates only to the degree to which they have learned this lesson. And that is the need to create a strong central government to which they give the power to command and tax individual citizens directly and not have to go through the state governments. Now, the full reach and radicalism of this argument becomes clear only when we put it together with what Publius is arguing concerning the precise extent of this power that has to be given to the central government over individuals to allow it to meet the needs of foreign policy and national security especially. Because in this context, Publius makes no bones about declaring 
that the powers that the central government must be given in order to carry out its national security responsibilities have to be unlimited, without any limit. These powers, he declares in paper 23, ought to exist without limitation because it is impossible to foresee or to define the extent and variety of national exigencies and the correspondent extent and variety of the means which may be necessary to satisfy them. The circumstances that endanger the safety of nations are infinite, Hamilton says. And for this reason, no constitutional shackles can wisely be imposed on the power to which the care of it is committed. There can be no limitation, he says, of that authority, which is to provide for the defense and protection of the community in any matter essential to its efficacy. So the founders, Publius and Madison, make it very clear, make no mistake, they say, we are creating under this Constitution a government which will have unlimited authority to do whatever it thinks necessary for national security. There is no constitutional limitation on that. And to make the economic point very clear, Hamilton subsequently makes explicit in papers 30 and 31 that this means the central government must have what he calls an unrestrained power of taxation over every individual. In other words, the central government must have the power to tax people to the hilt if necessary. Now, Hamilton acknowledges that, as he puts it, the antagonists of the proposed Constitution seem to make their principal and most zealous effort against this part of the plan. And that is certainly true. Thus, the anti-federalist who signs himself Brutus says in his eighth essay, these powers taken in connection amount to this, that the general government have unlimited authority and control over all the wealth and all the force of the Union. What kind of freedom or independency is left to the state governments when they cannot command any part of the property or the force of the country but at the will of Congress? In response, Hamilton insists on what he calls the sheer irresistible, as he puts it, logic of the proposition that, as he puts it in paper 31, there ought to be no limitation of a power destined to affect a purpose which is itself incapable of limitation. Or as Madison later in paper 41 explains, if a federal constitution could chain the ambition or set bounds to the exertions of all other nations, then indeed might it prudently chain the discretion of its own government and set bounds to the exertions of its own safety. But that's a foolish dream, Madison says. You have to be totally irresponsible to think that in foreign policy you can put limits on what your government can and should do to provide for national security when you face, as they've said earlier, the infinity of what evil enemies could do. So it's simply impossible to think that way, Madison says, and therefore it was necessary he continues, to give an indefinite power 
of raising troops, as well as providing fleets, and of maintaining both in peace as well as in war. So this is another crucial factor that is driven home by Hamilton and Madison. We're not just talking about wartime, they say. In peacetime, too, the federal government under this Constitution is being given the authority to do anything it wants and needs to do in its judgment that is necessary for national security. And both Hamilton and Madison stress in this context that, as Hamilton says in paper 34, we must bear in mind that we are not to confine our view to the present period, but to look forward to remote futurity, the probable exigencies of ages. And in this light, Hamilton says, the exigencies of the Union could be susceptible of no limits even in the imagination. That's how strong he goes. You can't imagine, he says, what the limits are that we're giving to the government. There are no imagined limits, because there are no imagined limits to the threats we may have to face. Now, what kind of a response do the anti-federalist writings make to this whole line of remarkable argument concerning the unlimited requirements of national security and foreign and defense policy? Well, to begin with, one finds among the anti-federalists a deep tendency to discount the gravity of the dangers posed by, and therefore the degree of importance that the Federalists give to national security, foreign policy, defense, at least for the American situation in the foreseeable future. And this is an important difference between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. Typically, the Anti-Federalists will argue, well, in the foreseeable future, why should we need a large navy and standing army? And Hamilton, as we've just seen in the quote I've read, of course comes back and saying, we have to think for a long future. And who knows what this nation is going to have to face? But the federal farmer, for example, in his first letter says, we're in a state of perfect peace and in no danger of any invasions. The state governments are in the full exercise of their powers. And our governments answer all present exigencies. And similarly, Patrick Henry proclaims, On a fair investigation, we shall be found to be surrounded by no real dangers. Our political and natural hemisphere are now equally tranquil. The Anti-Federalists typically stress America's isolated position, separated by oceans from the European powers. So thus Brutus says in his seventh essay, some of the European nations, it's true, have provinces bordering upon us, but from these, unsupported by their European forces, we have nothing to apprehend. If any of them should attack us, they will have to transport their armies across the Atlantic at immense expense, while we should defend ourselves in our own country, which abounds with every necessary of life. In the second place, the Anti-Federalists argue that when defensive warfare is required, healthy republics can and should put their trust in the fighting spirit of the civilian population, organized in local volunteer state militias. And they stress the intimidating proof that America has given to Europe through the defeat of Great Britain in the Revolutionary War of the defensive powers of such citizen militias. They argue, look, we have just defeated the largest empire in history in a great war. 
through our citizen militias. There's your empirical proof that we can rely on them. Thus, Patrick Henry expostulates in one of his great orations in the Virginia Ratifying Convention, Happily for us, there's no real danger from Europe. You may sleep in safety forever for them. Where's the danger? If there was any, I would recur to the American spirit to defend us. That spirit which has enabled us to surmount the greatest difficulties. We have the animating fortitude and persevering alacrity of Republican men to carry us through misfortunes and calamities. It's the fortune of a free people not to be intimidated by imaginary dangers. Fear is the passion of slaves. And here we see struck a classical keynote of the anti-federalist outlook. What a sound republic ought to be relying on militarily is what the great old classical republics relied on, the superior martial spirit of a virtuous republican citizenry organized and trained in local citizen militias. George Mason best articulated the argument in a speech he gave in the Constitutional Convention on June 4th. The pervading principle in republican government, he said, is to be found in the love, the affection, the attachment of the citizens to their laws, to their freedom, and to their country. Every husbandman will be quickly converted into a soldier when he knows and feels that he is to fight not in defense of the rights of a particular family or a prince, but his own. It was this which in ancient times enabled that little cluster of Grecian republics to resist and almost constantly to defeat the Persian monarch. It was this which supported the states of Holland against a body of veteran troops through a thirty years' war with Spain, then the greatest monarchy in Europe, and finally rendered them victorious. It is this which preserves the freedom and independence of the Swiss cantons in the midst of the most powerful nations. And who that reflects seriously upon the situation of America in the beginning of the late war, without soldiers, without trade, money, or credit, in a manner destitute of all resources, but must ascribe our success to this pervading, all-powerful principle. And the militias, the anti-federalists argue, should in peacetime remain, as the federal farmer puts it in his 18th letter, solely managed by the states, except, he adds, when called into the service of the Union, and when called into that service, they may be commanded and governed by the Union. This arrangement, he argues, combines energy and safety in it. It places the sword in the hands of the solid interest of the community, and not in the hands of men who form the select corps. By it, the militia are the people, and render regular troops in a great measure unnecessary, he argues. Now, the federal farmer does not and cannot deny the need for some regular or professional troops on guard duties in the border fortresses. But like other anti-federalists, he warns repeatedly and passionately of the dangerous power given to the federal government under this proposed Constitution's Article 1, Section 8, Clause 12, of establishing a full-scale standing army in peacetime, a permanent professional peacetime army. 
which the anti-federalists decry as the basis for a separate military establishment opposed to the interest of the civilian population. Thus, the writer who signs himself John DeWitt, evoking the great Dutch hero of the Dutch resistance to the Spanish, writes, What historians have asserted, all the Grecian republics have verified. Professional armies are brought up to obedience and unconditional submission. They are excluded from the enjoyments which liberty gives to its votaries. They, in consequence, hate and envy the rest of the community. Now, the most thoughtful among the anti-federalists cannot deny that, in the words of the federal farmer in his second letter, powers nearly, if not altogether, complete and unlimited over the purse and the sword must be lodged somewhere in every society. But, he continues, then they should be lodged where the strength and guardians of the people are collected. And that is not in the central government, but rather in state and local government. It's just too dangerous, he argues. And it isn't necessary, he insists, to bestow permanent, unlimited military and taxation powers on the central government. Instead, what is prudent, he argues, is to grant the central government only limited powers in this regard, keeping the unlimited powers closer to the people in their state militias and local governments, which can, in the event of emergencies or the emergence of grave international threats, temporarily grant to the central government emergency or time-limited greater taxation or military powers. Patrick Henry, for example, speaking in the Virginia Convention, evoked the example of the Roman dictators and argued that George Washington, during the Revolution, was in effect a dictator. Why not adopt that model and put that into a better constitution? Keep the power of the military in the states, but give a provision that in times of national emergency, a dictator can be created for a temporary time period of a certain number of months on the model of George Washington, who will have personal power to requisition any and all troops and monies that he might need for that time period. That way you're not giving enormous powers to the government, except in real emergencies, and only in emergencies that the states and people all agree are real emergencies. And more generally, the anti-federalists argue it's just too dangerous to design the powers of the central government with a view to and for the sake of possible emergencies and extreme contingencies in the distant future, as Hamilton argues. The anti-federalists stress that it's a universal experience, that governments always tend to maximize whatever taxation and spending powers are given to them. Therefore, it's safest to give to government at the start the least power possible. As Melanchthon Smith puts it, it's a general maxim that all governments find a use for as much money as they can raise. And Alexander Hamilton himself, in Federalist Paper Number 30, dares to write the following, and he even puts it in italics. 
I believe it may be regarded as a position warranted by the history of mankind that in the usual progress of things, the necessities of a nation in every stage of its existence will be found at least equal to its resources. Now notice here, Hamilton is not saying what you might expect him to say, that a nation's resources will be enough to meet its necessities. No, no, he says the necessities will grow to meet the resources. In other words, he's saying whatever power a government has, it will use and find a good reason for using. And then that's what's embedded in this Constitution, and that's what we mean to go with. Something that seems ominous to the anti-federalists, that whatever a nation regards as necessary will expand with its resources and power to do what it can do. The more power a government has, the more need it will find for its power. Now, this kind of language and thinking spurs the suspicion, which is repeatedly voiced by the anti-federalists, that the Federalists, in their stress on the extraordinary demands of national security, of foreign and defense policy, are not merely thinking of defense of American liberty, but are in some measure falling prey to the enchantment of visions of national glory, power, and even empire or imperial greatness, which is a temptation, the Anti-Federalists warn, that as Roman history proves, will sound the death knell of small-scale Republican freedom and virtue. If we admit this consolidated government, Patrick Henry warns, it will be because we like a great, splendid one. Some way or other, we must be a great and mighty empire. We must have an army and a navy and a number of things. When the American spirit was in its youth, the language of America was different. Liberty, sir, was then the primary object. Now, it's undeniably true that the Federalist Papers do speak of the need for a certain degree of national greatness in the international arena, including, they make no bones about it, a hegemony over the entire Western Hemisphere, in order, Hamilton argues, to end the European hegemony there and to keep European intervention minimal. In Federalist Paper 11, a paper devoted to arguing for a powerful American Navy, Hamilton closes with a remarkable passage in which he pregnantly hints that he has in mind things that he is not expressing fully, things that will become clear only in the future, after the new constitutional system is underway, and he practically anticipates what would later become the famous Monroe Doctrine. I shall briefly observe, he writes, that our situation invites and our interests prompt us to aim at an ascendant in the system of American affairs. Europe, by her arms and by her negotiations, by force and by fraud, has in different degrees extended her dominion over Africa, Asia, and America. Facts have too long supported these arrogant pretensions of the European. It belongs to us to vindicate the honor of the human race and to teach that assuming brother moderation. Union will enable us to do it. Let Americans disdain to be the instruments of European greatness. Let the 13 states bound together in a strict and indissoluble union 
concur in erecting one great American system, superior to the control of all transatlantic force or influence, and able to dictate the terms of the connection between the old and the new world. More generally, Publius insists that security, both physical and financial, depends on gaining the respect of other nations, especially the European great powers. And what those European powers respect above all, Hamilton says, is military and economic power prudently managed. In the next lecture, we'll step back and evaluate this part of the great debate, the argument over what is required for national security. And we'll see how there comes to sight here a deep dilemma that haunts the anti-federalist position. Lecture 5, The Deep Difficulties in Each Position. At the end of the last lecture, we saw the anti-federalist reply to the powerful federalist argument that asserts the need for unlimited military and hence taxation powers being vested in the central government for the sake of national security. The anti-federalist retort that the federalists overstate the foreign dangers, at least for the foreseeable future. And in the second place, the anti-federalists charge that the proposed constitution underestimates the efficacy and importance of military power being kept firmly rooted in local citizen militias. With a view to defense against both foreign threats and with a view to the internal threat from military despotism that would be imposed by a professional standing national army. And the proof that a state-controlled citizen militia can do the job if local civic virtue is animated is the fact, they say, that it was this militia that carried us through the revolution to victory. So here again, we see, as regards national security, the anti-federalists invoking the key role of popular virtue. And the anti-federalists are willing to concede that, yes, in the distant and unforeseeable future, dangerous circumstances may well arise that will require, for a time at least, a more engaged foreign policy and a more active and powerful military. But, they insist, it's safer to leave this to be handled in the future through emergency grants of power to the central government for temporary time periods to face dangers that are recognized by the whole people through their state governments. But to this, the Federalists reply by questioning forcefully whether the anti-Federalists then are really facing up to what national security truly requires. In effect, the Federalists say, look, you anti-Federalists have to admit that in the future, national emergencies caused by foreign threats are almost sure to occur. But you're unwilling or unable to explain how they can be constitutionally provided or prepared for. You ask us to wait for emergencies and then concoct emergency powers. We need a constitution that gives the legal powers to government to meet any and all emergencies. 
And indeed, if one looks back, turning to the anti-federalist writings, to see what exactly they sketch or propose, when one looks at their alternative sketches of constitutional plans that some among the anti-federalists do indicate or lay out, those, for instance, in the letters of Agrippa written by James Winthrop, or a sketch that is developed in the essays of Candidus, probably written by Samuel Adams or his follower, Benjamin Austin, what one finds is that it's indeed striking how flimsy is the provision these plans make for defense and foreign policy. And especially revealing, Hamilton and Madison contend, of their impracticality, as well as uh, a touch of paranoia, Hamilton says, in the whole anti-federalist position, is this reliance on militias that they keep harping on, combined with their rejection and, and from Hamilton and Madison's point of view, excessive fear of a standing professional peacetime army, which Hamilton and Madison insist can be pretty small most of the time. The Federalists don't deny that there is some danger to a professional peacetime army. Uh, Madison, in paper 41, admits in his words that a standing force is dangerous. But, he immediately adds, at the same time, it may be a necessary provision. Hamilton is even stronger in his attack on the attempt to rely exclusively on a citizen militia for America. Hamilton rejects this whole anti-federalist appeal to the model provided by the Greco-Roman citizen armies of the great classical republics. He argues that this is really inapplicable to the spirit and way of life that is going to characterize Americans. He insists we are planning for a modern commercial society. We are not planning for a society such as characterized early Republican Rome or Sparta or Athens or Carthage. We're thinking of a society, as he puts it in paper number eight, in which, in his words, the industrious habits of the people of the present day, absorbed in the pursuits of gain and devoted to the improvements of agriculture and commerce, are incompatible with the condition of a nation of soldiers, which was the true condition, he says, of the people of those republics, meaning the Greco-Roman republics. Now, in the second place, Hamilton challenges as somewhat mythic the claim made by the Anti-Federalists, that the revolution was won by relying mainly on state militia forces. He admits that the militia forces fought well and made a substantial contribution. But in papers 22 and 25, speaking from his own military experience as Washington's chief aide-de-camp for a long time, in which he served in effect as the chief of staff of the revolutionary forces, Hamilton speaks authoritatively to the effect that there was indeed an attempt at the beginning of the revolution to rely exclusively on state militias. And, he reminds his readers, the results proved disastrous. What resulted, he recounts, were, in his words, slow and scanty levies of men in the most critical 
emergencies of our affairs, short enlistments at an unparalleled expense, continual fluctuations in the troops, ruinous to their discipline, and subjecting the public safety, frequently, to the perilous crisis of a disbanded army. In other words, Hamilton points out, these state militiamen, for all their enthusiasm, came for relatively short periods of time, had to go back home to their farms and did go back home, and on their way home often were rather riotous. So in effect, summing up, Hamilton says, this doctrine, that is, the doctrine that would rely on state militias, had like, he says, to have lost us our independence. It cost millions that might have been saved. In other words, it was very expensive, he says, to continually be rehiring, retraining the state militiamen. And what we really learned in the revolution, Hamilton insists, is that, as he puts it, the steady operations of war against a regular and disciplined army can only be successfully conducted by a force of the same kind. And he goes on to say, the American militia, in the course of the late war, have, by their valor, on numerous occasions, erected eternal monuments to their fame. But the bravest of them feel and know that the liberty of their country could not have been established by their efforts alone, however great and valuable they were. In other words, Hamilton points out, it was only because Washington, with the help of people like Baron von Steuben from Europe, was finally able to create a regular national army with long enlistment periods, disciplined and kept together and organized in the way that the professional armies of Europe were organized, that he was finally able to begin to meet the British in the field and defeat them in pitched battles. And let us not forget, Hamilton said, that even all that would never have been enough to win the revolution without the very great help from the French professional navy and professional army. And then in the last uh, place, Publius gives three arguments answering this fear of the anti-federalists that a professional standing army must necessarily threaten to subvert the republic. In the first place, Hamilton and Madison insist, especially at the end of paper 8 and then in paper 41, that the American standing army can remain quite small during peacetime unless a grave threat looms. So long, that is, as the central government remains strong and energetic because that very strength and energy will deter foreign powers. They will see that this is a government that can, whenever it wishes, enlarge its professional army through calling on the state militias. Then in the second place, Hamilton and Madison both stress, especially in papers 29 and 46, that the state militias are not at all meant to be disbanded, but are emphatically and explicitly endorsed in the new Constitution. In Article 1, Section 8, Clauses 15 and 16, the militia is specifically maintained, and it is explicitly said that the officers of the militia are to be selected by the state governments. And if these state militias, they say, are well-trained and organized, they will remain there as armed citizen bodies, standing as a check to the small professional army in peacetime even though they are indeed under the command of the central government when needed. For, as Hamilton puts it, 
in paper 26, the state legislatures, in his words, will always be not only vigilant, but suspicious and jealous guardians who can mobilize and lead popular resistance to any despotic projects based on a professional army. And in this regard, Publius evokes in paper 25 what he speaks of as the healthy jealousy, as he puts it, and suspicion that the populace will and ought to have toward any military establishment of the central government. Now, of course, this means that Publius and the Federalists claim that the anti-Federalist prediction that someday the militias will all be turned into some national guard that will be a centralized wing of the army are completely false. They claim that that is unconstitutional and would never happen. And here again we see, of course, a very strong place where the anti-Federalist prediction was absolutely correct, although it took a long time to happen. But in the third place, still arguing against the danger of a professional army, Publius highlights the institutional mechanisms that the Constitution provides within the central government to ensure civilian control over the military. Control over the military, they point out, is lodged ultimately not in the hands of the president or the executive, even though he is commander-in-chief, but in the hands of the legislature, which outweighs the executive in military affairs because the Constitution explicitly says that it is only the legislature that is empowered to raise armies. And it is only the legislature which can appropriate money from the taxes to pay for the armies by Article 1, Section 8, Clause 12. And that same clause, they point out, forbids any such money being appropriated for any military purpose for a period longer than two years. And that ensures, Hamilton argues, that at least every other year there will be a debate in the legislature over the military budget. Now, this whole argument that we have been considering over the defense establishment which the Union requires is one powerful wedge by which Publius, the Federalist Papers, press a deeper and broader challenge that they lay down to the anti-Federalists from the very first Federalist Paper. And at this point, we're in a position to understand better this challenge. In effect, Publius asks his opponents the following. Do you anti-Federalists really have, can you really articulate, any realistic alternative to one of two possibilities? Either we have to have this proposed Constitution with its much more consolidated union, or something like it, or isn't the only other alternative splitting up the union, dismemberment, as Hamilton calls it in the close of the first paper. In other words, Jay and Hamilton, at the start, pointedly ask whether the opponents of the proposed Constitution really believe wholeheartedly in a union or in a united states, or whether they are not really at hot heart, at bottom, in favor of disunion, splitting up the union of the 13 states into some smaller independent republics. Now, from the outset, the Federalist Papers push this challenge in a manner that must strike us as being unfair and even as involving stooping to some rather low rhetorical tactics. Because from the very start, 
Hamilton and Jay lodge the polemical accusation that at least some of the opponents of this proposed constitution are secretly agitating in a conspiracy to split the United States up into several smaller confederations or even into 13 independent states, which, Hamilton then goes on to argue in the 6th through the 8th papers, will likely lead to eventual war among the states or these new separate confederacies. And in the long run, that, he argues, will lead them all to become the weak victims of European imperial interference and domination. Now, as one might expect, this accusation with which the Federalist Papers starts, that there is a conspiracy afoot to split up the Union, is indignantly rejected by the Anti-Federalists, who insist over and over again that they love the Union, that they love the United States just as much as do the Federalists. And some of the Anti-Federalists angrily retort that this whole problem of the threat of a disunion or a dismemberment is a non-problem, a trumped-up red herring. Thus, Sentinel, in his 11th letter, writes as following, This dread of our splitting into separate confederacies or republics that might become rival powers is a specter that has been raised to terrify and alarm the people out of the exercise of their judgment on this great occasion. This hobgoblin, he says, appears to have sprung from the deranged brain of Publius and is totally inapplicable to the subject he was professedly treating. He has wasted more paper in combating chimeras of his own creation. But despite such justifiably angry protestations on the part of the Anti-Federalists, one can nevertheless discern an important kernel of truth underlying this unfair conspiracy charge put forth by Jay and Hamilton. Because their warnings ring a somewhat fairer and more plausible sound insofar as they express them in the more moderate way that Hamilton does at the end of paper 23, where he suggests that the dismemberment of the Union into smaller confederacies is not the wished for, but rather the necessary, even if undesired, implication of the anti-federalist argument and position against a strong consolidated Union. Hamilton points out in the Ninth Federalist Paper the dilemma Americans would be put into if they followed the anti-federalist appeal to Montesquieu and his vision of republics that insist that republics must be small and participatory. If we really take that seriously, Hamilton says in the Ninth Federalist Paper, if we stick to this Montesquieuian framework, we will have to break up most of the existing states, including New York, because they're already too large. In other words, Hamilton points out Montesquieu is thinking of small, polis, city-state-like societies as one found in Greece or Rome or in the Italian states of the Middle Ages or in the Swiss cantons. That whole model is much smaller than most of the United States except maybe Rhode Island. So if you're going to go in that direction, Hamilton says in the ninth paper, you better plan to start splitting up states like Virginia and New York. And that will be a nightmare. As Hamilton puts it, when Montesquieu recommends a small extent for republics, the standards he had in view were of dimensions far short of the limits 
of almost every one of these states. If we therefore receive his ideas on this point as the criterion of truth, we shall be driven to the alternative, either of taking refuge at once in the arms of monarchy, or of splitting ourselves into an infinity of little, jealous, clashing, tumultuous commonwealths, the wretched nurseries of unceasing discord, and the miserable objects of universal pity or contempt. And as a matter of fact, we do find that some of the more thoughtful of the Anti-Federalists openly express a doubt as to whether it is really possible to devise a government that is strong and unified enough to administer so vast a territory as America without becoming, by its strength, a threat to Republican and individual freedom. And some of these Anti-Federalists are led to express reluctantly and with a kind of melancholy wonder the question whether the insolubility of the problem might not make it necessary to break up the Union into several smaller confederacies. Thus at the end of the ninth letter of the Federal Farmer we read, But if it be asked, how shall we remedy the evil so as to complete and perpetuate the temple of equal laws and equal liberty? Perhaps we can never do it. Possibly we never may be able to do it in this immense country under any one system of laws, however modified. Nevertheless, at present, I think the experiment worth a making. I feel an aversion to the disunion of the states and to separate confederacies. Great dangers, too, may attend these confederacies. So one sees here in Richard Henry Lee, of course, a deep aversion to splitting up the Union, yes, but a melancholy sense that that may be eventually what we have to do. But for now, no, let's try the experiment. But it's an experiment. And similarly, Patrick Henry voices the following remarkably wavering utterance. He says, I am persuaded that separate confederacies will ruin us. In my judgment, they are evils, never to be thought of, till a people are driven by necessity. But then, a few lines later, he says, I am persuaded that one government cannot reign over so extensive a country as this, without absolute despotism. Compared to such a consolidation, small confederacies are little evils. So there is evidence showing that anti-federalists are vulnerable to the suggestion that their position calls into question the very possibility of Republican Union or of the United States as a large free republic. And this is a grave fundamental difficulty in the whole anti-federalist position. But on the other hand, implicit in this deep and uncomfortable anti-federalist difficulty is a powerful challenge that the anti-federalists in their turn put to the whole federalist position. The anti-federalists ask, in effect, is there not something fundamentally wrong with the Federalist outlook, inasmuch as it makes national security such an overwhelming priority, rather than what ought to be the preeminent priority, namely, not defense against outside forces, but the shared way of life of the citizenry inside, the way of life of freedom that makes the country worth defending. Thus Brutus writes, in his seventh essay, 
the preservation of internal peace and good order and the due administration of law and justice ought to be the first care of every government. The happiness of a people depends infinitely more on this than it does upon all that glory and respect which nations acquire by the most brilliant martial achievements. And I believe, he adds, history will furnish but few examples of nations who have duly attended to these, that is, the internal affairs, who have been subdued by foreign invaders. If a proper respect and submission to the laws prevailed over all orders of men in our country, and if a spirit of public and private justice, economy, and industry influenced the people, we need not be under any apprehensions that they would not be ready to repel any invasion that might be made on this country. And more than this, I would not wish from them. A defensive war is the only one I think justifiable. The European governments, he says, are almost all of them framed and administered with a view to arms and war, as that in which their chief glory consists. They mistake the end of government. We ought to furnish the world with an example of a great people who in their civil institutions hold chiefly in view the attainment of virtue and happiness among ourselves. The Anti-Federalists insist that one should not choose a constitutional system, even if it does best guarantee national security, if the price is a serious threat of losing and endangering internal Republican liberty. And they warn that such is exactly the trap into which this proposed constitutional system falls on account of its deeply mistaken ordering or misordering of priorities. Now, to this very serious charge, the Federalists reply by passionately denying that their proposed Constitution and its underlying vision prioritizes national security over domestic freedom. On the contrary, they insist. They agree with the Anti-Federalists on the fundamental ranking of priorities. Hamilton states this emphatically in paper 23. It will indeed, he says, deserve the most vigilant and careful attention of the people to see that our Constitution be modeled in such a manner as to admit of its being safely vested with the requisite powers for national security. If any plan which has been or may be offered to our consideration should not upon a dispassionate inspection be found to answer this description, it ought to be rejected. A government the Constitution of which renders it unfit to be entrusted with all the powers which a free people ought to delegate to any government would be an unsafe and improper depository of the national interests. And Madison later makes the point still more emphatically and eloquently in both papers 37 and then again in paper 39. In paper 37, Madison writes, Among the difficulties encountered by the Convention, and thus Madison sort of takes us for a moment into the convention and in effect says, this was, let me tell you, the difficulties. Among the difficulties encountered by the convention, a very important one must have lain in combining the requisite stability and energy in the government 
with the inviolable attention due to liberty and to the Republican form, without substantially accomplishing this part of their undertaking, they would have very imperfectly fulfilled the object of their appointment or the expectation of the public. And in paper 39, going even farther, Madison writes, the first question that offers itself is whether the general form and aspect of the government be strictly Republican. It is evident that no other form would be reconcilable with the genius of the people of America, with the fundamental principles of the revolution, or with that honorable determination which animates every votary of freedom to rest all our political experiments on the capacity of mankind for self-government. If the plan of the convention, he goes on, therefore, be found to depart from the Republican character, its advocates must abandon it as no longer defensible. But then the anti-federalist retort, in effect, all right, on the basis of this ranking of priorities, which you say we both agree on, shouldn't you be willing to run greater risks with national security in foreign affairs in order to leave much more power in the hands of state and local governments than is allowed under this proposed Constitution, both for the sake of keeping Republican freedom vigorous in local self-government, administering the domestic concerns, which are the most important concerns, and for the sake of protecting that Republican freedom from despotic domination by the central government, by giving state governments enough power to check and balance the central government. As Brutus eloquently insists in his sixth and seventh essays, directly quoting and rebutting Federalist Paper 23, which I just recently mentioned, he speaks as follows. It is as necessary that the state governments should possess the means to attain the ends expected from them as for the general government. Neither the general government nor the state governments ought to be vested with all the powers proper to be exercised for promoting the ends of government. The powers are divided between them. Certain ends are to be attained by the one and other certain ends by the other. And these taken together include all the ends of good government. This being the case, the conclusion follows that each should be furnished with the means to attain the ends to which they are designed. And because, Brutus goes on to insist in the seventh essay, the most important end of government, as he puts it, is the province of the state governments. It follows, he says, that state and local governments ought to have independent resources, their own taxing and military powers under their own control to enable them to carry out their more important tasks. And what are these more important tasks that state government has in contrast to the national government? Well, first and foremost, Brutus says, citizen participation in self-government, including especially in the militia, in the juries. Secondly, what Brutus calls the administration of justice among individuals, the rule of civil and criminal law in your local courts with popular juries in charge. And then thirdly, education of the young, especially moral and civic education of future citizens. And in the fourth place, perhaps most important of all, protecting and fostering and regulating religious life, which is closely linked 
through the protection and regulation and fostering of family life and morals. Those are the really important concerns of human life. And those are the concerns that state and local government is responsible for. Now, especially assuming, Brutus argues, that you Federalists are right in your argument that the central government must have these very strong powers to carry out its unique responsibilities in foreign affairs and defense and regulation of interstate commerce. How, the Anti-Federalists ask, if we're going to give those great powers to the central government, can the states check and balance them? Balance such strong powers in the central government and then also carry out their own even greater state responsibilities if they are as weakened as they are under this proposed constitution, where the central government has, as you said, unlimited, and thus when push comes to shove, total military and taxation power. And when there is nothing approaching an equilibrium or balance of power between national and state governments. As Brutus protests in his eighth essay, under this proposed constitution, he says, the general government have unlimited authority and control over all the wealth and all the force of the Union. The advocates for this scheme would favor the world with a new discovery if they could show what kind of freedom or independency is left to the state governments when they cannot command any part of the property or of the force of the country but at the will of the Congress. It seems to me as absurd, he says, as it would be to say that I was free and independent when I had conveyed all my property to another and was tenant to will of him and had beside given an indenture of myself to serve him during life. So in other words, the Anti-Federalists are asking, doesn't the proposed Constitution really reduce the states to mere administrative subdivisions under the control of this federal national government, which may well allow the states considerable autonomy, but which leaves all the final lawful and constitutional say to the central government, which is likely to use its constitutional powers steadily to erode and take over state power as the years go by. In the words of a writer who signs himself a Pennsylvania farmer, that the state governments have certain ministerial and convenient powers continued to them is not denied, and in the exercise of which they may support but cannot control the central government. Now, in the le next lecture, we will see how this protest compels the Federalists to make clearer their conception of the federal character of their proposed constitutional order. And we will see laid bare a very deep problem in that vision of federalism. Lecture 6, Debating the Meaning of Federalism. At the end of the last lecture, we saw that the Anti-Federalists charge that the proposed Constitution sacrifices liberty for the sake of national security by rendering the state governments so weak and dependent on the central government that vigorous local self-government will be swallowed up by an overwhelming and eventually 
oppressive national government against which the state governments will be too feeble to pose any effective checking and balancing. The Federalists respond by claiming that they have devised a system that is still truly federal in that it creates a genuine division as well as balance of power between national and state governments. As regards the division of powers between the state and national governments, Madison repeatedly argues that, as he puts it in paper 39, the proposed government cannot be deemed a national one, since its jurisdiction, and he's referring here to Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, extends, he says, to certain enumerated objects only, and leaves to the several states a residuary and inviolable sovereignty over all other objects. Now to this claim, the Anti-Federalists respond in the first place with a simple question. Why, if that's true, wasn't that as a guarantee of the state residual power and sovereignty, as you say, why was that not explicitly written into the Constitution? And in the second place, they voiced the deeper worry that the powers, even or precisely as enumerated, are susceptible of unforeseeably expansive interpretation in the future by this national government. Thus, Sentinel says in his eighth letter that the clause which empowers the new Congress to make, and here he quotes the Constitution, all laws that may be necessary and proper for carrying into execution any of their powers. That clause, he says, is one by virtue of which every possible law will be constitutional. Similarly, the Pennsylvania writer, who signs himself an old Whig, asks, Under such a clause as this, can anything be said to be reserved and kept back from the Congress? Can it be said that Congress have no power but what is expressed? To make all laws which shall be necessary and proper is, in other words, to make all such laws which the Congress shall think necessary and proper. For who shall judge for the legislature which, what is necessary and proper? Who will set themselves above the sovereign? What inferior legislature shall set itself above the supreme legislature? As Brutus says in his fifth essay, it is evident that the legislature under this Constitution may pass any law which they think may be proper, especially since Included is the power to tax in order, as the Constitution reads, to provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. Sentinel asks, now what can be more comprehensive than these words? Whatever taxes that they may deem requisite for the general welfare may be imposed on the citizens of these states levied by the officers of Congress distributed through every district in America. The Congress may construe every purpose for which the state legislatures now lay taxes to be for the general welfare and thereby seize upon every object of revenue. And this, the Anti-Federalists repeatedly point out, in a system where the final judicial tribunal that would judge all interpretations would be itself national, the federal judiciary. Now, this is a point that Madison himself has to concede. In the same passage 
In paper 39 that I quoted a moment ago, he adds, It is true that in controversies relating to the boundary between the two jurisdictions, state and federal, the tribunal which is ultimately to decide is to be established under the general government. But, he adds, this does not change the principle of the case. The decision is to be impartially made according to the rules of the Constitution, and all the usual and most effectual precautions are taken to secure this impartiality. Some such tribunal is clearly essential, he says, to prevent an appeal to the sword and a dissolution of the social compact, and that it ought to be established under the general rather than under the local governments, or to speak more properly that it could be safely established under the first alone is a position not likely to be combated, Madison says, but of course it is combated, as we shall see even more vividly when we get to the fight over the judiciary. The supreme power of this federal judiciary is a key part of what the anti-federalists are combating. But what the anti-federalists come back to over and over again is their alarm over the explicitly unlimited taxation power granted to this central government. As Brutus writes in his seventh essay, where the powers are divided between the general and the state government, it is essential to its existence that the revenues of the country, without which no government can exist, should be divided between them, and so apportioned to each, as far as human wisdom can affect such a division and apportionment. It has been shown that no such allotment is made in this Constitution but that every source of revenue is under the control of the Congress. It therefore follows that if this system is intended to be a complex and not a simple, a confederate and not an entire consolidated government, it contains in it the sure seeds of its own dissolution. Now, in reply to this alarm, Madison suggests in paper 45 that it is probable, as he puts it, that the federal government's power to impose internal taxes, in addition to duties on foreign imports, will not be resorted to, Madison claims, except for supplemental purposes. And, he promises, an option will then be given to the states to supply their quotas by previous collections of their own. Now this, of course, turned out to be completely false. Madison promised that under the Constitution, most of the taxation would just be import and export duties at the federal level, and that if the federal government ever did get into any other taxation, it would first give the states the option of paying requisitions. And that, of course, never happened. Once again, the anti-federalists were exactly right that the taxation power of the federal government would spread. Similarly, Hamilton, in his discussion of the taxing power in Paper 32, insists that as he puts it, with the sole exception of duties on imports and exports, the individual states should possess an independent and uncontrollable authority to raise their own revenues for the supply of their own wants. And yet, in the same breath, and in some amazing double talk, Hamilton has to concede that the national and state governments have, as he puts it, manifestly a co-equal and concurrent authority to tax everything that's not imports and exports. And he admits this might 
in his words, be productive of occasional interferences in the policy, which, as he puts it, might require mutual forbearance. Now, is this not a somewhat deceptive way of referring to conflicts, thereby opening the key question, whether there is any real balance of constitutional power between state and federal government, such as will enable the states to resist and prevent steady lawful encroachment by the national government on the state taxing power and its reach. As Hamilton notes in papers 30 and then 35, those he calls the more intelligent adversaries of the new constitution have pressed the following compromise suggestion as the basis of a new revised constitution. Why not, they say, convene a new convention, and in a new constitution, make a clear, explicit division of the crucial taxation power, avoiding the overlap and hence a likelihood of interference and conflict. Why not limit the national government's power of taxation to specific items, for example, all import and export duties, and leave the powers of taxing all other goods to the states with the national government instructed to requisition from the states additional funds in case of pressing need. Would not some such arrangement of a clear distribution of what can be taxed by each level of government express a more truly balanced, truly federal system? And this indeed was one of the amendments that the Massachusetts ratification included as recommended. And this recommendation was then followed by other states in their ratification. In other words, it was very clear that this was a very popular compromise suggestion. And it's in response to this suggestion that Hamilton in Paper 30 makes some of his strongest statements about the incalculability of future national needs for revenue, and hence the imprudence of thus limiting the national government's taxing and other powers. But then in what way will there remain in the state governments any legal checking and balancing constitutional power over this national government? Hamilton claims that, in his words, in paper 26, the state legislatures, he says, will always be not only vigilant but suspicious and jealous guardians of the rights of the citizens against the encroachments from the federal government. And following Hamilton's lead, Madison repeatedly claims in papers 51, and then in 52, and then in 55, that, as he puts it, security arises to the rights of the people from the fact that the different governments will control each other. And as he goes on to put it, in the compound Republic of America, the power surrendered by the people is first divided between two distinct governments, the federal legislature will not only be restrained by its dependence on the people, as other legislative bodies are, but it will be moreover watched and controlled by the several collateral state legislatures, which must feel so many motives to watch and which possess so many means of counteracting the federal legislature. To which the anti-federalist asks, what means are you talking about? Where in this Constitution is such checking power ever granted to a state legislature or to all the state legislatures? As is pointed out by Brutus 
in his 10th essay, the state governments have no constitutional or legal way to exercise any check on the federal government. There is no mutually controlling balance of constitutional power between state and federal governments. There is no equilibrium in this document exercised in the regular course of civil and lawful government. Rather, the only thing that's left is the extreme extra-constitutional check of the state governments rallying popular disobedience and resistance to the national government, starting civil strife, a civil war in terrible times of emergency, when the national government has undertaken unpopular and unconstitutional usurpation of its lawful authority. And that such extreme circumstances, rather than an ongoing lawful constitutional checking and balancing, is indeed what Hamilton, at least, has in mind, is confirmed by the way Hamilton himself subsequently speaks of this in paper 28, when he appeals to what he calls, in his words, that original right of self-defense which is paramount to all positive forms of government and which, against the usurpation of the national rulers, may be exerted by the states. And then in paper 60, Hamilton refers to an immediate revolt of the great body of the people headed and directed by the state governments as the means of checking the central government. And similar revolutionary or civil war language with a similar meaning is found in Madison's later restatement of his claim that the states have a checking power over the national government. As Madison puts it in paper 46, ambitious encroachments of the federal government on the authority of the state governments would not excite the opposition of a single state or of a few states only. They would be signals of general alarm. Every government would espouse the common cause. A correspondence would be opened. Plans of resistance would be concerted, he says. One spirit would animate and conduct the whole. The same combination, in short, would result from an apprehension of the federal as was produced by the dread of a foreign yoke. In other words, it would be just like the Revolutionary War again, but not against England, now against the federal government. And, he goes on, unless the projected innovations should be voluntarily renounced, that is, by the federal government, the same appeal to a trial of force would be made in the one case as was made in the other. The only thing Madison adds is that prior to this armed resistance, which would be the ultimate check the states could use, and in addition to protesting, the state governments could also, as he puts it in paper 44, exert their local influence in effecting a change of federal representatives by the election of more faithful representatives. But does this appeal to the informal influence of the state governments in federal elections, the influence they might have over who is being elected to the federal government, not underline the fact that the state governments have no direct or formal constitutional control over the federal government? And if the state governments are to have even this reserve, last-ditch, extra-constitutional, revolutionary function in emergencies of arousing the people in civil war, well then, the anti-federalists ask, must not the states have some truly independent military and therefore financial powers? 
in order to arm the people when they bring them out into the streets. Hamilton seems to concede this, for he goes on in paper 28 to speak of the needs that the people be, as he puts it, in a situation through the medium of their state governments to take measures for their own defense with all the celerity, regularity, and system of independent nations. Now, that last phrase is remarkable. Does not that language suggest that the state governments must hold in reserve powers that are sufficient to make them capable of becoming, at least in emergencies, like independent nations, as Hamilton says, capable of fighting the central government. But where are these reserve powers under this Constitution? Ask the Anti-Federalists. More specifically, they ask, are not the militias to be put under the authority and direction of the national government, to almost whatever degree the latter wishes. See Article 1, Section 8, Clause 16. And as regards taxation and all other national powers, are not all state officials to be made subordinate and auxiliary to national authority, which can employ and command them as it wishes? Does not Publius himself point this out? in paper 27, when he says, and these are his words, the plan reported by the convention, by extending the authority of the federal head to the individual citizens of the several states, will enable the government to employ the ordinary magistracy of each state in the execution of its, that is, the federal laws. And he goes on to say, it is easy to perceive this will tend to destroy, in the common apprehension, all distinction between the sources from which they might proceed. Thus, he goes on to admit, the legislatures, the courts, and magistrates of the respective members will be incorporated into the operations of the national government as far as its just and constitutional authority extends, and will be rendered auxiliary to the enforcement of its, that is, the federal, laws. Now, the anti-federalists simply ask, doesn't this passage confirm our worst suspicions? The federal farmer puts the anti-federalist point incisively at the end of his 17th letter. I often heard it observed, he writes, that the state governments will be the people's ready advocates. But of what avail? Will these circumstances be if the state governments, thus allowed to be the guardians of the people, possess no kind of power by the forms of the social compact to stop in their passage the laws of Congress injurious to the people? Now, Madison tries repeatedly to reply in papers 39, 43, 45, and 62. He knows that he's on the ropes on this issue. And he constantly tries to come back with arguments. And the argument he makes in these four papers that I've mentioned are to say, well, the state governments have a crucial role in electing the president through the electoral college that we've devised. And also, above all, they have great power through the Senate. Because in the Senate, each state will send two senators chosen by its legislature as its representatives. Now, the shrewdest of the Anti-Federalists, looking at this argument, 
cogently retort that the electors in the Electoral College and the senators are far from being delegates of the state governments. They are not under the orders of the state governments. The senators, once they are selected, are in no way under the control or direction of the state governments. And the most obvious sign of that, the anti-federalists say, is that they can't be dismissed by the state governments, just like the electors can't be dismissed. As the delegations to the Congress under the existing Articles of Confederation can be dismissed, there, the anti-federalists argue, pointing to the Articles of Confederation, there you have real state control when the people sent to Congress can be hired and fired by the state governments. That's not true of the senators. In the words of a Pennsylvania farmer, the exercise of sovereignty does not consist in choosing masters, such as the senators would be, who, when chosen, would be beyond control, but in the power of dismissing, impeaching, or the like, those to whom authority is delegated. If we step back now and survey the whole argument about the nature and degree of federalism in this new Constitution, I think it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that the anti-federalists have the better of this part of the debate, despite the fact that their worst predictions could be dismissed as alarmist in the short run. What they warn of turned out to be mostly exaggerated in the short run, or as regards the first decades, at least, of American history. But in the long run, much of what they predicted came true. The state militias have been dissolved, in effect, and incorporated into a National Guard that is just a wing of the national military. The interstate commerce provisions of the Constitution have allowed the national government to take control of and regulate commerce everywhere within the states. One of the most outrageous predictions of the anti-federalists that was laughed at at the time was that someday there might even be federal taxes on income. Now that, of course, required a constitutional amendment, but it was an amendment that at the time was plausibly argued to be in the spirit of this Constitution, a spirit which the anti-federalists pointed out. As regards the long run, the anti-federalists bring out in their critique the true character and long-range implications of this proposed Constitution's federalism. The new Constitution does seem to spell the loss of any real equilibrium or balance of power between the state and the central levels of government. Yet, on the other hand, we find that when the anti-federalists spell out their alternative of true federalism, or when they explain what sort of constitutional system would be required. When, for example, as we've seen, they propose a real division of the powers of taxation and say that the federal government should only have the power to tax exports and imports through duties. Whenever they try to explain how you can have a system where the state governments genuinely counterbalance through reserve powers in the Constitution the power of the federal government, we find that they can't avoid slipping back towards some form of a mere league of ultimately independent states who would never lose sight of the possibility of splitting up or going their own separate ways. 
Thus, for example, the Pennsylvania farmer, who articulates one of the most theoretically sophisticated anti-federalist discussions of the nature of true federalism, writes, The perfection of a federal republic consists in drawing the proper line, reserving such a proportion of sovereignty in the state governments as would enable them to exist alone if the general government should fail, either by violence or with the common consent of the Confederates. The states should respectively have laws, courts, force, and revenues of their own sufficient for their own security. They ought to be fit to keep house alone, if necessary. But this, of course, means that the Union would be one in which each member state would constantly have to prepare to be able to go it alone as an independent nation. Can a unified country be built on such a basis? The upshot of this part of the great debate would seem to be that there is really in principle no tenable middle ground between either true federalism in which each of the member states retains ultimate sovereignty and union remains fragile or national union in which states as well as localities may play important but ultimately subordinate and ministerial roles. Now, the Federalists want to obscure this fundamental truth, this necessarily exclusive alternative. The Federalists fail to face this fundamental truth, either because they don't wish to face the full consolidating consequences of their Constitution, or because they wish, as the Anti-Federalists charge, to hide this truth from the people. Or, perhaps, it's most likely that their true motives are a mixture of these two. And it's not unlikely that in the light of the deep split that occurred a few years later between Hamilton and Madison on precisely this issue, on the meaning of the federalism that was intended by the Constitution, there may be some submerged disagreement in this respect between Hamilton and Madison. It's not implausible to suspect that Madison was less aware of the full consequences of this Constitution, and that Hamilton was more fully aware, more clear-sighted, and more inclined to try to hide what he saw were the consequences. And the Federalists are able to avoid facing the full consolidating consequences of their proposed Constitution, partly because they see, and they say, that the states are likely for at least a long time to retain greater hold on the affections and allegiances of their citizens. In papers 45 and 46, Madison gives the reasons for this, enlarging on what Hamilton said back in paper 17 and drawing on key points made by the Anti-Federalists themselves. In the first place, Madison claims, the state governments will have many more public offices to fill than will the national government, at least for a time. And hence, a larger immediate body of patronage supporters. More importantly, it's by the state governments that, as he puts it, all the more domestic and personal interests of the people will be regulated and provided for, at least for a long time. And then thirdly, it is with the state governments that, in Madison's words, the people will be more familiarly and minutely conversant and with the members of these, we'll have a greater proportion of the people 
ties of personal acquaintance and friendship and of family and party attachments. And yet both Hamilton and Madison go on to qualify considerably these observations by adding the thought that if and when the people begin to see and experience that the national government is much better administered than their state and local governments, as Hamilton and Madison expect it will be, then the people will, in Madison's words, become more partial to the federal than to the state governments. And in paper 27, Hamilton summarizes a number of strong reasons that we will see laid out by Madison in the 10th Federalist Paper, why it is, in Hamilton's words, the case that the general government will be better administered than the particular governments. And then Hamilton proceeds to write the following very revealing passage. As the operations of the national authority are intermingled in the ordinary exercise of government, the more the citizens are accustomed to meet with it, that is, the national government, in the common occurrences of their political life, the more it is familiarized to their sight and to their feelings, the further it enters into those objects which touch the most sensible chords and put in motion the most active springs of the human heart, the greater will be the probability that the authority of the Union and the affections of the citizens towards it will be strengthened rather than weakened by its extension to what are called matters of internal concern. And here I think one can say we catch a glimpse of Hamilton's long-range hope that through the national government's effective exercise of its domestic powers, perhaps especially over commerce and the national economy, the national government will intervene and be felt more by the people to be actively engaged in the daily and local life of the nation, eclipsing, taking over in some measure, the state authorities. And a passage such as this lends some credence to the suspicion voiced most pointedly by Luther Martin, the Attorney General of Maryland, who had been a delegate to the convention and who decried the proposed Constitution. In these words, he says it has just so much federal in appearance as to give its advocates in some measure an opportunity of passing it as such upon the unsuspecting multitude before they had time and opportunity to examine it, and yet so predominantly national as to put it in the powers of its movers whenever the machine shall be set a-going to strike out every part that has the appearance of being federal and to render it wholly and entirely a national government. In the next lecture, we will see how the outcome of this argument over the character of the proposed Constitution's federalism puts before us a fundamental question which prepares us to appreciate fully how new and unclassical is this federalist or Madisonian conception of internal Republican liberty. Lecture 7, The Madisonian Republic. In the last lecture, we followed out the debate over the character and ultimate meaning 
of the proposed Constitution's federalism. And we saw how this part of the debate reveals the degree to which the proposed Constitution, as the Anti-Federalists correctly warn, creates a system in which the national government will eventually have overwhelming power. And we're thus in a position to appreciate fully the weight of the big question to which this leads. If or insofar as it's now become clear that the proposed Constitution does not and cannot rely mainly on the checks and balances of federalism to prevent the national government with its unlimited and overwhelming military and taxation powers from becoming despotic, then upon what do the Federalists and this Constitution rely? What do the Federalists propose to substitute for federalism as the source of checks and balances for the central government and thus protection for Republican liberty? And this puts us in the best position to see how the Ninth and Tenth Federalist Papers provide the foundation of the answer to this crux question. An answer that makes still clearer the radically new and deeply unclassical character of the Federalist Republican vision. For while the bulk of the first third of the Federalist Papers make the case for the proposed Constitution on the grounds of national security, Hamilton and Madison do insert in Papers 9 and 10 a short but pregnant argument on grounds of internal Republican liberty for the decisive superiority of a massive, large national republic whose government is far removed from the direct control of the people. And they make this positive argument for their new system on the basis of a negative argument against the drastic inferiority of the small, homogeneous, and more direct or participatory democracy that is the pole star of the classical Republican tradition. This negative argument begins from that frontal attack on classical Republicanism, which we saw Hamilton starts off the Ninth Federalist Paper with, and that I read in an earlier lecture. Recall Hamilton's searing words, It is impossible to read the history of the petty republics of Greece and Italy without feeling sensations of horror and disgust at the distractions with which they were continually agitated and at the rapid succession of revolutions by which they were kept perpetually vibrating between the extremes of tyranny and anarchy. Hamilton, who is then seconded by Madison in the next or tenth paper, spotlights the fact that the classical republics, and not least the Roman, are famous for their unending class warfare between rich and poor, or patricians and plebeians, as Hamilton puts it later in paper 70. When we look at the actual history of the classical republics, Hamilton points out, what we find is that direct popular rule and participation in self-government lead, more often than not, to fratricidal strife rather than fraternal community. Hamilton does not deny that Greece and Rome, as he puts it, have been justly celebrated for producing bright talents and exalted endowments. But, he contends, these individual virtues were not promoted but were instead perverted, as he says, by what he calls the vices of government that pervaded classical republicanism.
And in the next or tenth paper, Madison elaborates on what is at the heart of these vices. And that is what Madison calls, following Hamilton, the violence of faction. It is this dangerous vice, in Madison's words, that is to be regarded as the source of what he calls the mortal diseases under which popular governments have everywhere perished. And hence, Madison says, in his words, the friend of popular governments never finds himself so much alarmed for their character and fate as when he contemplates their propensity to this dangerous vice, the violence of faction. Everywhere, Madison says, republics perish under this vice. There are no exceptions. And he goes on to say that this same fate threatens the 13 American states. It is, Madison writes, the unsteadiness and injustice with which a factious spirit has tainted our public administrations in all 13 states, which he says is the chief cause of what he calls that prevailing and increasing distrust of public engagements and alarm for private rights, which are echoed from one end of the continent to the other. And then Madison defines very precisely just what he means by faction. By a faction, he writes, I understand a number of citizens, whether amounting to a majority or a minority of the whole, who are united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interest, adverse to the rights of other citizens, or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. So, faction, for Madison, implies the predominance of passions and interests that move groups of citizens in ways that threaten injury to the rights of other citizens or to the good of the whole community. And it's crucial that we keep this precise and quite pejorative definition of faction firmly in mind as we follow now Madison's argument through the Tenth Federalist. Or otherwise, we won't see how radical and even shocking his argument is. Now, Madison contends that this proposed new Constitution frames the first kind of republic in all of human history, which has an effective tendency, as he puts it, to break and control the violence of faction. And the new unclassical spirit of the proposed Constitution becomes clearer when we follow Madison's argument as to exactly how this breaking and controlling of the violence of faction is to be accomplished. Madison begins by submitting that there are, as he puts it, only two methods of curing the mischiefs of faction. The one, he says, by removing its causes. The other, by controlling its effects. Now, the first method, removing the causes, means somehow preventing factions from becoming major factors in civic life. And there are only two ways of accomplishing this, Madison goes on to explain. The first is despotically doing away with liberty, and thus preventing citizens from being able even to form politically effective interest groups which would attempt to dominate or exploit one another. And this suppression of groups is, of course, out of the question for Americans. The second way is to take the path of the classical Republican tradition. 
That is, to try to make the populace homogeneous in its outlook, a fraternal community. Or in Madison's words, by giving to every citizen the same opinions, the same passions, and the same interests. And this, Madison goes on to make eloquently clear, is what the proposed Constitution rejects as impracticable. The proposed Constitution is based on the deep premise that any attempt to build a fraternal community of public-spirited citizens sharing the same outlook is simply against human nature. As Madison puts it, the latent causes of faction are thus sown in the nature of man. And we see them everywhere, he says, brought into different degrees of activity according to the different circumstances of civil society. And Madison spells out in detail the reasons why factionalism or mutually exploitative group conflict is embedded in human nature. To begin with, and most generally, human reason is necessarily driven mainly, though not exclusively, by what Madison calls self-love. And while self-love takes many forms, there's one form that Madison spotlights above all, the economic form, expressed in the love of acquiring, as he puts it, ever more and more property. This limitless acquisitive drive is so natural to mankind that Madison goes so far as to declare that, in his words, the first object of government is the protection of these faculties from which the rights of property originate. And then Madison observes that when government succeeds in this prime purpose of protecting the acquisitive selfish faculties, the necessary result is the emergence of what Madison calls different degrees and kinds of property, and thereby great economic diversity and great economic inequality among the citizenry. For, Madison now adds, these faculties of acquiring property are themselves unequal or unequally distributed. And this, Madison continues, necessarily divides society into mutually opposed parties or factions. As Madison puts it, from the protection of different and unequal faculties of acquiring property, the possession of different degrees and kinds of property immediately results. And from the influence of these on the sentiments and views of the respective proprietors ensues a division of the society into different interests and parties. But it's not only the competing economic interests that necessarily split human society into warring factions. Madison stresses also what he calls a zeal for different opinions concerning religion. As the first in a list of differences of opinion that always have this effect of creating factions of mutually hostile groups. The list includes also zealotry for conflicting political opinions, but also zealotry for all sorts of other opinions, in theory and in practice. And in addition, again, in Madison's words, attachment to different leaders, ambitiously contending for preeminence and power. All these different sorts of hostile attachments 
have in turn, Madison writes, divided mankind into parties, inflamed them with mutual animosity, and rendered them much more disposed to vex and oppress each other than to cooperate for their common good. And Madison's presentation of human nature grows still darker when he adds, these are his words, so strong is this propensity of mankind to fall into mutual animosities that where no substantial occasion presents itself, the most frivolous and fanciful distinctions have been sufficient to kindle their unfriendly passions and excite their most violent conflicts. In other words, humans are by nature so eager to hurt one another and even to kill one another that they will start doing so at almost any excuse. And notice that Madison never says that this is a sign of human sin or sinfulness or the fall. He does not for a moment adopt a biblical outlook. Madison says rather that this is the fixed and unalterable nature of humans, something for which humans are not responsible. And he never suggests that the proper response or remedy is prayer or hope for divine redemption. But we must not leap to the conclusion that Madison's view of humanity's social nature is unrelievedly dark, a Hobbesian war of all against all. His conception is more complex and subtle. In the first place, Madison here indicates that he is not ruling out some important role for what he calls enlightened statesmen. But he insists that such statesmen will, as he puts it, rarely prevail over the immediate interest which one party may find in disregarding the rights of another or the good of the whole. Then in the second place, Madison makes it clear a few papers later, in paper 14, that he has in this paper number 10, abstracted somewhat from the communal or fraternal impulses that he's well aware do also manifest themselves in human nature, impulses which he recognizes have some unusual strength among Americans. Echoing Jay's second paper, Madison writes in paper 14, Hearken not to the unnatural voice which tells you that the people of America knit together as they are by so many cords of affection, can no longer live together as members of the same family, can no longer continue the mutual guardians of their mutual happiness. The kindred blood which flows in the veins of American citizens, the mingled blood which they have shed in defense of their sacred rights, consecrate their union and excite horror at the idea of their becoming aliens, rivals enemies. So while Madison thus does not deny the existence of some deep and strong bonds of kinship and affection uniting people and especially Americans, he does contend, in effect, that such natural bonds are by no means strong enough to prevent the equally or more natural emergence of even stronger, fierce and mutually hurtful factional competition. And in the Tenth Federalist, Madison returns to economic competition as the most powerful source of the natural mutual hatred and animosity that overwhelms kinship and public spirit. As he puts it, the most common and durable source of factions has been the various and unequal distribution of property. Those who hold and those who are without property, 
those who are creditors and those who are debtors, a landed interest, a manufacturing interest, a mercantile interest, a moneyed interest, with many lesser interests, grow up of necessity in civilized nations and divide them into different classes actuated by different sentiments and views. And the regulation, he goes on to say, of these various and interfering interests forms the principal task of modern legislation. And, now listen carefully to this, involves the spirit of party and faction in the necessary and ordinary operations of government. Now this last phrase is pregnant and a most important phrase in the entire Federalist Papers because you see what it means and it reveals the direction that Madison and the new kind of republic are going to take. In their new solution to the problem of faction, the spirit of faction, or what he calls mutual animosity, is going to be accepted as a routine, intrinsic, and even necessary part of American Republican government. Faction is going to be used as the primary tool to combat and control faction. The new American Republic will fight fire with fire. This new system is rooted in a kind of judo throw, if you will. Faction will itself be used to check faction. The disease will be turned back upon itself. The new American Republic is to be the first republic in history that is frankly going to tolerate and even to foster and in some measure to depend upon promoting faction, mutually antagonistic competition among selfish groups seeking to exploit one another throughout society and inside the government itself. What classical republicanism sought to prevent or repress, the new American republicanism is going to employ as an engine of its energetic thriving. Madison's next step is to argue that once we have admitted this basic and rather grim truth, we have to realize that in a republican form of society, where the majority has the preponderant power, where the majority is the legitimate source of authority, the most serious danger is not from any minority faction, but rather from the majority if and when it becomes united as a faction. For since the majority has the greatest power and the greatest legitimacy, it can defeat in the long run and overall or check on a regular basis all minority factions. But who or what can check the majority if or when it becomes a united single faction? Which, as the experience of the failure of classical republicanism shows, is most likely and most pernicious when the majority, who are always the poorer, unite in resentment against the wealthier, who are always the fewer, and proceed, often under the stimulus of demagogues, to place the rights of property under such threats that either the economy is ruined or the property classes are impelled to fight back in ruinous civil conflict. It's this problem of majority faction that is the great problem with all past republics that has never before been solved. And this is why the cause of republicanism has fallen into disrepute, Madison says. So it's the solution of this problem, the problem of majoritarian faction, which, in Madison's words, 
is then the great object to which our inquiries are directed. And then Madison poses the $64 question. By what means is this object attainable? Madison immediately proceeds to give the answer in principle. One of two things, or both at once, must be made to happen. Either, he writes, the existence of the same passion or interest in a majority at the same time must be prevented, or the majority having such a coexistent passion or interest, as he puts it, must be rendered by their number and local situation unable to concert and carry into effect schemes of oppression. Now, in order for either or both of these effects to happen, we must, Hamilton says, emphatically avoid setting up what he calls a pure democracy. By which I mean, Madison writes, a society consisting of a small number of citizens who assemble and administer the government in person. For in such a pure democratic society, the assembled majority has direct political power and will easily coalesce into a unified faction. Some degree of mob rule guided by demagogues is the all too common fate of direct democracies. So Madison here in, is here contradicting a basic premise of the whole anti-federalist, classically inspired Republican vision. Madison is denying that participatory democracies or republics where the homogeneous majority has direct control over the government foster Republican liberty. Madison is insisting that all the historical evidence shows to the contrary that such democracies endanger the liberty of individuals and minorities through the tyranny of the majority as a faction. What we must set up, he says, instead of democracy in the classic sense, is what he calls a republic. By which I mean, he writes, a government in which the scheme of representation takes place. And then Madison goes on to define exactly what the difference is between democracy and a republic, such as the Constitution is establishing. And he does so in the following very careful formulation. The two great points of difference, he writes, between a democracy and a republic are, first, the delegation of the government in the latter, that is the republic, to a small number of citizens elected by the rest. Secondly, he says, the greater number of citizens and the greater sphere of country over which the latter, that is the republic, may be extended. So here we see the real heart of this new Madisonian Republican vision. The new American Constitution aims not at a confederacy of small democratic participatory republics, but instead at one large extended mass republic where the people never can assemble to govern directly, and hence where the majority can never unite and become directly oppressive of minorities and individuals. But the most important consideration in this regard is not simply that the country's territory and numbers will be too big for the majority ever to physically assemble in one place. More important is the fact that the majority will be so diverse 
and so riven by conflicting factional interests trying to oppress one another, especially economic, that it will rarely share the same interests. Or, when it does, it will have great difficulty in becoming aware of that sharing. As Madison puts it in his most important single statement, explaining what, as he puts it, principally is to render factious combinations less to be dreaded, he writes, extend the sphere and you take in a greater variety of parties and interests. You make it less probable that a majority of the whole will have a common motive to invade the rights of other citizens. Or, if such a common motive exists, it'll be more difficult for all who feel it to discover their own strength and to act in unison with each other. Hence, he goes on to say, it clearly appears that the same advantage which a republic has over a democracy in controlling the effects of faction is enjoyed by a large over a small republic, is enjoyed by the union over the states composing it. The influence, he goes on to say, of factious leaders may kindle a flame within their particular states, but it will be unable to spread a general conflagration through the other states. A religious sect, he says, may degenerate into a political faction in a part of the Confederacy, but the variety of sects dispersed over the entire face of it must secure the national councils against any danger from that source. A rage for paper money, for an abolition of debts, for an equal division of property, or for any other improper or wicked project, will be less apt to pervade the whole body of the Union than a particular member of it, in the same proportion as such a malady is more likely to taint a particular county or district than an entire state. Madison, in effect, stands the anti-federalist argument on its head, in at least two major respects. In the first place, where the anti-federalists follow classical Republican theory in seeking homogeneity of the populace and deplore a situation where, as recall, Brutus lamented, there will be constant clashing of opinions and the representatives of one part will be continually striving against those of the other. It's precisely that, such clashing, such striving against one another, that Madison is saying is the key to maintaining liberty in a republic. And that, of course, is very hard for the anti-federalists to accept. As the writer who calls himself Sentinel writes in his first letter, if the administrators of every government are actuated by views of private interest and ambition, how is the welfare and happiness of the community to be the result of such jarring adverse interests? In the second place, Madison has a fundamentally opposed conception of how representation should work. Where the anti-federalists worry about the distancing of representatives from the people and from the people's control, including worrying about the fact that each represents a vast number of constituents whom he cannot possibly know well or resemble and mirror, it is just such removal of the representative from his constituents. It is just such representation of large, diverse constituencies that Madison sees as the keys to safe as well as effective representative government. Because if the representatives are rather few in number, each representing 
a large populous district, it's more likely that each will have to win election by appealing to a broader coalition of competing and compromising factions in his district. It's much more likely that he'll represent a unified majority. And if the representatives are, after being elected, fairly independent of the voters for a period of time, it's more likely that when they meet in the government with other representatives, that they will seek among themselves compromises and shifting coalitions and broker deals, which will have the effect that law and policy will take into account the welfare of much broader portions of the populace. In the next lecture, we will deepen and broaden our understanding of the contrast between Madison's Republican vision and that of his anti-federalist opponents. Lecture 8, The Argument Over Representation. At the end of the last lecture, we began to appreciate the full meaning of the deep contrast between the new Madisonian Republican vision and that of the more classically oriented Anti-Federalists. One fundamental contrast is that the Anti-Federalists following the principles of classical republicanism, are still concerned to try to prevent or repress the spirit of faction from becoming prevalent in the citizenry. The anti-federalists are still guided by the ideal of a homogeneous and harmonious or even fraternal citizenry, while the new Madisonian vision not only accepts faction, but makes the spirit of faction an animating spirit of the republic. Another basic contrast is that the Anti-Federalists, following the classical principles, want to keep the reins of government more directly in the hands of the people. And so they worry about the distancing of representatives from the people and from the people's control. But for Madison, it's just such removal of the representatives from their constituents that is one key to safe as well as effective representative government. And Madison later states even more emphatically and explicitly that the new Constitution aims at the unclassical goal of excluding the people as a whole from any direct role in their government. In paper 63, he says that while the classical republics were not totally unfamiliar with some version of representation, the true distinction, he writes, between the classical democracy and the new American republic lies, and this he puts in italics, in the total exclusion of the people in their collective capacity from any share in the government. Unlike the citizens of classical democracies and republics, the American citizenry will be only indirectly engaged in the politics and governance of their society. To a much greater degree than in the classical republic, the American people will be absorbed in their private, factional, economic pursuits. And they will become politically engaged chiefly in order to protect those factional pursuits and the private liberties they express. Now, at this point, it appears that Madison's Republican vision is based on the assumption that virtue can be dispensed with, or 
mostly replaced by the checking and balancing of the competitive struggle of economic, selfish interest groups. But this impression is very incomplete. It's too simple and one-sided. And we must look now at the higher ingredient in Madison's Republican vision. For Madison has in Paper 10 an additional argument for the new conception of representative government removed from the populace. He praises such representative government not only for its ability to channel the selfish interest group struggle. Representative government, he says, can first and foremost have a crucial elevating effect. By putting the levers of power in the hands of a tiny minority of representatives elected by the rest, the effect will be, Madison writes, to refine and enlarge the public views by passing them through the medium of a chosen body of citizens whose wisdom may best discern the true interest of their country and whose patriotism and love of justice will be least likely to sacrifice it, that is, the true interest of the country, to temporary or partial considerations. Under such a regulation, he writes, it may well happen that the public voice pronounced by the representatives of the people will be more consonant to the public good than if pronounced by the people themselves, convened for the purpose. From this we see that Madison does continue to count on virtue, on wisdom, on patriotism, on love of justice, as he says, but as found in the few in a tiny minority, elected by the rest. Madison reveals here that his new republicanism does not altogether break with the classical republican tradition in its original aristocratic dimension, as opposed to its Montesquieuian, more democratic dimension. Madison even indicates here that his new republican vision hopes to succeed better at achieving some measure of that classical aristocratic aspiration than the classical republics themselves ever did in practice. But we must immediately note that Hamilton, in the subsequent papers 35 and 36, explains more concretely that the character of the representative elite expected in this new American system is rather unclassical. The new elite that the American system expects will be dominated by what Hamilton calls the members of the learned professions, which is a flattering term for what he means, namely, lawyers. Who, he expects, he says, to, as he puts it, feel a neutrality to the rivalships among the different branches of industry and be likely to prove an impartial arbiter between them. So, the virtuous are not so much expected as they were in the classical Republican vision to be found among the farmers, great and small. The virtuous in this new Republican vision are expected to be much more sympathetic to commerce and to commercialism, to money-making, to material acquisitiveness than were the members of the elite as envisaged in classical Republicanism. Now, we see here, as regards the concern for virtue, another way in which the Madisonian vision runs directly counter to the Anti-Federalist vision. When the Anti-Federalists speak of the virtue that a republic needs, they do so in a more Montesquieuian spirit. 
They think chiefly of virtue in the populace, in the mass of the citizens who do not hold office, in the electors rather than the elected. When the Anti-Federalists speak of the elected representatives in terms of their virtue and vice, they tend to express distrust and fear of the likely corruption of the elected representatives. The Anti-Federalists harp on the overweening ambition and the greed that's likely to develop in those who attain positions of great governmental power, especially when those who are elected are not farmers and are not tied to the management of their own farms. And this is one major reason why the Anti-Federalists want to cultivate vigorous and vigilant civic virtue in the people, who they hope will remain rooted in agrarian independence, so that the people will guard against the corrupting and oligarchic tendencies in their elected representative elites. Madison, by contrast, distrusts and fears more the potentially oppressive tendencies in the people, coalescing in majoritarian faction. Madison and the Federalists hope that the rare virtues of some of the elected representatives, and by no means only farmers, will play a role in checking the people's majoritarian, tyrannical tendencies. And it's possible to articulate here a rather powerful objection to this Madisonian outlook, an objection that was made by Madison's friend, Thomas Jefferson. Is it reasonable, Jefferson asked, to expect that the people will be good electors, that is, able and inclined to appreciate and to vote for statesmen and not apt to be seduced by demagogues, if the people do not themselves have a substantial portion of civic virtue? And can the people be expected to develop real civic virtue if the people are not required and called upon to engage in more direct political experience, as well as having the economic stability and independence that comes with the ownership of a farm? Is not decentralization of government providing powerful state and local governments essential to civic education of the populace, Jefferson asked. And what, the Anti-Federalists asked, does the Federalist vision contain in it that promotes or cultivates these qualities amongst the people? Is it not a grave weakness of the Federalist vision that it takes virtue too much for granted in both populace and leaders? It's hard to deny that the Federalists do seem in some measure vulnerable to this criticism. Thus we hear Madison saying in paper 55, As there is a degree of depravity in mankind, which requires a certain degree of circumspection and distrust, so there are other qualities in human nature which justify a certain portion of esteem and confidence. Republican government, he says, presupposes the existence of these qualities in a higher degree than any other form. But is it enough to merely presuppose virtue? Can it be presupposed? Now, the Federalists can reply to this challenge that they do not simply take for granted some degree of civic virtue in leaders and in citizens. The Federalists do also suggest and argue that their republicanism actually does a better job of cultivating civic virtue. How so? Well, they argue, the best way in practice to foster civic virtue is by creating a central government whose institutions ensure an administration 
that's fair or just and vigorously effective, and which has the power to influence the state and local levels of government so that they must follow this fine model of effectiveness and fairness. That, the Federalists insist and submit, is what will best inspire in talented individuals all over the country a vocation for public service. That's what will draw the best to public life, instilling in the most talented a noble ambition to take part in such a fine government. And that's what will arouse in the populace a respect and an appreciation for such public-spirited representatives, along with a respect for the law and for the constitutional order, all of which will amount to a popular spirit of sober patriotism, grounded in the enlightened self-interest of individuals who see with gratitude that their prosperity, their economic interests, are dependent on the proper functioning of their constitutional institutions. And this brings us to the next major dimension of the Federalist Republican vision. What we've now seen, the new idea of an extended, faction-ridden republic administered by a tiny number of pretty removed representatives, that's all the foundation, but only the foundation. What must be built now on this foundation is a structure of institutions that will channel the representatives in the exercise of their powers so as to make those powers both energetically effective as well as stable and checked and balanced from within. And in paper 37, Madison begins the transition to this theme by stressing that the combining of these two distinct goals, that is, stable energy and protection for Republican liberty, was a very great difficulty for the Constitutional Convention. And a big source of the difficulty was what Madison labels the erroneous principles of all earlier classically inspired Republican confederations. Because according to that traditional way of thinking, as Madison puts it, the genius of Republican liberty appears or seems to demand not only that all power should be derived from the people, but that those entrusted with it should be kept in dependence on the people by a short duration of their appointments. And that even during this short period, the trust should be placed not in a few, but in a number of hands. Now against this, Madison insists in paper 39 that it is sufficient for a republic that it be, as he puts it, a government which derives all its powers directly or indirectly from the great body of the people and is administered by persons holding their offices during pleasure for a limited period or during good behavior. Still, when Madison turns to the design of the federal government, he shows in the series of papers in which he discusses the proposed House of Representatives, papers 52 through 58, that he agrees with the Anti-Federalists that the most powerful part of a truly Republican government must be the law-making body which must be directly dependent on the people and also intimately sympathetic with the people. As Madison puts it in paper 52, it is essential to liberty 
that the legislative branch should have an immediate dependence on and an intimate sympathy with the people. But Madison, of course, argues against the Anti-Federalists that the proposed House of Representatives does adequately meet these criteria. And it's in the debate over the adequacy of the proposed House of Representatives that the precise similarities and contrasts between these competing conceptions of representation held by the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists become most concrete and clear. In the first place, they argue over the length of term of office. And as regards that, Madison goes on at once to make clear that he agrees further with the Anti-Federalists that, as he says, frequent elections are unquestionably the only policy by which this dependence and sympathy can be effectually secured. But Madison disputes the repeated Anti-Federalist insistence, which Cato had stressed on the authority of Montesquieu, as we saw in an earlier reading, there is stress that annual elections are required. No, Madison insists, annual elections are not necessary. The Anti-Federalists repeatedly complain about the House of Representatives, that its biennial elections make it such that the representatives are too little dependent on their constituents. Annual elections are needed, the Anti-Federalists argue, to make the representatives truly dependent on the voters and to keep them in sympathy with them. In the words of the Massachusetts writer who signs himself John DeWitt, if the elections would be annual, the persons elected would reside in the center of you. Their interest would be yours. They would be subject to your immediate control. But, he goes on to complain, in this proposed House of Representatives, he says, they are chosen for double the time, during which, however well disposed, they become strangers to the very people choosing them. They reside at a distance from you. You have no control over them. You cannot observe their conduct. Madison replies by insisting that biennial elections are not as different in these effects from annual elections as is claimed, and he adds that there's a great advantage of biennial over annual elections. Namely, that two years is a minimal period needed to allow the representatives sufficient time to acquire the knowledge that's necessary to do their jobs adequately. Knowledge that, as Madison puts it in paper 53, can only be attained, or at least thoroughly attained, by actual experience in the station which requires the use of it. Madison does have to admit that in most of the states after the Revolution and in the National Congress under the Articles of Confederation, the term for the legislators is set at one year or less. But Madison argues that since the scope of the power and responsibility of the new national legislature is going to be much greater than that of either the state legislatures or the existing Congress, the business will be much more complex and difficult to learn. A more profound disagreement emerges in regards to the question of the number of representatives and the proportion between each representative and the number of his constituents. Over and over again, the Anti-Federalists complain on the basis of their conception of representation as properly resembling the constituents, as knowing and being known by living among the constituents, that the House should be much larger 
with a much smaller number of constituents electing each member. Thus the federal farmer protests in his third letter, I have no idea, he says, how it's conceivable that the interests, feelings, and opinions of millions of people, especially touching internal taxation, can be collected in such a house, as is being designed in this Constitution, in which each delegate, he points out, is supposed to represent at least 50,000 constituents. As he says in his second letter, a full and equal representation is that which possesses the same interests, feelings, opinions, and views the people themselves would, were they all assembled. A fair representation, therefore, should be so regulated that every order of men in the community, according to the common course of elections, can have a share in it, in order to allow professional men, merchants, traders, farmers, mechanics, etc., to bring a just proportion of their best-informed men, respectively, into the legislature. The representation must be considerably numerous. In his twelfth letter, the federal farmer proposes an alternative conception of the House of Representatives. And this is fascinating because it is one of the places where the anti-federalists give a concrete alternative for a specific institution. And he puts it this way. I see no way, he writes, to fix elections on a proper footing and to render tolerably equal and secure the federal representation, but by increasing the representation so as to have one representative for each district in which the electors may conveniently meet in one place and at one time and choose by a majority. Perhaps this might be affected pretty generally by fixing one representative for each 12,000 inhabitants. By thus increasing the representation, he writes, we fix what, in my mind, is of far more importance than brilliant talents. I mean a sameness as to residence and interests between the representative and his constituents. Now, Madison has to admit some merit in this worry of the Anti-Federalists. In paper 55, Madison acknowledges what he calls the weight of character and the apparent force of argument of those who have advanced this criticism, that, as he puts it, so small a number of representatives will not possess a proper knowledge of the local circumstances of their numerous constituents, and that they'll be taken from that class of citizens which will sympathize least with the feelings of the mass of the people, and be most likely to aim at a permanent elevation of the few. Back in the tenth paper, Madison had acknowledged the danger that, as he put it there, by enlarging too much the number of electors, you render the representative too little acquainted with all their local circumstances and lesser interests. But he had characteristically added the danger on the other side. He wrote, by reducing it, that is the number of voters, too much, you render the representative unduly attached to these and too little fit to comprehend and pursue great and national objects. And Madison continued by saying, the federal constitution forms a happy combination in this respect. And here in paper 55, talking about the House of Representatives, Madison explains this happy combination more fully by first pointing out that 
With the future growth in America's projected population, we can predict, Madison says, that within only, within only 25 years, the House will contain several hundred members, which will make it less likely that it will coalesce into a tiny, unified, oppressive elite as the anti-federalists fear. And then in the second place, Madison begins to point out that there are grave problems involved in having a House of Representatives composed of a much larger number than just a few hundred. Because then the House itself would begin to take on the qualities of a mob, such as is always seen in large assemblies, and such as blighted the civic life of ancient democracies like the Athenian. And in one of his most eloquent sentences, Madison writes, In all very numerous assemblies, of whatever characters composed, Passion never fails to wrest the scepter from reason. Had every Athenian citizen been a Socrates, every Athenian assembly would still have been a mob. And the mob characteristic of a very large House of Representatives would by no means be dangerous only because it would signal an impassioned excess of majority rule. Paradoxically, Madison argues a very large house would be more likely to produce precisely the oligarchic tendencies that the anti-federalists are so worried about. Because in paper 58, Madison points out, in a large house, you're likely to get the prevalence of demagogues within the house. And again, Madison appeals here to the classical Republican experience, but again, as something to be avoided rather than as something to be followed. In all legislative assemblies, Madison writes, the greater the number composing them may be, the fewer will be the men who will in fact actually direct the proceedings. For, he goes on to say, the larger the number, the greater will be the proportion of members of limited information and of weak capacities. Now, he says, it is precisely on characters of this description that the eloquence and address of the few are known to act with all their force. In the ancient republics, he says, where the whole body of the people assembled in person, a single orator or an artful statesman was generally seen to rule with as complete a sway as if a scepter had been placed in his single hands. On the same principle, Madison goes on, the more multitudinous a representative assembly may be rendered, the more it will partake of the infirmities incident to collective meetings of the people. The countenance of the government may become more democratic, but the soul that animates it will be more oligarchic. Then in the third place, Madison argues in paper 56 that it is not as important as the anti-federalists claim that the members of the national legislature be intimately familiar with all local matters. Because what the national legislature will deal with is mainly matters that concern the whole country, matters that all or many localities have in common. So the analogy with the knowledge required of a state legislator, he argues, is somewhat misleading. And then last, but by no means least, Madison strongly reasserts the propriety of striving and hoping to have representatives who do not resemble their constituents in being merely typical or average people, but instead persons who are distinguished by their virtues and therefore to be given more trust than the anti-federalists allow. Madison deplores what he calls, at the end of paper 55, 
the indiscriminate and unbounded jealousy that the anti-federalists seem to evince for anyone who's elected to a position of national power. The sincere friends of liberty, Madison writes, who give themselves up to the extravagancies of this passion, that is, this jealousy about elites, are not aware of the injury they do their own cause. Were the pictures, he writes, which have been drawn by the political jealousy of some among us, faithful likenesses of the human character, the inference would be that there's not sufficient virtue among men for self-government. Paradoxically, in paper 57, Madison criticizes the anti-federalists for having too little faith in the virtue, not only the virtue of the representatives, but also the virtue of the people who will be doing the electing freely and can be counted on, Madison insists, to choose their representatives with some judgment as to who among the candidates possesses most virtue and wisdom. After all, Madison writes, who are to be the objects of popular choice? And he answers, every citizen whose merit may recommend him to the esteem and confidence of his country. No qualification of wealth, of birth, of religious faith, or of civil profession is permitted to fetter the judgment or disappoint the inclination of the people. And if it be asked, he goes on, what is to restrain the House of Representatives from making legal discriminations in favor of themselves and a particular class of the society? Well, I answer, Madison says, above all the vigilant and manly spirit which actuates the people of America, a spirit which nourishes freedom and in return is nourished by it. And if we look back to the Anti-Federalists on this major point to see how they view the electorate's respect and demand for virtue in its elected leaders, we see that, paradoxically, the Anti-Federalists, in their great concern for virtue in the citizenry, mix that with a great worry about that virtue's fragility or dissipation. They worry about the ease with which the people can be duped by the clever few. As John Francis Mercer puts it, the aristocracy who move by system and design and always under the colorable pretext of securing property has ever proved an overmatch for the multitude who never act but from their feelings and are never permitted to feel until it's too late. And here, once again, we see that it's the Madisonian Republican vision, rather than the Anti-Federalist, that is arguably closer to the classical Republican tradition in this key respect. That is, in respect to the need for relying, in some measure, on a free people's demand and respect for virtue in its leaders. But the Anti-Federalists attack the design of the proposed House of Representatives, not only because they think it's likely to become corrupted from within, they also attack its design because they see it as being in relation to the other less popular branches of government, the Senate, the President, and even the Supreme Court, too weak. They predict that the House will be overpowered and corrupted from outside as well as from within. They predict that it's going to be dominated by the more powerful and much more elitist Senate and Presidency and Supreme Court. This introduces us to the debate over the meaning of separation of powers and checks and balances within the federal structure, which will be the focus of the next lecture.
Lecture 9, Disputing Separation of Powers, Part 1. We've now seen that the cornerstone of the new constitutional structure is the proposed House of Representatives. This is the part of the federal government that will most directly embody the represented will of the people. This is the most democratic part of the structure. And in the last lecture, we saw how Madison rebuts anti-federalist complaints that the design of the proposed House is deeply flawed. But the anti-federalists attack the proposed House of Representatives, not only because they think it likely to become corrupted from within, they also attack the proposed House as being in relation to the less popular branches of government, the Senate and President and even the Supreme Court, too weak. The anti-federalists fear that the House will be overshadowed, overpowered and corrupted by the more powerful and even more elitist Senate and Presidency and Supreme Court. Now to this fear, Madison's reply is twofold. First, he points out that the House is explicitly given the originating power over all expenditures of money. Article 1, Section 7 begins with the statement, all bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives. This means that not a dime can be spent by the government for any reason unless the authorization begins in the House. And as Madison writes in paper 58, this power over the purse may in fact be regarded as the most complete and effectual weapon with which any constitution can arm the immediate representatives of the people for obtaining a redress of every grievance and for carrying into effect every just and salutary measure. Secondly, Madison argues that in a republic where the people as a majority are the ultimate supreme moral and legitimate power, the source of all legitimacy, and where, in addition, the people, through their militias, are armed with the greatest military power, it will be the governmental institution that most directly represents the people, which will wield by far the greatest moral authority, the greatest legitimacy, and hence will tend to have the most political sway or clout. But now it is precisely this power of the House that worries Madison and Hamilton. The House is, in the eyes of the Federalists, the most dangerous part of the national government, the institution most in need of being checked and balanced by other institutions. This danger arises despite or even because of some of the virtues Madison has argued are present in its design. Above all, precisely because the House does genuinely represent the will of the people or of the majority of the people on account of its reasonably frequent elections and on account of being numerous enough to reflect adequately the diversity of the whole country. These very virtues give to the House and its members a powerful temptation to assume that since the House speaks for the majority of the people or is the delegated voice of the majority, it therefore embodies the deepest, long-term will of the people. And on this basis, 
the Federalist warned, there will be a tendency in the House to steadily increase its power and eventually to dominate. But if the people are wise, they will adopt and support a constitutional order in which no single institution can claim by itself to express the deepest long-term will of the people. A wise people will adopt a system in which even or especially the institution that most directly represents their majority will at any time is checked and balanced by institutions that stand on a different, competing basis. As Hamilton says later in paper 71, the representatives of the people in a popular assembly seem sometimes to fancy that they are the people themselves and betray strong symptoms of impatience and disgust at the least sign of opposition from any other quarter. And, as they commonly have the people on their side, they always act with such momentum as to make it very difficult for the other members of the government to maintain the balance of the Constitution. And so it follows, as Madison writes in paper 48, that, in his words, in a representative republic, where the executive magistracy is carefully limited, and where the legislative power is exercised by an assembly which is inspired by a supposed influence over the people, with an intrepid confidence in its own strength, it is against the enterprising ambition of this department that the people ought to indulge all their jealousy and exhaust all their precautions. So it's in response to the worry that the anti-federalists have about the popular branch of the legislature that it's going to be too weak, that the Federalists retort that this is exactly opposite to what one should be worrying about in designing a Republican Constitution. And the Federalists indicate that their worry about the potential threat from the excessive and domineering strength of the House of Representatives is based not only on theory, but on bitter experience. They point to what they have observed happening in many of the state governments, where there is an ominous tendency for the executive and judicial branches to be overpowered and dominated by the popularly elected houses in the legislatures of the states. The concern Publius has for limiting and checking this potentially dangerous power of the House of Representatives becomes most evident when we consider the papers framing those papers that are devoted to the House of Representatives, the papers that precede the ones on the House and the papers that follow. Because Madison defends and explains the House as the cornerstone of the proposed Constitution's republicanism only after he has defended and explained in papers 47 through 51 the Constitution's commitment to a sound system of checks and balances centered on the separation of powers. And it's time for us now to turn to these papers and to the argument between the two sides, Federalists and Anti-Federalists, over the meaning of the separation of powers, and over whether or not the proposed Constitution embodies an adequate separation and balance of powers. Madison opens the, his discussion of the separation and balance of powers by acknowledging, at the start of paper 47, that those whom he calls the more respectable adversaries 
have lodged as one of their principal objections, as he puts it, the charge that the proposed Constitution flagrantly violates the principles of the separation of powers. That is, the great set of principles taught by Montesquieu above all, that the three basic functions of government, first the law-making, then executing or administering, and then finally the judging which applies the law in particular circumstances, must be kept in separate hands. The Anti-Federalists decry the way the proposed Constitution institutes all sorts of overlap and sharing of power among the institutions that should be kept separately and more exclusively either legislative or executive or judicial. They point out that the overlap and sharing is most obvious in the design of the executive, since to the president under this Constitution is given a vast judicial power through the right to pardon and an enormous share in the legislative power through the veto. But still worse, the Anti-Federalists point out, is the design of the Senate, the upper house of the legislative branch. Because the proposed Senate not only combines with its proper legislative role, an awesome judicial role, in that it sits as the court that tries impeachments, but much more dangerous. The Senate has what George Mason calls an alarming dependence and connection with the Supreme Executive on account of its participation through its advice and consent in the making of all treaties, and hence foreign policy, a strictly executive function. But still worse, the Anti-Federalists point out, the Senate has a share in the control over the appointments of major officers, both foreign and domestic, in the executive branch through its having to give its advice and consent to such appointments. Now, Madison responds to this anti-federalist alarm by saying, let's go back to the philosophical and theoretical basis of the separation of powers, to Montesquieu, who, as Madison says, is the oracle who is always consulted and cited on this subject. Madison insists, if we read carefully the famous passages in Book 11 of the Spirit of the Laws, where Montesquieu lays out his teaching on the separation of powers, showing especially the way the separation of powers has emerged historically in the British Constitution and how it works to preserve the liberty for and of Englishmen. One sees, Madison insists, that when Montesquieu teaches that no two of the three distinct fundamental functions should be placed in the same hands, he does not mean that there is to be no overlapping, no sharing at all of the three powers. On the contrary, Madison says, that betrays a complete misunderstanding of the doctrine. There has to be considerable overlapping and sharing, Madison insists, if the separation is to accomplish its purposes. And the purposes include not only the one that the Anti-Federalists focus on too exclusively, which is limiting the power of government overall by dividing its three component functions into separate branches. That's only part of the story, Madison says. The purpose is also, and more important, to make the divided powers capable of checking one another making so that each of the three branches is checked by the other two. As the three work together in a coordination 
that involves somewhat tense interaction, competition, and thus mutual limitation. So it's a profound misunderstanding of this teaching, Madison argues in paper 47, to think that Montesquieu means that the three departments, as Madison puts it, ought to have no control over the acts of each other. On the contrary, as Madison goes on to elaborate in paper 48, the intended checking and balancing among the three cannot take place unless, in his words, these departments be so far connected and blended as to give to each a constitutional control over the others in order to provide some practical security for each against the invasion of the others. Now notice the way Madison uses the language of warfare, invasion, and we'll see as we go on, he uses it more and more in this context. He's insisting that Montesquieu's teaching envisages a never-ending interactive struggle, a kind of warfare among the three powers. The idea is to bring into the heart of government, to instill among the parts of government, a version of that same intense competitiveness that is intended to characterize the society at large, where the competitive struggle among factions prevents the coalescence of any one overwhelming and potentially tyrannical majority faction and compels the building of shifting compromise coalitions among rivals in a tensely competitive cooperation. The three powers of government, of the national government, are going to need to cooperate while competing constantly as rivals for power, resisting each other's tendency or temptation to try to dominate one another. And thus, each of the three branches needs the leverage of having some control over each of the other two rival branches, and that means even some footholds in one another's domain. Thus, for example, Madison says, a chief reason for the presidential veto over legislation is to give the president a weapon that gives him defensive control over the legislative branch to protect the executive power from becoming subordinated to the legislature. Thus the Senate, Madison says, is given the high judicial power of trying impeachments as a way of giving the legislative branch defensive control over the judicial as well as the executive branch. And eventually, in paper 51, Madison steps back to lay out synoptically in one of the work's most famous and eloquent passages the way in which the new American republicanism introduces endless conflict into what Madison calls the interior structure of the government itself. The great security, Madison writes, against a gradual concentration of the several powers in the same department consists in giving to those who administer each department the necessary constitutional means and personal motives to resist encroachments of the others. The provision for defense must in this, as in all other cases, be made commensurate to the danger of attack. Ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The interest of the man must be connected with the constitutional rights of the place. And then, in a remarkable passage, Madison adds a kind of apology for this core competitive spirit of the whole constitutional system. It may be a reflection on human nature 
he says, that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of government. But what is government itself? Yes, but the greatest of all reflections on human nature. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. A dependence on the people is, no doubt, the primary control on the government. And this, of course, is what the anti-federalists tend to rely on pretty exclusively. But it's not enough, Madison goes on to say. In his words, but experience has taught mankind the necessity of auxiliary precautions. This policy of supplying by opposite and rival interests the defect of better motives might be traced through the whole system of human affairs, private as well as public. We see it particularly displayed in all the subordinate distributions of power, where the constant aim is to divide and arrange the several offices in such a manner as that each may be a check on the other, that the private interest of every individual may be a sentinel over the public rights. And notice that in these last words, Madison makes it clear that the aim is to bring that competitive, mutually checking, antagonistic spirit inside each of the three branches, and not only to promote the competition between the three branches. And what the anti-federalists are not sufficiently appreciating, Madison and Hamilton are now arguing, is the degree to which the proposed Constitution makes it safe to give unlimited power to the central government by structuring that government in such a way that it is checked and balanced from within. Through the institution of a kind of permanent inner warfare among and even within each of the three branches. This is the Federalist answer to what we saw early was the great underlying anti-Federalist question or challenge, namely, how can we safely do without a balancing equilibrium of power between the state and the national governments? Or what can we substitute for the power of the state governments to keep the central government under control? Now, because in a republic it is the elected legislative branch that is most likely to tend to dominate over the executive and the judiciary, it is essential that the legislative branch itself be split into two competing houses with very different bases of authority. As Madison puts it, since in Republican government the legislative authority necessarily predominates, the remedy for this inconveniency is to divide the legislature into different branches and to render them by different modes of election and different principles of action as little connected with each other as the nature of their common functions and their common dependence on the society will admit. So we see now that the most active competitive struggle is designed to take place not quite among the three branches of government, but rather among the three institutions that make up two of those branches, the bicameral legislature and the executive. These, unlike the judiciary, are the branches that do most of the work of governing. And these are, appropriately, 
the branches that are in different ways responsible to the people, answerable to the electorate for what they do. The judiciary is envisaged as being somewhat removed from the struggle, as being less active and less powerful. Now, as Hamilton stresses in paper 60, in order to ensure real competitive diversity and avoid coalescence among the House, Senate, and Presidency, they each need to be selected on three very different bases, arranged especially so as to counter the likely tendency to excessive power of the House of Representatives. And as we've seen, in the Madisonian vision, it is crucial that since the House embodies the most direct will of the people's majority, it needs to be balanced by bodies that are not so directly shaped by the popular majority. So, only the House is to be elected directly by the people. The other two institutions are to be selected only indirectly by the people. The president is to be chosen by an elite electoral college made up of delegates elected by the people in each state. And the plan is, and was, for these elected elite delegates to meet in secret in each state to deliberate among themselves and to give all the state's electoral votes to the person they decided on. And the senators are also not to be elected directly by the people in each state. Nowadays, we tend to forget what a momentous departure is the direct election of United States senators from the original intention of the founders. It was only in the early 20th century, in 1913, that the Constitution was amended by the 17th Amendment to have the senators directly elected by the people in each state. The original intention of the founders was a much less democratic base for the Senate. Senators were, be to, were to be appointed by the state legislatures. And as the Federalist explains, the assumption was that that would mean the senators would usually be state legislators themselves. In other words, the expectation was that the Senate would be made up largely of former state legislators or distinguished public figures with a career behind them of experience in state legislatures or other civic service. Senators would typically, it was expected, be men who had been recognized and honored through this elevation by their peers in the state legislatures. As Hamilton says in paper 27, through the medium of the state legislatures, who are select bodies of men and who are to appoint the members of the National Senate, there is reason to expect that this branch will generally be composed with peculiar care and judgment. So the Senate is thus envisaged as a relatively small assembly of elder, experienced statesmen. And if we step back and consider the electoral system as a whole, as it was intended originally, we can see that the intention of the original Constitution is to create a procedure for electing the President and the Senate, which very much mixes democratic with aristocratic process. As John Jay puts it in paper 64, as the select assemblies for choosing the president, as well as the state legislatures who appoint the senators, will in general be composed of the most enlightened and respectable citizens, there is reason to presume that their attention and their votes will be directed to those men only who have become the most distinguished by their abilities and virtue.
And we see here more concretely how the Federalists conceive of their new republic as embodying some substantial degree of the aristocratic ethos that characterized original classical republicanism and this practical ideal I spoke of earlier of the mixed regime. In this connection, it's appropriate at this point to spotlight the very special status and role that the Senate is designed to have in this proposed system. It's not too much of an exaggeration to say that in Madison's conception, the Senate is the linchpin of the constitutional system of the separation and checks and balances. The Senate is that institution which, as Madison presents it, is most clearly elevates and transforms the system, making the separation and balance of powers into something above and beyond a mere competition of predominantly selfish institutions and political actors. And this special status and role of the Senate and all that it implies becomes clearer in the papers devoted to explaining and defending the Senate, numbers 62 through 66. These papers show that the Senate is intended not only to constrain the House's tendency to overweening power, but also, as Madison stresses in paper 62, to compensate for and to counteract what are expected to be some likely defective tendencies and qualifications of the House. Now, what are these specific dangers posed by the House of Representatives that the Federalists designed the Senate to remedy? In the first place, the Federalists see the House as soon becoming, after 20 or 30 more years, with the growth of the United States population, a body numbering in hundreds, which will make their meetings more and more subject to the passions of a crowd. In the second place, the members of the House are likely, they think, to be often persons without much prior experience in government. Businessmen, lawyers, people who have not served much and often people who aren't intending to spend many years in public service. In the third place, the members of the House are likely to be persons of rather narrow views on account of the fact they'll be representing relatively smaller districts with local and temporary perspectives. And also because they'll be popularly elected by their local constituents for short terms of two years, and therefore more subject to all the narrow and changing popular majoritarian passions in each of their districts. And now, what are the specific strengths which the Senate is supposed to have that compensate for these specific defects of the House? Well, first, the Senate is to be a much smaller assembly, two from each state, unlikely ever to take on the characteristics of a mob or crowd. Second, as we've already seen, the senators are expected to be elder, experienced legislators, selected and honored by their peers. As Madison puts it in paper 62, the nature of the senatorial trust requiring greater extent of information and stability of character requires at the same time that the senator should have reached a period of life most likely to supply these advantages. And then in the third place, the senators represent entire states, and thus a much broader constituency. And fourth, the senators will serve for much longer terms, six years rather than two, with a strong likelihood of being re-elected by their state legislators or reappointed. All of these characteristics will allow and encourage 
the senators, to embrace a broader national perspective and to view things in the long term, which will be additionally encouraged, Madison argues, by the fact that they will have an international perspective given the important role they're supposed to play by sharing in the executive power over foreign affairs through the advice and consent they give to all treaties. As Madison puts it in paper 63, the Senate is to possess that sensibility to the opinion of the world, which is perhaps not less necessary in order to merit than it is to obtain the world's respect and confidence. And it's not only, Madison stresses in paper 63, that senators are expected to be individuals who arrive at the Senate with superior qualifications. In addition, their collective as well as individual sense of responsibility or answerability in the long run is to be much greater than that of members of the House because the smallness of their number and the length of their term and their resulting conspicuousness and their greater involvement in foreign policy will make them held more individually accountable by the people and by history. And at the same time, Madison shows in paper 63 that he expects the Senate will be independent enough of the people to be able to check and balance not only the House, but even the American people as a whole or their public opinion. The Senate is to be what Madison calls, in his words, an anchor against popular fluctuations, especially in what Madison calls those particular moments in public affairs when the people, stimulated by some irregular passion or some illicit advantage, or misled by the artful misrepresentations of interested men, may call for measures which they themselves will afterwards be the most ready to lament and condemn. In our next lecture, we'll listen to the critical response the Anti-Federalists give to this Madisonian vision of the proposed Constitution's dynamic separation of powers. Lecture 10, Disputing Separation of Powers, Part 2. In the last lecture, we followed Madison's argument about the true meaning of the separation of powers as taught by Montesquieu, his criticism of the Anti-Federalists for misunderstanding Montesquieu's teaching, and Madison's defense of the proposed Constitution's way of embodying the checks and balances that are the key purpose of the separation of powers. The Anti-Federalists reply by insisting that it is Madison and the Federalists who betray a fundamental misunderstanding or else a willful misapplication of Montesquieu's great teaching. For Montesquieu expresses his theory as a systematic explanation of the British Constitution as Madison and Hamilton repeatedly indicate themselves. To quote Madison in paper 47, the British Constitution was to Montesquieu the perfect model from which the principles and rules were to be drawn and by which all similar works were to be judged. This great political critic appears to have viewed the Constitution of England as the standard, or to use his own expression, as the mirror of political liberty, and to have delivered, in the form of elementary truths, the several characteristic principles of that particular system. But, the Anti-Federalists then protest, 
The British Constitution is monarchic, not republican. And the whole system of British separation of powers, checks and balances, absolutely depends on distributing departments of power into the distinct hands of permanently different and competing social classes or orders. The executive in the hands of an hereditary monarch and his family. And the legislative power divided between an hereditary nobility in the House of Lords and the common people in the House of Commons, with the supreme judiciary power in the hands of a portion of the hereditary House of Lords. In this way, the anti-federalists point out, a system like that has real, deeply rooted social guarantees against the different institutions coalescing. It is certain in such a system that the various institutions will not coalesce because each institution is in the hands of a distinct class or social order, orders whose permanent interests conflict with one another. But in America, there is no such social basis that can be relied on to maintain the permanent separation and competition of the major institutions. There is no sufficient guarantee in the class interests of the members of the different branches that they will not amalgamate in some kind of oligarchic elite against the interests of the people. In this proposed Constitution, the distinctions between the holders of the executive and legislative branches, and even more between the members of the two chambers of the legislative branch, are merely artificial. Nothing but ideal constructs on paper with no basis in social reality. As Patrick Henry says in one of his great orations against the Constitution, Tell me not of checks on paper, but tell me of checks founded on self-love. The English government is founded on self-love. It has interposed that hereditary nobility between the king and the commons. Compare this with your congressional checks. Where are your checks? You have no hereditary nobility, because as Montesquieu says, when you give titles of nobility, you know what you give. But when you give power, you know not what you give. In the British government, there are real balances and checks. In this system, there are only ideal balances. Or as the federal farmer puts it in his 11th letter, in this proposed constitution, he says the members of both houses must generally be the same kind of men. The partitions between the two branches will be merely those of the building in which they sit. There will not be found in them any of those genuine balances and checks among the real different interests, nor can any such balances and checks be formed in the present condition of the United States in any considerable degree of perfection. So the federal farmer goes on to propose a fundamental redesign of the Senate to make the senators more truly the delegates of their respective state governments. Above all, by making the senators dismissible by their state governments. And this, of course, expresses the anti-federalist position that checking and balancing should be not only, or even mainly, within the central government. To try to imitate Montesquieu's system is a hopeless task in America, rather between the state and the central governments. There you have a real basis. That would both ensure a truer checking and balancing and would strengthen government that is more local and closer to the people.
And any danger posed by the House of Representatives, such as Madison worries about, would be most reliably checked not by creating another artificially aristocratic legislative chamber, such as the proposed Senate, but rather by greater power being given to the states and less power to the federal government and thus to the House. And since the Anti-Federalists regard even the House of Representatives as already too aristocratic in itself, they are left cold by the Federalist argument that a still more aristocratic Senate is needed to check the House's populist proclivities. As we've seen, in the Anti-Federalist view, the House ought to be made more populist by having annual elections for a larger number of members. And the House should be given more power to allow it to predominate. Underlying this is a deeper Anti-Federalist preference for relying less on complex government of internal checks and balances and relying instead more on simpler government directly responsive to and derived from and understandable by the people, easily comprehended by the people. This outlook is best expressed in the first letter of Sentinel, where he writes, The form of government which holds those entrusted with power in the greatest responsibility to their constituents is the best. The highest responsibility is to be attained in a simple structure of government. For the great body of the people never steadily attend to the operations of government and for want of due information are liable to be imposed on. If you complicate the plan by various orders, the people will be perplexed and divided in their sentiments about the source of abuses or misconduct. Some will impute it to the Senate, others to the House, and so on. And the interposition of the people may be rendered imperfect or perhaps wholly abortive. But if, imitating the Constitution of Pennsylvania, you vest all the legislative power in one body of men separating the executive and judicial, elected for a short period, and necessarily excluded by rotation from permanency, you will create the most perfect responsibility. For then, whenever the people feel a grievance, they cannot mistake the authors and will apply the remedy with certainty and effect, discarding them at the next election. In general, the Anti-Federalists see the proposed constitutional system as falling between two stools. On the one hand, it fails to meet the standards of the Montesquieuian doctrine, centered on admiration for the monarchic British Constitution, which has far better guarantees of permanent separation and competition among the powers of government by distributing the powers internally among distinct antagonistic social orders. On the other hand, the proposed Constitution fails to make sufficient use of the more truly Republican forms of checking and balancing, namely federalism, which requires creating an equilibrium between state and federal government, and which facilitates keeping government directly responsible to and reflective of the people, which means relying less on internal checks and balances and more on making government simple with power weighted toward the popularly elected and controlled legislature. The Anti-Federalists see the attempt in the proposed Constitution to create artificial substitutes for the competing class-based institutions of England as likely to fail and to result in simply a more oligarchic, consolidated federal government. And the Anti-Federalists are especially skeptical of the proposed Senate. 
which Madison sees in this proposed Senate as an assembly of elder statesmen counteracting populism. The Anti-Federalists decry the Senate as, in the words of a New York writer who signs himself Cincinnatus, a monster of baneful aristocracy which will swallow up the democratic rights and liberties of the nation. The Anti-Federalist worry is focused not only on the elitist character of the Senate in itself, but on what they see as this frightening violation of the principle of separation of powers that gives the Senate so crucial a share in the judicial and, still worse, in the executive branches through this assigned role of giving advice and consent to treaties and thus becoming deeply involved in foreign policy and through the assigned role of giving advice and consent to all the president's senior appointments in the executive branch. As this writer, Cincinnati, says, we have seen powers in every branch of government in violation of all principle and all safety condensed in this aristocratic Senate. Repeatedly, the Anti-Federalists warn, these powers that intrude the Senate into the executive sphere make it all too likely that the Senate will coalesce with the president, either by dominating the president, making him a tool of the oligarchic Senate, or else by forcing the president to use the perquisites of his office to seduce and corrupt enough senators to create a party of his own within the Senate that will allow the president to make it his tool. And to substantiate this worry with historical evidence, the Anti-Federalists point to the way the British king, under the system of bribery introduced by his Prime Minister, Sir Robert Walpole, had thus corrupted the British Parliament in the early 18th century. Either way, Anti-Federalists fear, an oligarchic combination will form that will overwhelm the House. Thus Sentinel warns in his first letter, the President, who would be a mere pageant of state unless he coincides with the views of the Senate, would either become the head of the aristocratic junto in that body or its minion. Even some leading Federalists confessed unease at the design of the Senate. Thus James Wilson, who had played a leading, constructive role in the Constitutional Convention and who was the principal defender in Pennsylvania of the proposed Constitution, said in a major speech in the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention, I confess, I wish the powers of the Senate were not as they are. I think it would have been better if those powers had been distributed in other parts of the system. And Madison himself, months later, in a speech he made in the First Congress, conceded, looking back retrospectively, that, in his words, perhaps there was no argument urged with more success or more plausibly grounded against the Constitution under which we are now deliberating than that found in the mingling of the executive and legislative branches of the government in one body that is, in his favorite, the Senate. Now, this anti-federalist alarm about the powers of the proposed Senate and their fear more generally of oligarchic tendencies in any national legislature, even in the House of Representatives, makes the anti-federalist view of the presidency more complicated and divided. Of course, it's no surprise to see that most of the anti-federalists voice a pretty simple and straightforward fear of what they see as the excessive and ill-defined powers given to this office of the presidency, which they see as posing a threat of monarchic despotism. They follow a deep worry that was expressed by Benjamin Franklin in a major speech that he delivered in writing early in the convention itself. 
There he put his warning in these words. There is a natural inclination in mankind to kingly government. It sometimes relieves them from aristocratic domination. I am apprehensive, therefore, perhaps too apprehensive, that the government of these states may in future times end in monarchy. A few days later, in the convention, George Mason had spoken in horror of the proposal for a single chief executive with his veto power over the legislation. We are not indeed, he said, constituting a British government, but a more dangerous monarchy, an elective one. We are introducing a new principle into our system. I never could agree to give up all the rights of the people to a single magistrate. If more than one had been fixed on, then greater powers might be entrusted to the executive. In particular, strong worry is voiced about the Constitution's open-ended wording of the grant of the executive power to the president. Will this not mean in practice, some anti-federalists ask, that the president can interpret and apply the laws as he wishes? Thus William Sims of Massachusetts asks, Is there no instance in which he may reject the sense of the legislature and establish his own? And so far would he not be to all intents and purposes absolute? The Anti-Federalists do recognize and concede that the nature of the executive power, especially in domestic emergencies and wartime, demands much greater unity and decisive forcefulness and secrecy than does either the legislative or judicial power. But what is proposed by most of the Anti-Federalists, led by George Mason and Sentinel, as well as the Federal Farmer, is a small executive council the chairman of which would be the chief executive as first among equals, but whose other members would be elected by the people independently of the president to advise and share executive power and responsibility, thus avoiding a monarchic executive by making the president only the chairman of an executive committee, and thus also avoiding what the dissenting minority at the Pennsylvania Convention calls the dangerous and improper mixture of the executive with the legislative that's involved in the role of the proposed Senate. Because if there was an executive council, the Senate wouldn't have to give its advice and consent to treaties. The council could, and similarly to appointments. In their argument for a plural executive, here again, the anti-federalists appeal to the entire historical record, all the great historical examples of the classical Republican tradition none of which ever had a single chief executive anywhere near as powerful as this proposed president. The Roman Republic, which flourished for centuries, fighting, of course, many successful wars, always had a dual consulship and a plural tribunate. And when that was eventually abolished in favor of a single council by Augustus Caesar, it signaled the death knell of the Republic and the beginning of the empire. Athens always had an executive council, the Prytaneum. Sparta had four chief executives, two kings for the conduct of war, two ephors for domestic administration. In medieval and modern times, they point out, the great republics of Italy and northern Europe have never allowed such power in the hands of a single chief executive. The Venetian doge, for example, was notoriously weak. But the complexity of the Anti-Federalist position appears when we find that some of the Anti-Federalists, a significant minority, 
expressed the contrary fear. Not that the president will be too strong, but rather that he'll be too weak or insufficiently independent to balance the potentially oligarchic legislature and judiciary. Thus, John Mercer of Maryland writes, The only remedy the ingenuity of man has discovered for this evil of oligarchy is a properly constituted and independent executive, an avenger of public wrongs. And Mercer was driven so far as to argue for a chief executive elected for life, whose person, Mercer writes, must be sacred from impeachment, and who would appoint the members of the Senate. And Richard Henry Lee expresses the hope that the chief executive, while he should be chair of an executive council independent of the Senate, would tower above his colleagues and be a powerfully popular leader to whom the people might rally, perhaps because he would be more directly elected than in the proposed electoral college system. Such a national leader, Lee suggests, would not only pose a counterweight to the dangerous oligarchic tendencies of the legislature, especially in the Senate, but would also, Henry Lee points out, prevent or counter the tendency to fragmentation of public opinion around competing powerful regional or state leaders, military heroes or others, powerful individuals in the various states who, in the absence of a single popular executive leader in the national government, might become successful revolutionary regional demagogues. The federal farmer most eloquently expresses this rather fascinating minority anti-federalist view in his 14th letter, where he writes that history shows that the people usually point out a first man who must be a visible point serving as a common center in the government towards which to draw their eyes and attachments. Superior in the opinion of the people to the most popular men in the different parts of the community, else the people will be apt to divide and follow their respective leaders. Aspiring men, armies, and navies have not often been kept in tolerable order by the decrees of a senate or an executive council. A council will generally consist of the aristocracy and not stand so indifferent between it and the people as will a first magistrate. The Federal Farmer goes on to admit that his colleagues, his fellow anti-federalists, worry about the monarchic implications of such a preeminent individual. But he responds, our executive may be altogether elective and possess no power but as the substitute of the people, and that well limited and only for a limited time. So the Federal Farmer concludes by calling for a short presidential term of office and frequent elections. So we thus find the Anti-Federalists in their proposals for an executive council with a single powerful chairman wrestling to conceive simultaneously an executive branch that will avoid the danger of excessively monarchic power while strengthening the balancing power of a more trustworthy and more popular or democratic executive. Now to all these worries about the proposed presidential office, Alexander Hamilton begins the Federalist reply in paper 67, with an unusually impassioned, indignant rejection of what he characterizes as the totally unfair and deceitful charge that the proposed presidency is tantamount to a monarchic office. And in paper 69, Hamilton easily proves that there's a vast difference between the powers and role assigned the proposed president 
and the much greater powers of even the limited English monarch. But in paper 70, Hamilton has to acknowledge that in the history of republicanism, and especially classical republics, single independent chief executives with terms of more than a few months have generally been avoided. And an anti-federalist might well wonder whether the opening passion of Hamilton's defense does not betray a certain defensiveness or sense of vulnerability on this point. Is Hamilton not, after all, an anti-federalist might well ask, seeking to incorporate into the new American republicanism at least important ingredients of the monarchic tradition? And certainly Hamilton's defense of this presidency is not mainly on grounds of it being republican or what republicanism requires, but rather on the grounds of what effective governing requires. And he makes that very clear at the end of paper 77. And he argues in paper 70 that those who attack the proposed presidency on account of its strength are making an argument that endangers the very cause of republicanism. Because the implication is, Hamilton claims, that Republican liberty cannot be made safely compatible with what Hamilton calls a vigorous executive. And if that were true, Hamilton says, that would mean that Republican liberty is incompatible with good government. For as Hamilton explains in the famous words of Paper 70, energy in the executive is a leading character in the definition of good government. It is essential to the protection of the community against foreign attacks. It is not less essential to the steady administration of the laws, to the protection of property against those irregular and high-handed combinations which sometimes interrupt the ordinary course of justice, to the security of liberty against the enterprises and assaults of ambition, of faction, and of anarchy. But energy requires, Hamilton goes on to argue, a single chief who wields full command and final responsibility. In contrast, an executive council will inevitably lead to divisions at the highest level, which, as Hamilton puts it, lessen the respectability, weaken the authority, and distract the plans and operations of those whom they divide. In addition, Hamilton points out, the dispersion of authority in a plural executive council does not strengthen responsibility to the people, but instead weakens or undermines such responsibility because it makes it difficult or impossible for the people or public opinion to judge who is responsible for controversial executive decisions or conduct. The members of a council would each have a strong incentive to disavow their own responsibility for unpopular or unsuccessful measures and foist the blame on the other members. It's therefore actually, Hamilton argues, a single chief executive who is more easily made subject to the people's ultimate judgment and control. And in paper 71, Hamilton shows that he expects, under the system proposed, that the Electoral College will make the presidential elections an expression of the people's judgment on the sitting president. But that means implies also required for the sake of energy and responsibility in the executive, as Hamilton contends in paper 71, is a considerable duration of the term of office in order to give the executive 
the necessary amount of independence so that the president will be willing to take temporarily unpopular stands and so that he'll be able to maintain his independence in the struggle of checks and balances with the legislature, for which his qualified veto power is his main weapon and shield, as Hamilton points out in paper 73. And the veto power is also, as Hamilton puts it, something that furnishes an additional security against the inaction of improper laws. In paper 72, Hamilton argues further for the benefits of making the president eligible for re-election, arguing not only on all the previous grounds that I've just gone through, and not only on the grounds that re-election will bring in stability and experience, but in addition, because of the need to make the office holders concern for the long-term public good reinforced by the prospect of long-term personal spiritual rewards for himself. Above all, the spiritual reward that satisfies what Hamilton calls the love of fame, the ruling passion of the noblest minds, which would prompt a man to plan and undertake extensive and arduous enterprises for the public benefit, requiring considerable time to mature and perfect them. Hamilton thus highlights the Federalist insistence on the healthiness of the ambition, the love of fame that is expected to animate those individuals who seek the highest national office. And similarly, in responding to the anti-Federalist worries about a coalescence of the Senate and the President in an oppressive, oligarchic, aristocratic junto or elite, Hamilton reiterates the Federalist insistence that, as he puts it, the institution of delegated power implies that there is a portion of virtue and honor among mankind which may be a reasonable foundation of confidence. A man disposed, he says, to view human nature as it is without either flattering its virtues or exaggerating its vices will see sufficient ground of confidence in the probity of the Senate to rest satisfied not only that it will be impracticable to the executive to corrupt or seduce a majority of its members, but that the necessity of its cooperation in the business of appointments will be a considerable and salutary restraint upon the conduct of that chief executive magistrate. This moderate degree of Federalist trust in the virtue of which at least some rare individuals are capable is nowhere more evident than in Hamilton's defense of the proposed Constitution's judiciary and Supreme Court in papers 78 and following. And here again, we find that where the Federalists see good grounds to bestow the country's trust, the Anti-Federalists see an imprudent and dangerous opening to aristocratic subversion of the Democratic Republic. In our next lecture, we will follow Hamilton's great articulation of the defensive argument for judicial review and for the other powers of the proposed federal judiciary. And we'll consider the strengths and weaknesses of Hamilton's argument as these become evident in light of the Anti-Federalist attack on the proposed judiciary. Lecture 11, The Supreme Court and Judicial Review.
At the end of the last lecture, I suggested that Hamilton's stress on the need for a prudent degree of trust in the virtue of which some rare individuals are capable becomes especially evident in his defense of the proposed Constitution's Judiciary and Supreme Court in papers 78 and following. And here again, we find that where the Federalists see reasonable grounds to place the country's trust in selected individuals of superior moral and intellectual qualities, the distrustful anti-Federalists see an imprudent and dangerous opening to aristocratic subversion. The Federal Farmer goes so far as to declare that, as he puts it in his 15th letter, we may fairly conclude we're more in danger of sowing the seeds of arbitrary government in this department, referring to the proposed judiciary, than in any other. The Anti-Federalists have several different worries about the proposed national judiciary, culminating in the Supreme Court. For one thing, they see the federal judiciary, as we've seen in earlier lectures, designed to help weaken popular jury authority, not least by the explicit grant of the higher court's power to review and overturn jury judgments of fact as well as law. For another thing, they see the jurisdiction of the federal courts as going far beyond what is necessary in a federal system, and they fear that as a result, the federal courts will totally dominate and render impotent the state courts. But the most fundamental and far-reaching and far-sighted complaint is about the extremely undemocratic or aristocratic power of the Supreme Court, both because it is an unelected body with lifetime appointments, exercising final appeal, deliberating in secret, and making decisions over which neither the people nor the people's elected representatives have any say, and still worse, on account of what we nowadays call judicial review, or the judiciary's power and at the summit, the Supreme Court's power to declare null and void because unconstitutional laws that have been duly enacted by the people's elected representatives. And it is the anti-federalist Brutus who is the first to articulate the full meaning of what we call nowadays judicial review in the American system. And he does so in terms of great alarm. Brutus discovers judicial review on the basis of his analysis of the meaning of the following words of Article 3, Section 2 of the proposed Constitution, defining the judicial power. The Constitution reads as follows. The judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution. Brutus contends that to be given the power to judge constitutional cases according to equity means, as is taught, he says, by great traditional authorities like Blackstone and Grotius, it means to be given the power to judge according to the spirit of the law, even outside or against the letter of the law. And it also means to be given the power to judge in accordance with the implicit intention of the original lawgiver. Now, Brutus argues, it follows from the fact that this power of judging according to equity as well as law is given explicitly to the federal courts and to no other part of the government 
that this task is assigned to them, to the judicial branch, and to no other branch. For no other branch or institution is given explicitly this power by the wording of the proposed Constitution. And in particular, the legislature is nowhere given such a power. Only the judiciary has the power to judge according to equity the laws in the Constitution, and equity means the spirit and intention of the original founders. So Brutus insists that if the people adopt this Constitution, he warns, they should realize that will be subordinating their own elected representatives to the judiciary, since it is the judiciary alone that is authorized explicitly to be the final interpreter of the meaning, the spirit, the intention of the Constitution. In Brutus's words, in the exercise of this power, they, meaning the federal judges, will not be subordinate to but above the legislature. The legislature can only exercise such powers as are given them by the Constitution. They cannot assume any of the rights annexed to the judicial, for this plain reason, that the same authority which vested the legislature with their powers vested the judicial with theirs. The Supreme Court, then, have a right, independent of the legislature, to give a construction to the Constitution and every part of it. And there is no power provided in this system to correct their construction or do it away. If, therefore, the legislature pass any laws inconsistent with the sense the judges put upon the Constitution, they will declare it void. And therefore, in this respect, their power is superior to that of the legislature. And then Brutus draws out in lurid terms what he regards as the frightening implications of this. I question, he writes, whether the world ever saw, in any period of it, a court of justice invested with such immense powers, and yet placed in a situation so little responsible. The judges in England are under the control of the legislature, for they are bound to determine according to the laws passed by them. But the judges under this Constitution will control the legislature, for the Supreme Court are authorized, in the last resort, to determine what is the extent of the powers of Congress. They are to give the Constitution an explanation, and there is no power above them to set aside their judgment. They are independent of the people, of the legislature, and of every power under heaven. Men placed in this situation will generally soon feel themselves independent of heaven itself. It's in response to this sounding of an alarm by Brutus, an alarm which Hamilton actually quotes in paraphrase in Federalist Paper 81, that Hamilton is impelled to defend the proposed judiciary and in Paper 78 builds his own famous and very different case for the reasonableness of the power of judicial review. And it is, of course, Hamilton's case for judicial review built on later by John Marshall, rather than Brutus's, which has become the canonical argument. But Hamilton is only driven or provoked to make this case for judicial review because of the challenge posed by Brutus. So here, perhaps more than anywhere else, we see how importantly the Anti-Federalists contributed to the defining and articulation of the meaning of the Constitution precisely by their heated opposition to it and the provocation that caused.
Hamilton begins his defense of the proposed judicial power in paper 78 by asserting in phrases that have become famous that the judicial branch, in his words, will always be the least dangerous to the political rights of the Constitution because it will be least in a capacity to annoy or injure them. And he goes on to explain the reason. The judiciary, he says, has no influence over either the sword or the purse, no direction either of the strength or of the wealth of the society, and can take no active resolution whatever. From its natural feebleness, it is in continual jeopardy of being overpowered, awed, or influenced by its coordinate branches. Now this claim of Hamilton's as to the minimal danger from the judiciary is hotly disputed by the leading anti-federalists. Richard Henry Lee, writing as the federal farmer, warns, The judges and juries in their interpretations and in directing the execution of them have a very extensive influence for preserving or destroying liberty and for changing the nature of the government. Judicial power is of such a nature that when we have ascertained and fixed its limits with all the caution and precision we can, it will yet be formidable, somewhat arbitrary, and despotic. That is, after all our cares, we must leave a vast deal to the discretion and interpretation to the wisdom, integrity, and politics of the judges. When the legislature makes a bad law, or the first executive magistrate usurps upon the rights of the people, the people discover the evil much sooner than the abuses of power in the judicial department, the proceedings of which are more intricate, complex, and out of the people's immediate view. A bad law immediately excites a general alarm. A bad judicial determination though not less pernicious in its consequences, is immediately felt, probably, by a single individual only, and noticed only by his neighbors and a few spectators in the court. One can wonder whether Hamilton ever really faces up to this argument, warning against the potential power and therefore evils of the judiciary. There's even some reason to wonder if Hamilton is being altogether candid when he makes this initial and conspicuous claim of his as to the relative weakness and hence innocuousness of the judiciary. Because Hamilton makes this claim about it being the least dangerous branch before he has admitted that Brutus is essentially correct in discerning that the proposed federal judiciary is designed to have the final unappealable power to declare any law unconstitutional and thus void. And something else indicates that Hamilton is not being entirely honest in this passage, proclaiming the weakness of the judiciary under this Constitution. Because in a footnote to this passage, Hamilton appeals to and quotes the authority of Montesquieu. Now, in his discussion of the judiciary, Montesquieu did indeed, as Hamilton quotes him here, speak of it as being so comparatively weak as to be next to nothing in power compared to the legislative and executive branches. Fair enough. But in Montesquieu's discussion, there is nowhere any hint of a power in the judiciary to declare laws unconstitutional. In other words, Montesquieu is thinking of a judiciary as it appears in the British Constitution, which has no such power. 
Hamilton misleadingly cites Montesquieu as if Montesquieu were talking about a judiciary like the American, which has judicial review. Still, when Hamilton does go on to introduce and admit and recognize that the proposed judiciary is intended to have the power of judicial review, Hamilton repeatedly denies what he calls the imagination that the doctrine would imply a superiority of the judiciary to the legislative power. It is urged, Hamilton recognizes, referring, of course, to Brutus, that the authority which can declare the acts of another void must necessarily be superior to the one whose acts may be declared void. Hamilton denies that, but it's not perfectly clear that he ever successfully refutes this conclusion, which, as we've seen, is emphatically drawn by Brutus. And at the heart of his own explanation of the judicial power, Hamilton says that the judiciary has been, in his words, designed in order, among other things, to keep the legislators within the limits assigned to their authority. Does this not sound like a superior's function? Does not an institution which is designed to keep another institution in its place sound like a superior controlling the other as inferior? Can the doctrine of judicial review avoid the implication of judicial supremacy in some important degree, at least? Not, to be sure, in terms of physical power, power of the purse or the sword, but in terms of legal and moral power? And how is this enormous power of an unelected body, appointed for life, deliberating in secret, compatible with democratic republicanism? That's the question. Brutus and the Anti-Federalist Press. How can one escape the Anti-Federalist conclusion that the Supreme Court is at least a somewhat aristocratic institution, designed to, at the least, check and limit the more democratic branches of government? Hamilton's response is to execute an amazing gambit. He claims to prove that judicial review is, in fact, a democratic principle, an expression of the supreme power of the majority will of the people. How does he manage to make such an argument? He begins from the premise that representative government has no legitimate authority to exceed its lawful commission given by the people. And then he adds that in the proposed American system, the people's commission will be the written constitution adopted by the people as their fundamental law through the delegates they have elected in each state convention. Therefore, any governmental action that violates the Constitution will be a violation of the people's most fundamental will constituting the political order. And so, to declare laws or actions of the government null and void on the basis of their contravening the Constitution is not opposing but enforcing the people's most basic intention and will. The argument up to this point is very powerful, but unfortunately it does not yet prove what Hamilton needs to prove. Because this argument does not yet prove that it is the unelected Supreme Court that has been delegated by the people to have the final say in interpreting what the people intend their constitution to mean. And it is striking that Hamilton does not take advantage of the argument Brutus had made to the effect that the wording of the proposed Constitution's grant of judicial power, because of the use of the term equity, 
itself implies that the courts are to have the final say in interpreting the Constitution. Hamilton apparently does not buy such an interpretation that so freighted a meaning was ever intended for the term equity. In the subsequent paper 81, Hamilton goes so far as to say that, in his words, there is not a syllable in the Constitution which directly empowers the national courts to construe the laws according to the spirit of the Constitution. And he then adds that this doctrine of judicial review is not deducible from any circumstance peculiar to the plan of the convention. So Hamilton wants to provide a justification that does not come from the text of the Constitution or from the convention. He wants to deduce judicial review from something more substantial, and certainly more substantial than the mere meaning of this one word equity. Hamilton's argument is, that judicial review is intrinsic to the very idea of a constitution that expresses the will of the people. Where that popular constitutional will is more authoritative than even the will of the people's elected representative government. But to repeat, the question then becomes, why is it the courts which have the supreme and final say in interpreting what the people mean by their constitution? And here in paper 78, Hamilton admits that one might suppose that, as he puts it, the legislative body are themselves the constitutional judges of their own powers. In other words, Hamilton points to the anti-federalist argument, which says the part of government best suited to understand what the people mean and intend by their constitution is the part that is elected by the people, the legislature. And in contrast, judges, as unelected, as never having to stand for election or re-election, as never having to go out and campaign and get to know the people, are not responsible to the people and are not qualified, as are the elected representatives who have to campaign for election amongst the people, to know what is the people's understanding of their constitution's meaning. As Brutus says in his 15th and 16th essays, had the construction of the Constitution been left with the legislature, if they exceed their powers or sought to find in the spirit of the Constitution more than was expressed in the letter, the people from whom they derived their power could remove them and do themselves right. And indeed, I can see no other remedy that the people can have against their rulers for encroachments of this nature. But when this power is lodged in the hands of men independent of the people, and of their representatives, and who are not constitutionally accountable for their opinions, no way is left to control them. This supreme controlling power should be in the choice of the people, or else you establish an authority independent and not amenable at all, which is repugnant to the principles of a free government. Agreeable to these principles, I suppose, the supreme judicial ought to be liable to be called to account for any misconduct by some body of men who depend upon the people for their places. Now, Hamilton counters this by saying the following. It is far more rational to suppose that the courts were designed to be an intermediate body between the people and the legislature in order, among other things, to keep the latter within the limits assigned to their authority. But why is it more rational to suppose this? 
The reason Hamilton proceeds to give is the following in his famous key sentence. The interpretation of the laws is the proper and peculiar province of the courts. A constitution is in fact and must be regarded by the judges as a fundamental law. It therefore belongs to them to ascertain its meaning, as well as the meaning of any particular act proceeding from the legislative body. In other words, Hamilton appeals to what he claims is implied in what he terms the nature and reason of the thing, the nature of the judicial function, which is uniquely suited to interpreting laws and therefore the Constitution as fundamental law. As he puts it later in paper 81, this doctrine is not deducible from any circumstance peculiar to the plan of the convention, but from the general theory of a limited constitution, and as far as it is true, is equally applicable to most, if not all, the state governments. There can be no objection, therefore, on this account to the federal judicature, which will not lie against the local judicatures in general, and which will not serve to condemn every constitution that attempts to set bounds to legislative discretion. So Hamilton claims that the doctrine of judicial review applies to every Republican constitutional order, and in particular to all the states. But to this argument, Brutus has, of course, already protested that in none of the states, and certainly not in New York State, is there any such doctrine of judicial review as is being proposed in the new constitution according to Hamilton. Brutus, in effect, asks, if Hamilton is right about this doctrine, being derived from the general theory of republican constitutionalism, then how come no republic has ever heard of this doctrine before in history, including the history of the 13 states? At the core of Hamilton's justification for judicial review is a new claim about the nature of the judiciary, the claim that such power of judicial review is intrinsic to the function of the judiciary under a written constitution. And this seems to mean that the judges are uniquely qualified to exercise such power. Judges alone are qualified to interpret the underlying spirit and meaning of the Constitution and the original or deepest intention of its framers, and above all, the deepest intention of the people, both the people who originally ratified the Constitution through their delegates and the people in every subsequent generation who are continuing to accept it. And this seems to mean that the basis of the whole doctrine is the special expertise and virtue of the judges. But, as the anti-federalists have stressed, this seems an aristocratic argument, not a democratic argument. And this aristocratic character of Hamilton's argument becomes still more plausible when Hamilton goes on to note in paper 78 that the court will sometimes have to stand in opposition not only to the will of the legislature or the agents of the people, but also to the manifest will of the people themselves at times when the public or the majority is temporarily corrupted into threatening the rights of minorities or individuals against the underlying principles of their constitution. And on such occasions, Hamilton writes, it is easy to see that it would require an uncommon portion of fortitude in the judges to do their duty as faithful guardians of the Constitution 
where legislative invasions of it had been instigated by the major voice of the community. Hamilton thus makes clearer and clearer as he goes along that the Federalists are indeed relying on and hoping for superior virtues in the judges, both intellectual virtues of learning in the law and jurisprudence that will endow the judges with a superior capacity of insight into the full implications of what the people intended in their most solemn and fundamental civic act, the adopting and accepting of their constitution, but also moral virtues, virtues of heart or character, fortitude, as he says, that will enable the judges to assert and defend this most serious intention of the people, even against what may be a current mood or passion of the people. As Hamilton puts it, there can be but few men in the society who will have sufficient skill in the laws to qualify them for the stations of judges. And making the proper deductions for the ordinary depravity of human nature, the number must be still smaller of those who unite the requisite integrity with the requisite knowledge. Hamilton thus does conceive of the federal judiciary, especially in its exercise of the power of judicial review, as being a kind of needed aristocracy, but one whose special virtues are in service to the people, to the people's most fundamental and serious will. In paper 81, Hamilton replies to Brutus's argument that it would be wiser, better, more legitimate to vest the supreme interpretation of the Constitution in the legislature as the people's elected representatives. And his reply is based on challenging the qualifications, both intellectual and moral qualifications, for such a task of elected representatives. The members of the legislature, he writes, will rarely be chosen with a view to those qualifications which fit men for the stations of judges who are to be men selected for their knowledge of the laws acquired by long and laborious study. And in addition, he points out that legislative bodies have, as he puts it, a natural propensity to party divisions. And the habit, he says, of being continually marshaled on opposite sides will be apt, too apt to stifle the voice both of law and of equity if legislatures are given that final constitutional say. But the full scope of Hamilton's conception of this aristocratic role of the federal courts emerges only when we see that he is quietly indicating that the intention is for the courts to protect not only the Constitution, but in addition, rights of individuals that are not necessarily in the Constitution. And in addition to that, general unwritten principles of justice. Thus Hamilton writes in paper 78, that, in his words, this independence of the judges is equally requisite to guard the Constitution and the rights of individuals. So he makes it clear, it's not just the Constitution, it's something beyond that, the rights of individuals. And then he goes on to deliver the following most pregnant statement. But it is not with a view to infractions of the Constitution only that the independence of the judges may be an essential safeguard against the effects of occasional ill-humors in the society. These sometimes extend no farther than to the injury of the private rights of particular classes of citizens by unjust and partial laws. Here also 
The firmness of the judicial magistracy is of vast importance in mitigating the severity and confining the operation of such laws. It not only serves to moderate the immediate mischiefs of those which may have been passed, but it operates as a check upon the legislative body in passing them, who, perceiving that obstacles to the success of an iniquitous intention are to be expected from the scruples of the courts, are in a manner compelled by the very motives of the injustice they meditate to qualify their attempts. This is a circumstance calculated to have more influence upon the character of our governments than but few may imagine. Now, in order to understand what Hamilton is hinting at here and getting at, we must bear in mind that he is assuming that there will be no Bill of Rights as part of the Constitution. He has in mind that the courts will therefore have to exercise a rather wide discretion in applying unwritten and only implicit and traditional rules of equity and common law and perhaps even natural law and natural right. And this brings us to the last great bone of contention between Federalists and Anti-Federalists, namely the Anti-Federalist complaint and expression of alarm at the fact that there is no formal written bill or declaration of rights as part of the proposed Constitution. In our next and last lecture, we will treat this great issue and see how it brings into focus some of the deepest ways in which each side has contributed to our American civic heritage. Lecture 12, The Bill of Rights. Throughout the great debate, a leading feature of the Anti-Federalist critique of the proposed Constitution is their complaint about the absence of a Bill of Rights. Or, and this becomes more pronounced as the debate goes on, and the Anti-Federalists see that they are losing because states are ratifying, their insistence that a Bill of Rights must be added in amendments to the proposed Constitution. And it was in this dimension of their critique that they, of course, eventually tasted victory and made their most famous and massively significant contribution to the Constitution and to our whole political tradition. With the significant help of Thomas Jefferson and other figures who supported ratifying the proposed Constitution, but agreed with this part of the anti-federalist criticism of the proposed Constitution. Yet, as we shall see, this victory was not as substantial as it at first seems. And even such as it was, it was bittersweet. Because the Bill of Rights that was added by way of amendments drawn up in the first Congress under the guidance of James Madison, did not alter anything important in the proposed Constitution. The Bill of Rights that Madison designed, in fact, strengthened the new Constitution in significant ways, and even gave to the central government, and especially to the federal judiciary, some important additional power, contrary to the wish and intention of the Anti-Federalists in their agitation for a Bill of Rights. So there's considerable irony in this anti-federalist victory. 
The agitation for a Bill of Rights began in the closing days of the convention itself, starting on August 20th with a proposal by Charles Pinckney of South Carolina It had been decided to insert into relevant sections of the Constitution statements of certain basic rights, the guarantee of the writ of habeas corpus, as well as trial by jury in criminal cases, together with prohibitions on religious tests for office, on ex post facto laws and bills of attainder. Pinckney had urged, unsuccessfully, that a guarantee of freedom of the press also be inserted. On September 12th, when the convention was about to conclude its business, George Mason expressed his deep dismay that there was not a formal Bill of Rights at the head of the proposed Constitution. And Elbridge Gerry, a leading delegate from Massachusetts, moved with Mason's second that a Bill of Rights be drawn up. Now, both of these important figures, Mason and Gerry, had already made plain their intention to oppose ratification of the Constitution. And this helps explain the strange reaction of the rest of the delegates to their proposal. The motion was unanimously voted down by all the delegations from the ten states that were still present. And what is still more surprising, there wasn't even any prolonged discussion giving the reasons for the rejection of a Bill of Rights. So we're left to surmise what might have been the reasons for this rejection. Some scholars have surmised that it was felt that this would open up a large new field of difficulties and controversies just when the tired delegates were concluding their long and arduous tasks, rife with delicate compromises. The problem with this explanation is that Mason had suggested that, in his words, with the aid of the state declarations, a bill might be prepared in a few hours. Mason was referring to the fact that eight of the states had existing bills of rights which closely resembled one another because all were modeled on the great Virginia Declaration of Rights which had been crafted by Mason himself. So Mason is on very strong ground when he implies that a template already existed and that he, as the genius behind that template, could have easily drawn up a national adaptation of it. So it seems that it was rather something deeply troubling about the idea of such a Declaration of Rights that moved the Convention to refuse to even consider it. What were the serious reasons why the idea of a Declaration of Rights was so troubling? Why did the Federalists come around to the idea only gradually and reluctantly? The reasons become clearer when we consider how the agitation for a Bill of Rights played out in the subsequent ratification debates. For this agitation was seen by both sides as part of the broader effort by the Anti-Federalists to require amendments that would decisively weaken the proposed central government. And it was part of the Anti-Federalist campaign to weaken also the people's trust in the proposed central government. The Anti-Federalists, in line with their strong distrust of the oligarchic tendencies of all government that was not local and close to the people, thought that it was a healthy thing to inspire the people with vigilance against and even some distrust of this new central government. And this goes with the specific content of the Bill of Rights as envisaged by the Anti-Federalists and also by Thomas Jefferson. Because the Anti-Federalists have in mind 
something like what was found in the state bills of rights, the paradigm being the Virginia Declaration. These state bills of rights, which were a legacy of the revolutionary period, were themselves revolutionary and radical documents. They included broad statements of political philosophy, elaborating the basic principles of justice and of legitimate government based on the sovereignty of the people, expressed in the ideas of natural rights, the state of nature, the social contract, and stressing the people's right of revolutionary resistance to government when it becomes oppressive. These declarations of basic principles of political philosophy were a legacy of the struggle against English domination and also of the earlier struggle within England against the oppressive prerogatives of the monarchy. And these declarations breathe the spirit of distrust of government that was characteristic of the revolutionary period and movement. And the anti-federalists to some extent hope to transfer that spirit to the people's outlook on this new national government. But the anti-federalists also stress the need for such solemn declarations as means of educating the people in their civic principles, rights, and duties. In other words, they have in mind declarations that would be declarations of duties as well as rights, and that would include strong exhortations to civic virtue and even to religious piety, embodying an echo of the classical Republican concern for popular virtue as a bulwark of freedom. Thus, to take the paradigmatic example, the Virginia Declaration of Rights concludes with the following provisions, that no free government or the blessings of liberty can be preserved to any people but by a firm adherence to justice, moderation, temperance, frugality, and virtue, and by frequent recurrence to fundamental principles, that religion or the duty which we owe to our Creator, and the manner of discharging it, can be directed by reason and conviction, not by force or violence. And therefore, all men are equally entitled to the free exercise of religion according to the dictates of conscience, and that it is the mutual duty of all to practice Christian forbearance, love, and charity towards each other. So it's in this context of the idea of broad statements of basic republican principles and of moral virtues and of civic and religious duties that these state declarations also enumerate basic inalienable rights and freedoms of the populace and of individuals, which the central government, or in the case of the states, the state governments, are explicitly required to preserve and respect as sacrosanct. In particular, freedom of the press, freedom of religion and conscience, and basic common law procedural rights in civil and criminal law. And the Anti-Federalists have something similar in mind to this sort of package for their proposed Bill of Rights. But finally, and most troubling of all for the Federalists, Jefferson, as well as the Anti-Federalists, want to include in the Declaration of Rights specific and far-reaching prohibitions on what the central government can do. In particular, they want some sort of prohibition on a professional army in peacetime, and a strong statement affirming the state militias as the backbone of the nation's defense. They want, in addition, 
explicit limitations on the national government's powers to tax and explicit limitations on the power of the government in the, the central government to regulate the economy. And in particular, Jefferson and the Anti-Federalists called for a prohibition of any government-established monopolies, which would, of course, have gravely limited the possibility of any public utilities under the national government. And they also want strong affirmations of states' rights and state prerogatives. In short, Jefferson and the Anti-Federalists hope, through the vehicle of a Bill of Rights, to win some of the restrictions they wish to see put on this central government's powers. And so especially when we see this last aspect of what Jefferson and the Anti-Federalists had in mind, we can better understand what is probably the most important reason why the Federalists were so troubled by the proposal for a Bill of Rights. Because the Federalists quite rightly saw that the agitation for a Bill of Rights was a part of a larger movement aimed at weakening or frustrating the Constitution's forging of a powerful central government. But in addition to this grave concern, the Federalists, including Madison, also had some other arguments expressing serious worries in principle about the effect of a Bill of Rights, some of which are laid out in Hamilton's Federalist Paper 84. The primary argument of the Federalists is that a Bill of Rights is not necessary. Historically, as Hamilton stresses, Bills of Rights have been needed to restrict or deny the traditional, oppressive, feudal claims of monarchic, unrepresentative government, divine right of kings, and so on. But, Hamilton protests, we no longer face such a government as we did face when we were ruled by and struggling against the British. As Hamilton puts it in paper 84, it is evident, therefore, that according to their primitive signification, bills of rights have no application to constitutions professedly founded upon the power of the people and executed by their immediate representatives and servants. Here, in strictness, the people surrender nothing, and as they retain everything, they have no need of particular reservations. Besides, Hamilton argues, it's not words on paper that really protect rights. It's the proper design of the Constitution, creating a government that truly represents the people, that is energetic enough to protect rights, and that is safely checked and balanced from within. But we have created such a government. And as Hamilton says, the truth is, after all the declamation we have heard, that the Constitution is itself, in every rational sense, and to every useful purpose, a Bill of Rights. But the Federalists argue that a Bill of Rights is not only unnecessary, but would be, in crucial respects, risky. Because, they say, to lay down a list of rights that limit the government would carry the dangerous implication that the government would otherwise, without the list, have the power to infringe those rights. But our whole constitutional system, Hamilton argues, is based on the principle that all rights and powers not explicitly given to the government by the Constitution are kept by the people. And this is reinforced by the fact that the powers granted to the national legislature in this Constitution are enumerated powers. There is no blanket grant of power. 
In addition, the Federalists warned, to this dangerous implication of a Bill of Rights that if these rights weren't in a bill, the government would somehow have the right, for example, to regulate freedom of the press. In addition, the Federalists warned, if you compose an official listing of the basic rights, it will be impossible to get on that list all the basic rights or to encompass the full meaning of all the basic rights with all their implications. And you know what's going to happen, Hamilton says? Any rights that aren't on the list, future generations will say, aren't protected by the Constitution because they're not in the Bill of Rights. So what you're going to do is put our rights in a straitjacket, Hamilton says. You're going to make up a list, and then anything not on that list, 50 years from now, judges will say, well, I can't find it in the Bill of Rights, so it's not protected. It's not a constitutional right. And that goes against the whole purpose of our Constitution, which is to protect rights in a generous, broad way, to protect all rights, to protect rights that maybe we can't think of right now. As James Wilson said at the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention, if we attempt an enumeration, everything that is not enumerated is presumed to be given up to the government. The consequence is that an imperfect enumeration would throw all implied power into the scale of the government, and the rights of the people would be rendered incomplete. I consider, he says, that there are very few who understand the whole of these rights. All the political writers, from Grotius and Pufendorf down to Vettel, have treated on this subject, but in no one of those books, nor in the aggregate of them, can you find a complete enumeration of rights appertaining to the people as men and citizens. And as Madison put it in a private letter to Jefferson, there's great reason, he writes to Jefferson, to fear that a positive declaration of some of the most essential rights could not be obtained in the requisite latitude. I'm sure that the rights of conscience in particular, if submitted to public definition, would be narrowed much more than they're likely ever to be by an assumed power. In other words, another problem, Madison is saying, is that if you ask people today, what are the rights of conscience, you're not going to get a full enough expression. So it's safer, the Federalists argue, to leave the rights unlisted, to be invoked and articulated over time as occasion calls for by the people and government officials, including especially the judges and the courts. Rights are guaranteed in an effective way, they argue, not by being listed in a document, but by being treasured in the hearts and practices of the people and their representatives and judges. So, Hamilton writes, what signifies a declaration that, for example, the liberty of the press shall be inviolably preserved? What is the liberty of the press? Who can give it any definition that would not leave the utmost latitude for evasion? I hold it to be impracticable. And from this I infer that its security, or whatever fine declarations may be inserted in any constitution respecting it, must altogether depend on public opinion and on the general spirit of the people and of the government. Now, precisely to this point, the Anti-Federalists have a powerful response, together with Jefferson, who argued this strongly to Madison. They argue for the civic educational importance of a permanent, enshrined, documentary statement of the most important basic rights. 
which they say can include some general cautionary provision at the end, some statement to the effect that there are many other rights that are not here enumerated, that are reserved to the people and to the states and so on. In other words, they say, you don't have to say just these are the rights. You can add something to the effect these are the most important rights, but not all of them. The key point is we need a statement in this document to remind people what it's all for and about. As the federal farmer eloquently puts it in his 16th letter, we do not, by declarations, change the nature of things or create new truths, but we give existence, or at least establish in the minds of the people, truths and principles which they might never otherwise have thought of or soon forgot. What's the usefulness of a truth in theory unless it exists constantly in the minds of the people and has their assent? It is the effect of education, a series of notions impressed upon the minds of the people by examples, precepts, and declarations. And as Edmund Randolph, the governor of Virginia, said of the function of the Virginia Declaration of Rights, it was, he says, to lay the cornerstone on which a constitution was to be raised by making it so that in all the revolutions of time, of human opinion and of government, a perpetual standard should be erected around which the people might rally and by a notorious record to be forever admonished to be watchful, firm, and virtuous. And this consideration, the civic educational value for the people at large in the future of a Bill of Rights, played a major role in gradually winning James Madison over to Jefferson's point of view. What actually happened to bring about the amendments that constitute our Bill of Rights as we have them was that Many of the Federalists, and above all James Madison, became persuaded in the course of the debate that if the Statement of Rights were properly and carefully crafted, a big if, then such a statement would do more good than harm. In part, Madison was moved by a major political consideration, too. He recognized that in the wake of the great debate, when the Constitution had been ratified and the first Congress was starting to meet, that although the Constitution had been ratified and was up and going, there was widespread opposition still and distrust and doubt about it amongst that sizable part of the population, and it might even have been a majority, who had supported the anti-federalist side or at least been impressed by their arguments. And the clearest manifestation of this was the fact that a large number of amendments had been recommended by the various state ratifying conventions. So while the Constitution had been ratified, in most of the states it was only with a big list of amendments that were wanted, almost or many of which included bills of rights. So Madison calculated, as a, as a politician, that if there were added a bill of rights, whose language was crafted in such a way that it did not weaken the new government and did not foster distrust of the new government and did not stress and thus arouse the people's right of resistance to government, then such an addition of a moderated version of a Bill of Rights would go a long way in mollifying and reassuring and reconciling 
the opponents. So to the crafting of such a Bill of Rights, Madison devoted his great talents, leading the first Congress in this activity. The Bill of Rights, as it emerged from that Congress, omitted most of what the Anti-Federalists had hoped would be included. Madison did use the amendments, and above all the First Amendment, as a forum for expressing and teaching succinctly certain very fundamental rights, freedom of speech and religion and of the press, and then later key property rights and key procedural rights in criminal and civil law. But Madison omitted all language that would tie those rights to any specific political philosophy. He left out any reference to natural rights or the state of nature or the social compact, all the key philosophic conceptions that were prominent in the state declarations. And he left out all reference to cultivating civic virtue and piety, the echoes of classical republicanism that the Anti-Federalists wanted. Madison fended off a strong effort by some leading figures in the Congress, especially Elbridge Gerry and other Anti-Federalist congressmen, who wanted to consider the kind of Bill of Rights they wanted. And the result was that some of these die-hard Anti-Federalists were furious and disgusted with the actual Bill of Rights that was adopted. By thus keeping the Constitution's Bill of Rights detached from any specific philosophic or theological grounding, Madison facilitated popular reverence for and attachment to the Constitution itself for its own sake, or as a kind of self-sufficient object of reverence, not referring back to revolutionary principles on the basis of which the people are encouraged to doubt or resist or question their constitution and constitutional government. In other words, where the anti-federalists had tended to want a Bill of Rights that taught people to look at the federal government and maybe even the constitution with a skeptical eye, possibly as a potential threat to their basic rights, Madison led the way in formulating a Bill of Rights that reassured people of their rights being respected and protected by the federal government, especially since the federal judiciary was now able to appeal to the Bill of Rights in their exercise of judicial review. And this fits with and expresses Madison's and the Federalists' overwhelming priority, which was not the Bill of Rights which Madison saw as, at best, a secondary support and clarification of what it was that constitutional government was designed to protect. No, the key thing for Madison and the Federalists was the Constitution itself, the body of the Constitution, and the wonderful design and frame of government that it embodies. So one can say that the Bill of Rights as we have it is not so much the product of the anti-federalist agitation, as it is rather the product of James Madison's fundamental recrafting of the anti-federalist idea. As Madison himself put it in his great speech advancing the Bill of Rights in the First Congress on June 8, 1789, it has been a fortunate thing, he says, that the objection to the government has been made on the ground I stated of Bill of Rights because it will be practicable on that ground to obviate the objection so far as to satisfy the public mind that their liberties will be perpetual, and this without endangering any part of the Constitution, 
which is considered as essential to the existence of the government by those who promoted its adoption. It's especially fitting for us to conclude our study with the debate over the Bill of Rights, because in that debate are expressed some of the major strengths and weaknesses and the most important legacy of each side. The Federalists deservedly won the great debate because they successfully defended a marvelously well-designed frame of governmental power, while the Anti-Federalists deservedly lost because they lacked a convincing alternative proposal. But the Anti-Federalists, in their losing critique, show us some real limits of the magnificent proposal. They help us to see what has had to be left out or left behind, especially of the classical tradition. And they alert us to some dangers that lurk in this new order as a result. The Anti-Federalists, together with Jefferson, and many of the Anti-Federalists became followers of Jefferson in the great party divide that shook the nation after the Constitution. They were the first to voice, in a serious way, a set of worries that have played a healthy, critical role in our civic tradition. They warn of a tendency in large-scale, centralized government, even though it is representative, to become oppressive by losing touch with the real lives and concerns of the people, by becoming intrusive, paternalistic, bureaucratic, by reducing citizens to childlike passivity and dependence, thus sapping the energy and dulling the capacities of citizens to become engaged in self-government and to take individual and collective responsibility for their lives. The Anti-Federalists plead eloquently for the spiritual value of strong local institutions that foster direct popular participation in self-government. The Anti-Federalists do seem to have been overly distrustful of strong central government, too suspicious of oligarchic tendencies of government removed from the people. The Anti-Federalists seem to fail to appreciate how skillfully the Constitution was designed to achieve a central government that was both energetic and safe because well-checked and balanced. But on the other hand, the Anti-Federalists expressed what was to become widespread dissatisfaction at the insufficient amount of direct popular control over and involvement in the choice of the national government. The Anti-Federalists rightly saw that this original Constitution was insufficiently democratic or populist to fit the character and expectations of a people like the Americans. Thus, the Electoral College, as a method of selecting the president, never worked as planned, because it met with popular resistance from the start. The Electoral College became almost at once merely a, a somewhat bizarre system for expressing popular majorities or pluralities in presidential elections. And mass political parties soon formed, which have ever since played an enormous but extra-constitutional role in American politics, enabling much greater mass involvement in politics and the choice of national officers. The Senate eventually became much more democratically elected and a much less aristocratic body than the Federalists planned. But the deepest and perhaps the most important anti-Federalist contribution is their highlighting of the insufficient attention paid by the founders and by our Constitution to fostering civic virtue through civic education, encouraging civic citizen participation, all of which the Anti-Federalists plausibly insist and fruitfully warn 
must be more vigorously cultivated in the populace. If our system is not going to drift slowly toward a condition in which a passive, apathetic, and atomized populace becomes dominated by a paternalistic, bureaucratic, and distant government apparatus. The kind of civic education the anti-federalists warn us that we need to keep striving to invigorate includes, as an important cornerstone, what we have been doing in this course itself, the ever-renewed rethinking of the great debate out of which our unique republic was born. We hope you have enjoyed these lectures from our Great Courses series. Our courses are now available to order online. Visit our website at www.teach12.com or call our customer care representatives at 1-800-TEACH-12. That's 1-800-TEACH-12. Thank you very much. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.